Tantor Audio, a division of Recorded Books, presents Hammer and Ho, Alabama Communists During the Great Depression, by Robin D.G. Kelly, narrated by David Sadson. Preface to the 25th Anniversary Edition, The Strange Career of Hammer and Ho. How is this for timing? The post-Cold War and the publication of Hammer and Ho are both 25 years old. Or to put it another way, I published an entire book about the trials, tribulations, and virtues of a communist movement in the U.S. South, just as communism, in its Soviet variety at least, took its last breath. The demise of the USSR should have no bearing on the historical value of communism, but in the early 1990s, few conservative or liberal critics saw any reason to revisit communist movements besides performing an autopsy. Given how obsessed with the present our culture is, once communists ceased to be our greatest existential threat, they became, at best, relics of the past, and at worst, the 20th century's biggest losers. Yet I'd be lying if I said Hammer and Ho was conceived as a purely academic contribution, unburdened by presentist concerns. The book's genesis cannot be understood absent an understanding of the political and personal context in which it was written. I felt a fierce urgency to study black, working-class radicalism, not because the old Soviet states were crumbling in the face of revolt, but because the apartheid state of South Africa was succumbing to a massive multiracial movement, a movement in which left trade unions and the South African Communist Party played leading roles. Far more than the fall of the Berlin Wall, Nelson Mandela's release from prison and Namibian independence, both in 1990, best represented the politics behind this book. Even the title was inspired by events in Africa. In 1970, the People's Republic of the Congo, a self-declared Marxist-Leninist-Socialist state, adopted the symbol of a crossed hammer and hoe for its flag. Coincidentally, the regime and its flag were replaced in 1992, another Cold War casualty. I had entered UCLA's graduate program in 1983 as an Africanist. Modern South Africa was my chosen field, and the ways in which black workers struggled under regimes of racial capitalism, how they resisted exploitation, what they fought for, how they came to define political liberation, was my primary obsession. For my doctorate, I planned to write a social history of black radical politics in South Africa that would be attentive to the culture and ideas of ordinary people. There was little indication that the 1980s would be the last decade of the Cold War. This was the era of Reaganism and Thatcherism, new imperialist wars, and new revolutions in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, of capital flight, the erosion of the welfare state, neoliberal privatization schemes, and weakening of anti-discrimination laws and policies, of a wave of police and vigilante killings that struck our communities with the force of a cluster bomb. The decade, in fact, opened with police killings and non-lethal acts of police brutality emerging as a central political issue resulting in a massive urban insurrection in Liberty City, Florida, in May 1980. The 1980s also witnessed genuine efforts by radicals to build 
multiracial solidarity in the unlikely realm of electoral politics. The election of Mayor Harold Washington in Chicago in 1983, along with Jesse Jackson's 1984 presidential bid, held the radical promise of rainbow coalition politics. At the same time, like many of my fellow students in the early to mid-1980s, I was involved in the anti-apartheid movement. By the time I set foot on UCLA's campus in the fall of 1983, the boycott and divestment movement against South Africa was in full swing. I was active in a sectarian party pursuing dreams of socialist revolution, elected president of UCLA's African Activists Association, and chaired the ad hoc committee to keep South Africa out of the Olympics, which were held in Los Angeles in the summer of 1984. We were part of a broad coalition of students calling on the University of California to divest its holdings from South Africa. We built makeshift shanty towns on campus, sat in at the South African consulate, educated our community, built momentum, and by the summer of 1986 persuaded the UC regents to divest their $3.1 billion worth of holdings from South Africa and Namibia. While we won that battle, None of my comrades believed divestment alone would topple apartheid and birth a new democratic state founded on the principles of the Freedom Charter. We knew that the struggle inside of South Africa mattered most, and given the experiences of Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau, Angola, and Namibia, we knew it would be bloody. The United Democratic Front, the African National Congress, and the Congress of South African Trade Unions— COSATU, or COSATU, demonstrated the power of massive popular resistance, strikes, civil disobedience, the power of people to stop South Africa's racial regime from functioning. Though it may seem hard to believe now, these were revolutionary times, politically and theoretically. In the fog of negotiating movement work and schoolwork, I embraced a group of radical thinkers who believed another world was possible. C.L.R. James, W.E.B. Du Bois, Walter Rodney, Amilcar Cabral, Manning Marable, Audre Lorde, June Jordan, Ngugiwat Diongo, Angela Davis, Chinwezu, Vincent Harding, Cornel West, Barbara Smith, Stuart Hall, Edward Said, and Samir Amin, among others, wrote about the ravages of racial capitalism, the violence of patriarchy, the futility of parochial politics in the face of global imperialism, and the absolute necessity to resist. But resistance to what end? I began to think about the persistent failure of socialist and communist movements to mobilize black people. And then I encountered Cedric Robinson's extraordinary book, Black Marxism, The Making of the Black Radical Tradition. 1983, which exposed a fundamental fallacy in the way I framed the problem. It was never about a failing in the left's ability to mobilize black people, but our conceptual failure to recognize a black radical tradition critical of, and illegible to, a Euro-American left formed by the logic of Western civilization. When this tradition found its way into left movements, in Africa, Latin America, even the United States, it brought its own unique vision, historical sensibility, 
and set of resistance strategies to the communist movement. In doing so, it altered the party. In other words, whereas most scholars set out to prove just how alien communism was to black people, Robinson compelled me to ask what black people, in this case, black South Africans, brought to the left to make it their own. The presumed objects of communist machinations became subjects and agents in making their own history. Taking my cue from Cedric Robinson, I published an essay in our graduate student-run journal, Ufahamu, on the Communist Party of South Africa, CPSA, arguing that a black radical tradition, rooted in earlier notions of African redemption, rural opposition to land dispossession, and expressions of working class and petite bourgeois African nationalism, had produced a demand for self-determination before the Communist International was formed. Unable to recognize African radicalism, white South African communists initially oriented their work toward the white working class. Imagine a communist party anywhere backing striking miners under the banner, Workers of the World Unite and Fight for a White South Africa. When African trade unionists, as well as officials of the Communist International, Comintern, in Moscow, criticized party leaders for their uncritical support of the all-white Rand Revolt in 1922, to the exclusion of the more numerous African miners' struggles, white South African communists made the absurd argument that the advanced white proletariat must win the fight for socialism first in order to free the entire working class. Predictably, the common turn directed the CPSA to redirect its work toward the African masses, African and colored communists, who now constituted the party's majority, understood the directive to mean waging a mass struggle for African self-determination, sovereignty, massive land reform, and majority rule. White communists, on the other hand, interpreted the Comintern's resolution as a mandate to educate the backwards African working class to support a white-led proletarian revolution. The idea of a white-led proletarian revolution in South Africa was doomed from the start, as the 1922 Rand Revolt demonstrated, and the African, colored, and Indian comrades knew it. But since whites still held the reins of the CPSA, non-white communists depended on the common turn to lay down the law, as it were. Although I had concluded that the common turn played a key role in enforcing the demand for African self-determination, the essay's central contribution, I think, was to turn the usual claim that the communists had infiltrated the African nationalist movement on its head. Rather, the nationalists infiltrated the Communist Party, adopted a radical vision of self-determination that recognized South Africa as a settler colonial state, and demanded the return of land and black majority rule, expressed as an independent native South African Republic with full equal rights for all races. This article, 
despite its overly rigid formulations and archival limitations, planted the seeds for hammer and hoe. I extended my proposed thesis to include the U.S. South, hoping to produce a comparative study of black radicalism and the communist left in two global industrial cities, Johannesburg and Birmingham, Alabama. Without going into the messy details, let me just say that the project was always untenable since I had no prospect of getting into South Africa and therefore no access to the necessary archives. In 1985, the year my dissertation prospectus was approved, President P.W. Boeta declared a state of emergency, making travel to South Africa all but impossible. And my participation in protests at the South African Consulate in Beverly Hills did not bode well for my visa application. I ended up dropping the South African component, switching to U.S. history, and focusing my research entirely on Alabama. The rest, as they say, is history. Nothing, neither Nell Irvin Painter's magnificent The Narrative of Hosea Hudson, His Life as a Negro Communist in the South, 1979, nor Black Marxism, fully prepared me for what I encountered in Alabama. The testimonies and memories, the archives, the very landscape constituted living proof that a political culture distinct from the Euro-American left and rooted in older Afro-Christian and black folk traditions dominated the Communist Party in Alabama. The overwhelming, startling evidence compelled me to leave a lot of my assumptions about Marxist-Leninist movement culture behind. Relying on police records, the local and national communist press, leaflets and handbills, oral histories, photographs, even a marked-up Bible, I found some dramatic episodes of armed sharecroppers fighting cops and landlords, interracial demonstrations in downtown Birmingham, and legal cases that transformed local injustices into international scandals. But I also found lots of small stories of how black communists made themselves and their movement visible when their lives depended on invisibility, by leaving their mark on wet concrete, by placing leaflets in trees, releasing them on the ground for the wind to distribute, hiding them in the laundry baskets of domestic workers going into their white comrades' homes, by sending unsigned penny postcards to social workers and city relief agencies to demand more assistance and better treatment, by restoring a neighbor's electricity using jumper cables when he or she could not pay the bill, by playing the role of Sambo before a judge in order to escape a jail sentence. I wasn't prepared for characters such as Lemon Johnson, a former member of the communist-led Sharecroppers Union. In December 1986, I visited Johnson at his home in rural Montgomery County, which I described in my journal as a tiny, run-down shack with battered wooden walls, a rusted tin roof that had begun to cave in, and a porch stocked with three rickety chairs. He fed me a huge lunch of collard greens, beans, wonder bread, fried chicken, and a slice of cake. We ate outside and talked for a while. When it became unbearably cold, we moved inside. I sat on his bed as he slouched in a wooden chair next to me, 
a faded picture of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was tacked to the wall above his hat. He told stories about the 1935 cotton pickers' strike. Stalin's pledge to send troops to Mobile to help black sharecroppers if things got out of hand, and the night a well-armed group of women set out to avenge their comrades who had been beaten or killed during the strike. When I asked Mr. Johnson how the Union succeeded in winning some of their demands, without the slightest hesitation he reached into the drawer of his nightstand and pulled out a dog-eared copy of V.I. Lennon's What is to be Done and a box of shotgun shells, set both firmly on the bed next to me and said, Right there, theory and practice. That's how we did it. Theory and practice. I spent nearly a year in the field, scouring archives all over the country, trying to piece together the history of a semi-underground movement that deliberately left few traces. Alabama communists succeeded so well, in fact, that several Southern historians did not believe there was enough evidence to warrant a dissertation, let alone a book. My dissertation ultimately weighed in at 698 pages. Besides, it seemed that parts of the story had been told elsewhere. Ned Cobb eloquently recounts the story of the Sharecroppers' Union in Theodore Rosengarten's 1974 oral narrative, All God's Dangers, The Life of Nate Shaw. And Nell Irvin Painter's The Narrative of Hosea Hudson captures the radical democratic vision of a grassroots black communist leader in Birmingham. Painter and Rosengarten were able to draw out the psychic, social, and political costs of being a black radical in the Deep South. I had imagined the archetypal black communist as heroic and intellectually astute, delivering fiery street-corner speeches and fighting cops as they drag evicted workers' furniture back into their homes. But this wasn't Hudson. Not exactly. After I read Painter's book and interviewed him, Hudson reminded me of my grandfather from South Carolina, from his colloquial speech, his superstitions, and love of good gospel music, to his constant refrain that he was probably right since so-and-so was dead and he was still living. This blew my mind and made me rethink what it meant not just to be a communist, but a movement person, a movement person who was poor, black, and intelligent, despite a lack of formal education. It profoundly shaped my view of the communist and working-class political culture in the South. His story was the greatest reminder that people are constantly in motion. They always have the potential for transformation, and participation in social movements is the prime catalyst. We see Hudson change before our very eyes, from a quiet, unassuming child of a sharecropper without much to look forward to, to a confident leader, powerful speaker, and Marxist-Leninist to boot. I'm indebted to Nell Painter, not only for her magnificent portrait of Hudson, but for the care she took to read and critique early drafts of Hammer and Hoe. She, along with Mark D. Nason, author of Communists in Harlem During the Depression, and Theodore and Dale Rosengarten read the entire manuscript and offered invaluable advice and suggestions. Dale's 1969 Radcliffe College thesis 
on the history of the Alabama Sharecroppers Union paved the way for all subsequent research on the movement. Another scholar who followed in her footsteps and generously shared with me his findings and contacts was the Venerable Shinobu Isuki, a Japanese historian who spent over a decade documenting the history of agrarian radicalism in the Black Belt. Two scholars in particular helped me make sense of the Alabama Communist Party's distinctive political culture. First, by sheer coincidence, the late George Raywick became a mentor to me in the spring of 1987. He had accepted a visiting position at UCLA just as I returned from the field and began writing my dissertation. Illness rendered him virtually immobile, so I volunteered to drive him to campus. Three days a week, I would guide him to the cafe in North Campus, secure his two cinnamon rolls and coffee, and sit with him for an hour or more. He schooled me in ways to interpret working-class movements, culture, and resistance, and introduced me to some of his groundbreaking essays, such as The Historical Roots of Black Liberation, 1968, Notes on the American Working Class, 1968, and Working Class Self-Activity, 1969. By paying greater attention to Ray Wick's concept of self-activity, I found that Alabama's communists opened up another world of politics since most of the people the party fought for did not join insurgent organizations. They fought back as individuals or groups, often using strategies intended to cover their tracks. Raywick also insisted I read Class and Culture in Cold War America, A Rainbow at Midnight, by an incredible young historian named George Lipsitz. First published in 1981, the book offered a provocative and convincing thesis that the post-war period was not the death of labor's struggle, but one of the most active, militant periods of working-class opposition in U.S. history. Most importantly, he discovered in popular culture expressions of working-class desire and developed a whole new way to analyze the cultures of aggrieved populations. I was hooked. Just a year later, in 1988, he published A Life in the Struggle, Ivory Perry and the Culture of Opposition, a brilliant biography of St. Louis organizer Ivory Perry that literally forced me to rewrite large sections of what by then had become Hammer and Ho, the book Manuscript. Lipsitz's argument that Ivory Perry was formed by and operated within a culture of opposition gave me the framework I needed to understand the local political culture and to help me see the Alabama communists and their supporters as organic intellectuals. Once I did that, I could see the cultural and ideological bases of their own way of seeing alternatives to the status quo. I came to understand why the Bible was more important in challenging the dominant ideology than, say, Marx or Lenin. Thanks to the many readers acknowledged in the text, and my indefatigable team at UNC Press, notably Iris Tillman Hill, then editor-in-chief and the project's first champion, and my tireless and patient editor, Louis Bateman, I forged these stories into a work of which I'm still quite proud. Garnering critical praise from historians and across disciplines, Hammer and Ho won a couple of noteworthy book prizes, was the subject of round-table discussions, and has been widely taught and cited. 
a passage from the book even turned up on the law school admission test. After 25 years, it is still in print. And while I've appreciated the professional recognition, I have been especially moved by the responses I've gotten from activists who read the book on their own or in study groups. Organizers from the Labor Community Strategy Center, Los Angeles, Project South, Atlanta, Standing Together to Organize a Revolutionary Movement, Storm, Bay Area, and the Miami Workers Center, to name a few, have all conveyed to me the valuable political lessons they took from the book. For example, young activists who often felt that divisions of race, ethnicity, gender, and sexuality were insurmountable, or assumed that identities determined political choices and alliances, learned that solidarity is a dynamic, often unpredictable process, shaped inexorably by actual struggles in real time. Black, working-class Alabamians did not join the Communist Party out of some economic calculation or because they were driven by narrow interest group politics. They were not fighting for themselves. They were fighting for each other and for a fairer, less oppressive world for all. But the most illuminating lessons I took from the book came not from political activists, but from a playwright. A little over 10 years ago, Hammer and Ho inspired critically acclaimed author Naomi Wallace to write Things of Dry Hours, a powerful three-person play set in 1930s Birmingham. Tice Hogan, an older, widowed, black communist leader, lives with his daughter Callie, a domestic worker, and they suddenly find themselves having to give refuge to a young white comrade wanted by the Tennessee Coal, Iron, and Railroad Companies, TCI, private police. Wallace had completely absorbed every nuance, every argument, every detail in the book, and grasped what it meant to build a radical, interracial, working-class movement in the heart of the Deep South. She understood that violence and even death came with the territory. And yet she deliberately avoided the kinds of violent confrontations and public events I always thought were most dramatic. Instead, she brilliantly set the entire play inside Tice Hogan's tiny shotgun house, transforming it into a secret refuge hidden in plain sight. We don't see the violence or the protests or the actual street organizing, but we know it's there. The virtually claustrophobic setting becomes a metaphor for the interior lives of Southern working people, black and white, radical and reactionary. Wallace succeeded in taking three characters and reconstructing the world I found so elusive, the complex story of how people struggle to find life, love, meaning, and connection under the incredible circumstances of building a revolutionary movement in the Jim Crow South. Things of Dry Hours does not dramatize the facts, but lays bare emotional truths, reveals what bubbles underneath the surface. In this case, love and desire. She revealed father-daughter love in the context of building a new society in their heads. Comradely love across the color line sexual agency, and terror.
As we now know, all predictions that the end of the Cold War spelled the death of communist history proved premature. On the contrary, research and writing on the Communist Party USA, CPUSA, have proliferated since the publication of Hammer and Ho. One reason for the growing interest has been the opening of the Russian State Archive of Social and Political History, RGASPI, a consequence of the end of the Cold War. The availability of the Soviet archives has opened up new windows onto both local and international histories of communist parties, especially from the mid to late 1920s to the mid-1930s. For example, Glenda Gilmore's superb book, Defying Dixie, The Radical Roots of Civil Rights, 1919-1950, judiciously plums the Soviet archives to reveal how conversations in Moscow, New York, and South Africa influenced communist strategy in the South during the 1930s. Randy Storch's Red Chicago, American Communism at its Grassroots, 1928-1935, creatively draws on the Soviet archives to paint a rich picture of daily work and political life among the cadre in the Windy City. For this new edition of Hammer and Ho, I considered incorporating the Soviet archival material, but what I found would not have changed my argument. The new material would have allowed me to flesh out certain stories, say a bit more about debates in the Soviet Union over the interpretation of self-determination, and quote some of the fascinating letters from District 17 leaders, such as Ted Wellman or Nat Ross. This would have made the book bigger, while leaving the essential narrative unchanged. I did make a few minor corrections where appropriate. Besides, upon rereading Hammer and Ho in preparation for writing this introduction, I was struck by how much of the book focuses on the social and political history of Alabama working people, state violence, political economy, and the impact of federal New Deal policy. Party work was determined less by communist internal machinations than by the conditions on the ground. Besides, the availability of new archives does not fully explain the current fascination with the history of the Communist Party. Over the past five or six years, I've gotten more requests to talk about Hammer and Ho than about any other book I've published. New study groups have resurrected it, organizers are discussing it again, and I've been told that a copy showed up at the Occupy Wall Street People's Library in Zuccotti Park. Once again, the political context matters. Renewed interest in Hammer and Ho, in particular, is the result of the ravages of neoliberalism and the global economic crisis on the one hand, and the growth of the carceral state and the latest wave of police killings on the other. Anti-capitalism has become cool again, thanks to Occupy, the new hipsters and the share economy, the spectacular movement of Walmart and fast food workers across the country, and the recent publication of Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything, Capitalism versus the Climate, 2014, which makes a compelling argument that in order to save the earth ravaged by corporate and state violence, we must end capitalism. At the same time, 
opposition to a racist criminal justice system has generated some of the largest, most sustained protests in years. The killing, corralling, caging, warehousing, expelling, firing, deporting, and outright killing of black and brown people continue unabated. Ramping up, in fact, as declarations of racism's death grow louder and more confident. In our current moment, anti-capitalism and struggles against state violence and incarceration tend to be separate movements. For communists and their allies, especially in the Deep South, they were inextricably bound together. The characters in Hammer and Ho devoted as much of their energy to defending black people swept into a racist criminal justice system, investigating and challenging lynching, and protesting police murders of unarmed black people, as to fighting evictions, demanding relief for the unemployed, and organizing trade unions. Let's begin with anti-capitalism. No matter what we might think of the Soviet Union in hindsight, or the communist or various socialist parties, in the 1930s, social democracy and forms of socialism were considered legitimate alternatives to capitalism. Capitalism was not yet victorious, especially since radical workers and farmers' movements of the late 19th century were still part of a living national memory. Today, labor unions are portrayed as corrupt, bloated, a drain on the economy, even as the American worker is being promoted as the most productive in the world, not because of unions, but in spite of them. In our neoliberal age, economic debates focus not on alternatives to capitalism, but on what kind of capitalism. Capitalism with a safety net for the poor, or one driven by extreme free market liberalization. A capitalism in which the state's role is to bail out big banks and financial institutions, or one where the state imposes, or rather restores, greater regulation in order to avoid economic crises. In both of these scenarios, a weakened labor movement is a given. The once powerful unions are doing little more than fighting to restore basic collective bargaining rights and deciding how much they are going to give back. Union leaders are struggling just to participate in crafting austerity measures. Whereas in the New Deal era, the state's efforts to save capitalism centered on John Maynard Keynes' ideas, leading to massive expenditures in infrastructure, job creation, social safety nets like Social Security and unemployment insurance, paid by workers themselves, let's not forget, and certain protections for the rights of unions to organize. All of these measures were made possible by a strong labor movement and unemployed movement. There was a level of militant organization that we did not see in our post-2008 collapse, in spite of Occupy Wall Street. While Occupy was massive, international, and built on pre-existing social justice movements, it lacked the kind of institutional power base and political clout that organized labor had in the 1930s. Hammer and Ho not only reminds us that black and some poor white folks dreamed of socialist futures, but that the New Deal was a far cry from their vision of a just economy. It is hard to understand this in an era when progressives are struggling just to restore positive features of the New Deal welfare state. But as the book reveals, 
New Deal policies in Alabama were neither democratic nor inclusive. For most black, rural, and urban working people, the New Deal led to greater inequalities and outright dispossession. The New Deal's agricultural programs, for example, benefited landowners and landlords by federally subsidizing crop productions. In theory, the money was supposed to be fairly distributed to tenant farmers and sharecroppers, but that never happened. Instead, the landlords kept the money, evicted the tenant farmers and sharecroppers from their land, and used the federal payments to hire them back as cheap wage laborers, while investing in mechanical cotton pickers to eventually replace them. The party opposed evictions, demanded basic landlord-tenant rights and contracts, and fought for a decent wage for rural laborers. But the New Deal did not protect or recognize the rights of rural workers as labor under the National Industrial Recovery Act, Wagner Act, and related legislation. Once the communists shifted from adversary to ally of the New Deal during the Popular Front, leftists such as Hosea Hudson and Henry O. Mayfield were swallowed up by the Congress of Industrial Organizations, CIO. The party practically ceased to function as an independent, autonomous organization. My suggestion that the Popular Front led to the party's demise in Alabama is still perhaps the book's most controversial argument. The Popular Front era, after all, was considered the party's heyday, when liberals and anti-fascists were willing to build alliances and the CPUSA's leaders declared communism 20th century Americanism. To be fair, black communists were effective in their role as the left wing of the labor movement. They led the union's voter registration campaigns and fought to abolish the poll tax. However, the failure of the CIO's Operation Dixie, anti-communism within the AFL-CIO, not to mention the anti-communism of the NAACP, weakened or destroyed the communist-led unions, leaving an indelible mark on the next wave of civil rights activists and possibly arresting what may have been a broader economic and social justice agenda. But the communists hardly disappeared. For most African Americans, as well as black people all over the world, the party was best known for its defense of the Scottsboro Nine and the International Labor Defenses, ILD, unremitting challenge to a racist criminal justice system. This remains their legacy. In 2002, when Antron McRae, Kevin Richardson, Raymond Santana, Youssef Salam, and Corey Wise, known collectively as the Central Park Five, were finally exonerated for the 1989 rape and beating of Trisha Miley, I was invited on Democracy Now! and other talk shows to compare their case with Scottsboro. Some of the comparisons were strikingly obvious. The press demonized the defendants, calling the Scottsboro boys brutes, animals, and savages, just as the Central Park Five became known as a wolf pack. The press demonized the mothers as well, blaming single parenting and dysfunctional families for their behavior. All of the defendants were between 14 and 15 years old. They were falsely convicted thanks to forced confessions, media hysteria, 
an overzealous prosecutor, and a long-standing racist discourse that presumes all black and brown men to be violent sexual predators. There was one fundamental difference, however, the presence of the left. The communists and the ILD transformed a local, and I might add, common, injustice into an international cause celeb by building a mass movement to free the Scottsboro Nine. Two weeks after the arrest, the communists got 13,000 people to take to the streets of Cleveland to protest the Scottsboro frame-up. The very next day, they led a demonstration in New York City 20,000 strong. They formed Scottsboro defense committees all over the country, whose members flooded the Alabama governor's office with telegrams, letters, and postcards demanding freedom for the Scottsboro boys. They inspired mass meetings in Paris, Moscow, Johannesburg, London, and Tokyo, accusing the state of Alabama of planning a legal lynching. The communists argued that the defendants were not just innocent based on lack of evidence, but that they were victims of a racist and classist system. Most strikingly, they promoted representations of the defendants and the alleged victims that countered the racial and gendered stereotypes used by the state and white supremacists. For example, that all black men are violent, dangerous rapists, and all white women are pure, virtuous victims. Instead, they succeeded in doing something extraordinary. They reversed the poles of criminalization, turning young black men and young working-class white women into victims and the state into the criminal. It opened a path for thinking about incarcerated black people as class war prisoners. Scottsboro was not the only case. Alabama communists and the ILD were overwhelmed with local incidents of lynchings, police shootings, false arrests, even the rape of black women. Names that appear in this audiobook, such as Tom Robertson, Babe Dawes, Thomas Jasper, Ralph Gray, Willie Peterson, Dan Pippen Jr., Elmore Honey Clark, A.T. Hardin, and Dennis Cross, may not possess the historical weight of Ozzie Powell, Clarence Norris, Haywood Patterson, or any of the other Scottsboro defendants, but they are the historical antecedents of Trayvon Martin, Renisha McBride, Jonathan Farrell, Ramarley Graham, Jordan Davis, Ernest Hoskins Jr., Tanisha Anderson, Rashad McIntosh, Aura Rain Rosser, Darian Hunt, Michael Brown, Kajime Powell, Vonderit D. Myers Jr., John Crawford III, Eric Garner, Carrie Ball Jr., Akai Gurley, Tamir Rice. But let's be clear. It is not the body count that matters. It is the history of a vibrant, grassroots, radical movement that matters. It is resistance to injustice and an ongoing struggle to create a new world that matters. The young organizers in Ferguson and St. Louis, Missouri, from Hands Up United, Lost Voices, Organization for Black Struggle, Don't Shoot Coalition, and Millennial Activists United, are the bearers of the Alabama Communist Party's legacy. So are Florida's Dream Defenders, 
So are the young Chicago activists who founded We Charge Genocide and the Black Youth Project 100. So is the Moral Mondays movement, the multiracial coalition based in North Carolina and Georgia, whose members returned to jail in the cause of racial, class, and gender justice. So are those visionary activists in post-Katrina New Orleans, a key battleground in neoliberalism's unrelenting war on working people, where black organizers lead multiracial coalitions to resist the privatization of schools, hospitals, public transit, public housing, and dismantling of public sector unions. So are the Los Angeles-based youth who make up the Community Rights Campaign and hundreds of organizations across the country challenging everyday state violence, occupation, exploitation, and wage theft. They remind us that the problems that beset us cannot be fixed with reforms or legislation or a better president. They understand that we are still grappling with the consequences of settler colonialism, racial capitalism, and patriarchy. I did not propose a 25th anniversary edition of Hammer and Ho simply to mark time, to sell books, or to frame how a new invisible army might hear and process this extraordinary story. I think the most important lessons are not necessarily the ones I recognize or acknowledge, but the lessons listeners take from the book upon reflecting on their own experiences and dreams of the world they are trying to build. That said, I do think that the book proves, again, that anti-racism and class solidarity are not trade-offs or mutually exclusive, but mutually constitutive. The same holds true for all forms of oppression, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, etc. Second, the communists placed what appeared to be local and isolated struggles against mean bosses and landlords in a global context, one that exposed the structural dimensions of racial capitalism as a system and offered a different path forward. Third, the movement did, in some ways, lay the groundwork for the next generation of activists who truly transformed the face of the South and the United States as a whole. Finally, this work reveals something about how people think and how struggle changes their ideas about what is possible, why they are poor and oppressed, and what alternatives to Jim Crow capitalism might look like. I've come to realize that this task might have been the most important of all. This edition would not exist were it not for the enthusiastic support of UNC Press editor Brandon Proya and the tireless labor of Paul Betts, Dino Batista, and others. I must also thank former press director Kate Torrey, who planted the seeds for reissuing Hammer and Ho years ago. Jordan Camp, whose interview with me about Hammer and Ho and American Quarterly inspired the new preface. And Nana Ose Upari, the current editor of Ufahamu, for recently urging me to revisit some of my early work on South African communism. Finally, a special thanks to Deidre Harris-Kelly for letting us keep her original artwork on the new edition. Those portraits are still my favorite part of the book. Preface Ain't no foreign country in the world foreign as Alabama to a New Yorker. They know all about England, maybe, France. Never met one who knew Bama. Anonymous Black Communist, 1945
After spending several years hobnobbing with European, Asian, and Soviet dignitaries of the Third International, daily worker correspondent Joseph North made a most unforgettable journey to, of all places, Chambers County, Alabama. Traveling surreptitiously with a black Birmingham communist as his escort, North reached his destination, the tumble-down shack of a sharecropper comrade, in the wee hours of the night. The dark figure who greeted the two men had read the worker for years. Solid and reliable, he was respected by his folk here, who regarded him as a man with answers. The sharecropper was an elder in the Zion AME Church, who trusts God but keeps his powder dry, reads his Bible every night, can quote from the book of Daniel and the book of Job, and he's been studying the Stalin book on the nation question. Although North's visit took place in 1945, on the eve of the Alabama Party's collapse, the sharecropper comrade he describes epitomized the complex, seemingly contradictory radical legacy the party left behind. Built from scratch by working people without a Euro-American left-wing tradition, the Alabama Communist Party was enveloped by the cultures and ideas of its constituency. Composed largely of poor blacks, most of whom were semi-literate and devoutly religious, the Alabama cadre also drew a small circle of white folks, whose ranks swelled or diminished over time, ranging from ex-Klansmen to former Wobblies, unemployed male industrial workers to iconoclastic youth, restless housewives to renegade liberals. These unlikely radicals, their milieu, and the movement they created make up the central subjects of this book. Heeding Victoria de Grazia's appeal to historians of the American left for a social history of politics, I have tried to construct a narrative that examines communist political opposition through the lenses of social and cultural history, paying particular attention to the worlds from which these radicals came, the worlds in which they lived, and the imaginary worlds they sought to build. I pluralize worlds to emphasize the myriad individual and collective differences within the Alabama communist movement. Those assembled under the Red Banner did not all share the same vision of radical opposition, nor were they motivated by the same circumstances. Neither the Jimmy or Jane Higginses of historian Eileen Craditor's mind nor the dowdy, selfless caricatures of left-wing fiction. These women and men came from the farms, factories, mines, kitchens, and city streets, not as intellectual blank sheets, but loaded down with cultural and ideological baggage molded by their race, class, gender, work, community, region, history, upbringing, and collective memory. Their ideas and concerns shaped the party's political practice and social life at the most local level. And in turn, Alabama radicals were themselves shaped by local Communist Party leaders' efforts to change the way ordinary people thought about politics, history, and society. What emerged was a malleable movement rooted in a variety of different pasts, reflecting a variety of different voices and incorporating countless contradictory tendencies. The movement's very existence validates literary critic Mikhail Bakhtin's observation that a culture is not static but open. 
capable of death and renewal, transcending itself, that is, exceeding its own boundaries. And Alabama communists had titanic boundaries to exceed. More than in the Northeast and Midwest, the regional incubators of American communism, race pervaded virtually every aspect of Southern society. The relations between industrial labor and capital and landlords and tenants were clouded by divisions based on skin color. On the surface, at least, it seemed that there existed two separate racial communities in the segregated South that only intersected in the world of work or at the marketplace. Sharp class distinctions endured within both black and white communities, but racism tended to veil, and at times arrest, intra-racial class conflict as well as interracial working-class unity. Alabama party leaders could not escape the prevalence of race, despite their unambiguous emphasis on class-based politics. Indeed, during its first five years in Alabama, the Communist Party inevitably evolved into a race organization, a working-class alternative to the NAACP. As Nell Painter observed, the rank-and-file folk made the party their own. In Alabama in the 1930s, the CP, Communist Party, was a Southern, working-class black organization. The homegrown radicalism that had germinated in poor black communities and among tiny circles of white rebels remained deep underground. Alabama communists did not have much choice. Their challenge to racism and to the status quo prompted a wave of repression one might think inconceivable in a democratic country. The extent and character of anti-radical repression in the South constitute a crucial part of our story. When we ponder Werner Sombart's question, why is there no socialism in the United States? In light of the South, violence and lawlessness loom large. The fact is, the CP and its auxiliaries in Alabama did have a considerable following, some of whom devoured Marxist literature and dreamed of a socialist world. But to be a communist, an ILD member, or an SCU militant was to face the possibility of imprisonment, beatings, kidnapping, and even death. And yet the party survived, and at times thrived, in this thoroughly racist, racially divided and repressive social world. Indeed, most scholars have underestimated the Southern left and have underrated the role violence played in quashing radical movements. Religious fundamentalism, white racism, black ignorance or indifference, the communists' presumed insensitivity to Southern culture, their advocacy of black self-determination during the early 1930s, and an overall lack of class consciousness are all oft-cited explanations for the party's failure to attract Southern workers. The experiences of Alabama communists, however, suggest that racial divisions were far more fluid and Southern working-class consciousness far more complex than most historians have realized. The African-Americans who made up the Alabama radical movement experienced and opposed race and class oppression as a totality. The party and its various auxiliaries served as vehicles for black working-class opposition on a variety of different levels, 
ranging from anti-racist activities to intra-racial class conflict. Furthermore, the CP attracted some openly bigoted whites despite its militant anti-racist slogans. The party also drew women whose efforts to overcome gender-defined limitations proved more decisive to their radicalization than did either race or class issues. I suppose I should say something about the now infamous debate over the CPUSA's relationship to the Communist International. Although it had been brewing since the new social historians, who sought to rewrite CP history from the bottom up, challenged earlier studies by Theodore Draper and others depicting American communists as veritable puppets of Kremlin intrigue, the controversy reached a climax in 1985 when battle lines were drawn between pro- and anti-Draper forces and a deluge of letters and articles engulfed the New York Review of Books. As a 23-year-old graduate student about to embark on what would have been a multi-volume dissertation on the Communist Party in South Africa and the American South, I was eager to enter the fray. But as I was an unknown entity in the academic community, with only a book review to my credit, no respectable journal or newspaper would have taken me seriously. Nevertheless, my youth and anonymity turned out to be a blessing in disguise, for after having spent the next four years living and breathing Alabama CP history, the whole debate seems, in retrospect, rather superfluous, even silly. Of course, the Alabama cadre dutifully followed national and international leadership, just as Birmingham NAACP leaders jumped at every directive handed down from their executive secretary, Walter White. Local communists cried out for direction especially after wrestling with vague theoretical treatises on capital's crisis or on the growing specter of fascism. Though they knowingly bucked national leadership decisions on a few occasions, local cadre tried their best to apply the then-current political line to the tasks at hand. But because neither Joe Stalin, Earl Browder, nor William Z. Foster spoke directly to them or to their daily problems, Alabama communists developed strategies and tactics in response to local circumstances that, in most cases, had nothing to do with international crises. Besides, if Alabamians had waited patiently for orders from Moscow, they might still be waiting today. Not only were lines of communication between New York and Birmingham hazy throughout the 1930s and 1940s, but Birmingham communists had enough difficulty maintaining contact with comrades as close as Tallapoosa County. The complex and decentralized structure of party organization in Alabama requires a nuanced, somewhat detailed narrative sensitive to local history. Hammer and Hull examines party activity in the neighborhoods, industrial suburbs, company towns of the greater Birmingham-Bessemer area, the Black Belt and its urban centers of Montgomery and Selma, and the eastern Piedmont counties. When possible, I have tried to chronicle CP work in Mobile as well as in several northern Alabama counties, but communists there did not have much of a public presence and left very few records. The organization of this book, therefore, reflects the party's multi-issue, multi-community focus. 
following a brief portrait of Birmingham from its inception to the Great Depression, Part 1 reconstructs the period from 1930 to 1935 in five thematic chapters. Chapter 1 documents the party's origins and early organizing efforts among Birmingham's jobless from 1930 to 1933. Turning to the countryside, Chapter 2 chronicles the sharecroppers' union's first five years and offers some insights into the context and character of rural radicalism. The party's industrial organizing efforts and the intensification of anti-radical repression during the 1934 strike wave are the focus of Chapter 3. The fourth chapter looks at the CP-led International Labor Defense's challenge to black middle-class leadership and examines the racial, class, and sexual dimensions of the ILD's involvement in alleged rape cases. The final chapter in Part 1 steps back from the narrative for a moment and explores the social, ideological, and cultural foundations of radicalism among black communists, the ways in which Marxist pedagogy influenced their outlook, and the party's role in shaping class conflict within the black community. Part 2, which deals with the Popular Front, 1935-39, to adopts a similar thematic format. Chapter 6, 1935-37, to traces local leaders' response to and interpretation of the new policy, discusses communist efforts to build alliances with Southern liberals, and examines the effect of Popular Front politics on the party's rank and file. Chapters 7 through 9 analyze the communists' role in building both the Congress of Industrial Organizations and the Workers' Alliance, and document the collapse of the Sharecroppers' Union. These three chapters, along with Chapter 6, explain the decline in Black Party membership during the Popular Front. The Birmingham CP's retreat from working-class militancy and entrance into the world of Southern liberalism, the period from 1937 to 1939, are the subjects of Chapter 10. Part 3, which covers the historical moment from the Nazi-Soviet Pact to U.S. entry into World War II, consists of a single chapter. Here we find the party on the road to revitalization, not as an autonomous organization, but as part of a much broader, radical, interracial youth movement. Finally, the epilogue sweeps through the war and post-war periods, reconstructing the party's ultimate demise and ruminating on the legacy it left behind. In closing, I should add that some of the stories herein have been told before. Two decades ago, an old black farmer named Ned Cobb shared his recollections of the communist-led sharecroppers' union with Theodore and Dale Rosengarten. The result was the moving narrative, All God's Dangers, 1974. Another participant griot, Hosea Hudson, preserved the struggles of Birmingham communists in his heavily edited book, Black Worker in the Deep South, 1972. A few years later, the richness and complexity of Hudson's life and the lives of his comrades were brilliantly captured by Nell Irving Painter in The Narrative of Hosea Hudson, His Life as a Negro Communist in the South, 1979. Two magnificent oral memoirs are a hell of an act to follow. 
No university-trained historian can match the beauty and grace of Cobb's and Hudson's storytelling, nor can she or he convey, with all the required subtleties, the feelings, the fears, the pride, the confusion, the mosaic of emotions that went with being black and radical in the Depression South. In order to truly appreciate the men and women who made the movement, I urge all to read Rosengarten's and Painter's wonderful narratives as companion volumes to this book. The saga of the Alabama Communist Party is but a chapter in a larger work waiting to be written. Communists were all over the South, from Chattanooga, Tennessee to Oxford, Mississippi, influencing communities and individuals in ways we have yet to understand, making history we have yet to know. Though they never seized state power or led a successful socialist revolution below the Mason-Dixon line, communists deserve a place in Southern history. As former Alabama Party leader Robert Fowler Hall argued a few years ago, if the courage of white liberals, though ineffective, is worth a book, the courage of Southern communists during those three decades justifies some footnotes. At the very least, some books. Atlanta and Chapel Hill, July 1989. Prologue, Radical Genesis, Birmingham, 1870-1930. It is an industrial monster sprung up in the midst of a slow-moving pastoral. It does not belong, and yet it is one of the many proofs that Alabama is an amazing country, heterogeneous, grotesque, full of incredible contrasts. Birmingham is a new city in an old land. Carl Carmer Perhaps more than any other city, Birmingham comes closest to embodying the mythic New South Creed. Its resident and absentee mine and mill owners turned a cornfield and a swamp into a multiracial, bustling, smoky bastion of industrial capitalism where profits ruled and the feudal values of the Old South echoed faintly in the background. Their wealth depended on a huge, disciplined, docile labor force. But unlike machines, working people and their advocates fought to alter conditions they considered unjust or intolerable. Thus, as a competing center of heavy industry, Birmingham was to the Deep South what Cripple Creek, Colorado, or Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, was to the West, a cauldron of class conflict. But as Carl Carmer so eloquently explains earlier, the matrix of old and new makes Birmingham an unparalleled industrial center. The mine and mill owners hoped to mold an industrial proletariat in a city founded less than a generation after the abolition of chattel slavery and peopled with two races afraid of each other. From the discovery and exploitation of large mineral deposits in central Alabama emerged the Birmingham Industrial Complex, a region often called the Pittsburgh of the South. Before 1879, the Pratt Coal and Coke Company mined and exported the rich deposits of iron ore, coal, and limestone to northern industries. When TCI took over the holdings of the Pratt Coal and Coke Company in 1886, 
which five years earlier had been purchased by industrialist Enoch Inslee, TCI became the most prodigious iron and steel manufacturer in the South. TCI swallowed up a large portion of the local iron and steel industry, and most remaining holdouts merged into three competing companies, the Sloss Sheffield Steel and Iron Company, the Woodward Iron Company, and the Republic Iron and Steel Company. The juxtaposition of limestone, coking coal, dolomite, and red hematite ore substantially reduced production costs, but it was not enough to make Birmingham's coal and iron industry competitive on the national market. Unlike the alluvial ore found in the Great Lakes region, Birmingham's deposits were buried deep below mountainous slopes, and the region's insufficient water supply, increased transportation costs, and the lower metallic content of its ore rendered capital investments comparatively higher. Yet, cheap black and white labor from the Alabama countryside compensated for the capitalist-intensive nature of mining, making the Birmingham district one of the least costly industrial centers in the country. Although Birmingham's profits rarely measured up to expectations, and fortunes were earned and lost in an economy that resembled a slot machine, the district nevertheless generated tremendous wealth for a tiny minority. In 1910, individuals whose net worth was over $35,000 comprised merely 1% of the population, whereas 80% earned below $500 per annum. In addition to having the means for an elegant lifestyle, this small group of industrialists wielded enormous economic and political power. Interlocking directorships and control over various real estate, banking, and mining ventures were held by such individuals as Henry T. de Bartleben, Robert I. Ingalls, Erskine Ramsey, Robert Jemison Jr., Walter Henley, and others. Although few held political office, these men used financial strength to exercise considerable power over local government. Birmingham's nouveau riche industrialists spent lavishly and developed a strong consciousness of class and a sense of social cohesion. They built plush mansions in areas such as Shades Valley and Mountain Brooks Estates, distant from the bellowing smoke of the steel mills. In a spectacular display of wealth, one Birmingham capitalist built a home replicating a Roman temple. Alongside numerous bronze and plaster statues sat two doghouses built like miniature Parthenons with classic porticos and tiny pillars. Below in the Valley of the Furnaces was another world in the making. Thousands of landless farmers from the surrounding counties, particularly blacks, were rapidly drawn into the orbit of industrial production. By 1900, 55% of Alabama's coal miners and 65% of its iron and steel workers were black. Overall, African Americans made up more than 90% of Birmingham's unskilled labor force by 1910, thus constituting one of the largest black urban communities in the New South. As in any other New South urban community, race, penetrated all aspects of the city's life. Segregation ordinances proliferated between 1900 and 1905, and Alabama's move to disfranchise blacks reduced the state's black voters from 100,000 to a negligible 
3,700 after 1901. Segregation in the public sphere reinforced the development of a separate black social and cultural world. Yet unlike northern urban centers, such as New York or Chicago, where blacks were concentrated in one or two dense sections of the city, Birmingham's blacks resided in several segregated pockets situated along creek beds, railroad lines, and alleys near the downtown area. Black working-class neighborhoods throughout the first three decades of the 20th century suffered from lack of streetlights, paved streets, sewers, and other city services. Birmingham was an unmistakably segregated city, but spatially there was no single identifiable black community to speak of. Excluding the greater Birmingham area and the surrounding industrial suburbs, the central core of black residents settled along the 20th Street axis from the southern section of the city toward the railroad tracks which ran through downtown. Not all blacks toiled in the mines, mills, kitchens, and streets of Birmingham. A tiny but influential black elite established a flourishing business district along 18th Street in the heart of downtown. As early as 1890, the Reverend W.R. Pettiford founded and presided over Birmingham's first black bank, the Alabama Penny Savings and Loan. And black residents often boasted of their millionaire inventor, Andrew J. Beard, or the affluent funeral director and insurance magnate, C.M. Harris. Black businessmen and religious leaders made their fortunes from a consumer base of working-class blacks, ensured peaceful relations by creating alliances with white industrialists, and a handful secured enough respectability to retain the franchise. Like the white elite, they maintained their own exclusive social clubs and rarely interacted with poor blacks. While the Negro Federation of Women's Clubs and Allied Organizations occasionally focused on social welfare issues, Black Birmingham's numerous religious and literary societies occupied a great deal of the black middle-class woman's time. The black elite could not always find complete satisfaction in material wealth when they, too, were denied basic democratic rights. Some black middle-class spokesmen searched for autonomous alternatives to Jim Crow within and without the region. African colonization and other immigration schemes were proposed by blacks and white liberals during the late 19th century. And in Oxford, Alabama in 1899, a group of leading black citizens established one of the nation's first all-black towns. In virtually every case of black political assertion, however, the white status quo only recognized as spokespersons for the African-American community the black elite whether followers of the accommodationist teachings of Booker T. Washington or the Back to Africa movement of Bishop Henry McNeil Turner. And rarely was the black elite's self-appointed leadership challenged by the masses of blacks. The newly created industrial complex also attracted significant numbers of immigrants from northern mining communities or directly from Europe. By 1890, first- and second-generation immigrants particularly Italians, Scots, Germans, and Britons, comprised nearly one-fourth of Birmingham's white population, a substantial number for the urban South. 
More striking is the fact that in 1910, one half of the coal, iron, and steel workers were immigrants, many of whom had been skilled colliers and metal workers before moving south. As Southern whites left the farm to take advantage of Birmingham's employment opportunities, the percentage of immigrants in the labor force declined precipitously. Although thousands of white migrants found their way into the cotton mills and lumber yards in other parts of the state, a large portion joined black workers and immigrants in the mines and steel factories. During the first three decades of the 20th century, thousands of Southern women also left the farm and found work in the greater Birmingham area or simply labored as unpaid workers in the households of their husbands who toiled in the mines and mills. The proletarianization of white females, drawn to the state's rapidly growing textile industry, hardly affected Birmingham. Textile factories there employed only 283 women in 1930. The city's 8,038 white working women were scattered in dozens of occupations, mainly clerical and professional pursuits. Although limited wartime industrialization led to an increase in white female wage labor, by 1930 most white women worked as housewives. In fact, despite numerical increases, the percentage of women wage earners in the state decreased from 40.9% in 1910 to 25.5% in 1930. And this figure mainly indicates the status of white women, of whom 85% were reportedly housewives in 1930. In 1920, black women comprised 60% of the city's 20,082 female workers, and of that number, 87% were engaged in domestic work. The thousands of women and men who streamed into Birmingham searching for opportunities made up the cheap labor force from which local capitalists could make their fortunes. Yet the city's young proletariat was by no means docile. On the contrary, many had had some organizing experience. Two decades prior to the populist upheaval of the 1890s, James T. Rapier, black leader of the Labor Union of Alabama, an affiliate of the newly formed National Labor Union, attempted to organize black industrial and agricultural workers throughout the state. More significantly, the Knights of Labor and the Greenback Labor Party established a tradition of militant interracial unionism among Birmingham coal miners. Blacks comprised the majority of Greenback Labor supporters in the Birmingham district, before the party dissolved in 1880. Working among black and white coal miners and lumber workers throughout Alabama, the Knights proved quite effective, establishing a number of local assemblies in Jefferson County. While Knights led several small strikes in Alabama's coal fields between 1882 and 1885, the organization on a national level began to decline after 1886, partly because of anti-labor hysteria following the Haymarket Affair the emergence of the AFL, and the leadership's decision to adopt a no-strike pledge. The UMW, a local movement distinct from the UMWA, founded by ex-Knights and rural migrants who brought agrarian radicalism to the mines and mills, continued organizing Birmingham workers until it was crushed during the coal miners' strike of 1894. Late in the decade, however, 
National leadership in the UMWA reinvigorated organized labor in Alabama's coal mines and began a campaign to rebuild the union. All three organizations left a remarkable record of labor activity. Of 603 strikes initiated by Alabama's workers between 1881 and 1936, 303 took place during 1881 to 1905. But as the 20th century approached, White workers began to drift away from the UMWA. During both the 1904 and 1908 coal miners' strikes, black workers were in the majority. Taking advantage of the large black presence in the UMWA, employers adeptly used racist propaganda, violence, and black convict labor to weaken unionism in Alabama's coal fields. In the aftermath of the 1908 strike, TCI executive George Gordon Crawford adopted the paternalistic methods of the parent company, United States Steel, as a bulwark against unionism and to create a more stable labor force. Because of poor working conditions, dilapidated housing, overburdened public facilities, and polluted water supplies, the turnover rate for Birmingham labor hovered around 400%. Crawford sought to turn the situation around by establishing workers' villages with decent, well-constructed homes, playgrounds, schools, churches, and health facilities for employees. These segregated, company-owned settlements were laid out in greater Birmingham's industrial suburbs, especially North Birmingham, Woodlawn, Inslee, Greenwood, Collegeville, Smithfield, and Fairfield. The city of Bessemer established a similar residential pattern in which miners and some steelworkers lived in company-owned double-tenant shotgun houses. By 1920, over 17,000 workers lived in homes maintained by various industrial concerns and ranging in quality from well-constructed wood-frame houses to shoddy dwellings of board and batten construction. Although conditions improved in many company communities, and the turnover rate dropped significantly to 5.1% in 1930, TCI exercised greater control over workers' lives. The UMWA in Alabama was temporarily crushed after World War I, more the result of state violence and race-baiting than TCI's paternalistic policies. Disaster followed when Birmingham coal miners, three-quarters of whom were black, struck for higher wages in 1919 and again in 1920. Backed by state troopers dispatched by Governor Thomas Kilby, TCI crushed the strike, as well as the UMWA in Alabama. The union's collapse marked the end of biracial unionism in Alabama until the 1930s. Iron ore miners and iron and steel workers did not establish the same tradition of interracial unionism during this period. The Metal Trades Council of Birmingham concentrated its efforts exclusively on skilled workers, ignoring black workers who comprised nearly one-half of the steel and iron workers and 70% of the ore miners. Given the unwritten racial quota on occupational mobility, and the slowness of technological change in the iron and steel industry, black workers remained unskilled and, therefore, unorganized. In the iron ore mines, mass industrial organizing efforts were not only met with force and violence, 
but company officials used racist propaganda to keep black and white workers divided. Attempted strikes in 1918 and 1919 left the nascent industrial organizing campaign in shambles, and hundreds of dedicated union men, black and white, were blacklisted during the years that followed. The swelling ranks of women workers remained largely unorganized, and middle-class women's reform movements barely took notice of female toilers, particularly black women. Black domestic laborers, the majority of the female workforce, were considered unorganizable and unimportant, and thus were virtually invisible in the eyes of white male labor organizers. White middle-class women initiated a vibrant reform movement around women's suffrage, the UWCA movement, child labor reform, and opposition to convict labor. But middle-class reformers excluded poor white women and often, especially in the case of women's suffrage, exhibited hostilities toward their darker sisters. In the end, a dynamic women's interracial movement did not spring up in Birmingham, as it had in areas such as Atlanta and Memphis. With the death of the Knights of Labor, working-class radicalism had few organized outlets. The Socialist Party was visibly active in the state around the turn of the century, claiming 400 members in 1908. The Socialists eventually attracted a small following among poor white farmers in Baldwin, Bibb, Covington, and Coleman counties, and among a handful of Birmingham skilled workers. It reached its peak in electoral strength in 1912, when Alabamians cast 3,029 votes, 2.6% of the state's electorate, for Eugene Debs. In Birmingham, the only socialist who held office was Arlie K. Barber, a staunchly anti-corporate suburban druggist elected to the city commission in 1915. Unlike Louisiana and parts of Texas, where Southern socialists organized blacks, albeit in separate locals, in Alabama, the SPA, Socialist Party of America, was strictly a white man's party. In 1905, Montgomery Socialist E.F. Andrews maintained that organizing blacks, especially on an integrated basis, would have disastrous results. Northern Socialists did not understand, he explained in 1905, that white Southerners were surrounded by some eight millions of more or less civilized people belonging to a race in a stage of evolution so far removed from our own that for aught we can see at present, assimilation must be impossible for an indefinite period. Like many other Southern socialists, Andrews believed the time was ripe for propagandizing the socialists' cause, but feared organizing blacks would lead to charges of fostering social equality. The decade after World War I was marked by unsettling social and economic transformations affecting all strata of Birmingham society. Following two decades of mercurial growth, conservative values clashed with the course of industrialization. Xenophobia, racism, and rigid moralism informed mainstream politics in Birmingham during the 1920s, lasting well into the 1930s. White supremacist groups organized by some of the city's leading citizens hoped to establish order and a degree of cultural homogenization through intimidation and violence. 
the Ku Klux Klan in particular, enjoyed huge numerical and financial support during the 1920s, emerging as one of the city's most powerful political forces. Klansmen sought to cleanse their city of Jews, Catholics, labor agitators, and recalcitrant African Americans who refused to accept their place in the hierarchy of race. A large number of poor whites were also drawn to this essentially middle-class Protestant movement, but their participation did not improve the squalid poverty many were forced to endure long before the stock market crash of 1929. Organized labor did not completely buy into the reactionary tendencies of Southern Jazz Age politics. Although industrial unionism lay prostrate, craft unions successfully fought for municipal reforms and sustained a dynamic involvement in local politics after World War I. Robert LaFollette's Farmer Labor Party, for instance, received nearly 12% of the votes in Jefferson County. The Labor Advocate, Journal of the Birmingham Trades Council, sustained somewhat of an urban populist tradition. It not only fought rising rents in working-class neighborhoods, but supported the single-tax movement and called for municipal ownership of public utilities. A. H. Cather's eclectic Southern Labor Review, though not an official publication of the Birmingham labor movement, combined both radical and conservative tendencies. Cather outrightly attacked capitalism, called for unity of farmers and workers, advocated cooperationism under Christian principles, yet was among the most avid supporters of the temperance movement. Nonetheless, it is difficult to assess the impact of the labor press during the 1920s when all that remained of the labor movement after 1922 was fragmented craft unionism. Nativism, racism, and the violence which accompanied these attitudes served as an effective bulwark against the resurgence of an already emaciated labor movement. The war and post-war period altered black lives fundamentally. Northern employment opportunities and Southern injustice compelled a substantial portion of Southern blacks to make their way north, although several thousand rural migrants first tested the urban South. Because the expansion of Birmingham's industrial complex also drew vast numbers of black people from rural Alabama and Georgia into the steel and iron mills, the influx into the already overcrowded and highly segregated metropolis led to a deterioration of living conditions. Moreover, the country's failure to fulfill wartime promises of equality and the renewed militancy of returning war veterans left race relations in Birmingham unusually tense. Compounded by the struggles of black miners during the violent strikes of 1919 and 1920-21, post-war Birmingham could have erupted much like Chicago. Indeed, Authorities anticipated riots in the magic city. Nevertheless, the ways in which post-war black radicalism manifested itself in most of the country were not duplicated in Alabama. Besides immigration schemes that had no apparent connection with the UNIA, Universal Negro Improvement Association, Garveyism had few organized followers among black Alabamians. In 1922, a small group of UNIA adherents lived in Nina and Camden, Alabama, and a handful of North Birmingham residents read the Garveyite tabloid, The Negro World, and contributed funds to the UNIA nationally. 
but there is no evidence that an active chapter ever existed in Birmingham. By 1923, the UNIA had established divisions in Mobile and neighboring Pritchard, Alabama, but these chapters were quite small. In 1926, the Pritchard Division, Alabama's largest UNIA division, reported only 11 dues-paying members. Responding to racial tensions and rising expectations, branches of the NAACP were established in several Alabama cities, including Birmingham, Selma, Uniontown, Blockton, Anniston, Tuscaloosa, and Montgomery. These branches, established by black, middle-class leaders, intended to redirect black resistance toward more respectable avenues. The Birmingham branch, for instance, grew directly out of the Colored Citizens League of Bessemer, an organization of ministers and businessmen founded in 1916. In 1919, the League created a committee on race relations in order to quell potential violence, and out of this post-war committee emerged the Birmingham branch of the NAACP. The NAACP in Alabama could not sustain the immediate post-war enthusiasm for black organization. Although the Birmingham chapter claimed nearly 1,000 members in 1919, in less than three years its membership dropped to a dismal 36, and in 1923 it reported only 14 dues-paying members. Five years later, the branch ceased operating altogether. Similarly, the Montgomery branch, founded in 1918, ballooned to 600 in 1919, only to dwindle to a paltry 43 dues-paying members a year later. Ku Klux Klan intimidation and other forms of repression partly explained the rapid demise of the NAACP during the 1920s, but racial violence notwithstanding, the association's local leadership ignored the problems black working people faced daily. The Birmingham branch's agenda focused more on the city's black business interests than on racial violence, the denial of civil liberties, and the immediate problems confronting the poor. The black middle class's silence was broken briefly in 1926, however, by a black Birmingham schoolteacher named Indiana Little. Six years after white women won the right to vote, Little led a predominantly female crowd of 1,000 to the steps of Jefferson County Courthouse and demanded an immediate end to black disfranchisement. City officials refused to hear her arguments and arrested her for vagrancy. In the final analysis, white middle-class reformism was more concerned with working people's moral behavior than their economic well-being. And black middle-class reformism, with its mild pleas for a junior partnership in democracy, was crushed to earth. Shorn of effective organization, workers approached a new decade on the threshold of economic disaster. The urban South began to feel the effects of the Great Depression as early as 1927, two years before the stock market crash. The Birmingham Trades Council reported an unemployment rate of 18% in February 1928, and between 1926 and 1929, the Jefferson County Red Cross's relief rolls more than doubled. Huge numbers of black and white workers were laid off in 1929 when TCI shut down two blast furnaces in Bessemer. A year later, coal production had reached its lowest level since 1921, 
pig iron output had dropped by over 41%. And to exacerbate an already desperate situation, Jefferson County experienced a surge of migrants hoping to escape rural poverty. And although poor blacks, particularly recent arrivals from the rural areas, had suffered steady economic deterioration since the post-war recession, whites suddenly found themselves faced with similar circumstances. Most striking is the fact that the percentage of white workers on the county relief rolls jumped from 14.5% in 1926 to 32.5% in 1930. By 1930, black and white working people had very little in the way of organizational power. And in the shadow of a decade of Klan violence and racist backlash within the labor movement, the prospects of interracial unity seemed unrealizable. As the effects of the Depression began to take their toll, workers, particularly blacks, had few weapons against plant shutdowns and massive layoffs. Part 1. The Underground, 1929-1935 We was up against some pretty rough terror. Those days was rough. You couldn't pity-pat with people. We had that, that we'd tell people. When you join, it's just like the army. But it's not the army of the bosses. It's the army of the working class, organizing to make things get better. Hosea Hudson with our few pennies that we collected, we ground out leaflets on an old rickety mimeograph machine, which we kept concealed in the home of one of our workers. We were obliged to work very quietly, like the abolitionists in the South during the Civil War, behind drawn shades and locked doors. Angelo Herndon 1. An Invisible Army, Jobs, Relief, and the Birth of a Movement we were the slaves in Pharaoh's land, you and he and I. And we were serfs to feudal hands, now that time's gone by. Prentices in cities, prisoners for debt, hunted vagrants, perish poor. Our life is a lie. We move an invisible army. All of us together. Southern Labor Song, circa 1930s. For communists eager to get on with the task of revolution, the South was a new, mysterious frontier. Arriving in Gastonia, North Carolina, Chattanooga, Tennessee, Greenville, South Carolina, and Birmingham, Alabama, they brought with them the cultural and ideological baggage of a northern, urban-based movement, including assumptions about the backwardness of southern workers. Yet, Gnawing at the edges of their preconceptions was a policy that situated Southern blacks at the heart of the region's revolutionary movement. Following nearly a decade of resolutions and reassessments on the Negro question, in 1928, the Sixth World Congress of the Communist International insisted that blacks concentrated in the Black Belt counties of the Deep South constituted an oppressed nation. This region, dominated by cotton plantations, consisted of counties with a numerical black majority. As an oppressed nation, the resolution maintained, 
African Americans had the right to self-determination, political power, control over the economy, and the right to secede from the United States. In 1930, the resolution was altered to account for the differences between North and South. Northern blacks, the new resolution argued, sought integration and assimilation, and therefore the demand for self-determination was to be applied exclusively to the South. The new position opened a new chapter in CPUSA, Communist Party USA, history. With the possible exceptions of B.H. Lauderdale, a white communist from Beckenbridge, Texas, who tried unsuccessfully to place the Communist Party on the ballot in Mississippi, Louisiana, and Alabama in 1922, and William Z. Foster, who orchestrated a Southern presidential campaign tour in 1928, the party never ventured south before 1929. Apparently unaware of the region's own history of working class and rural radicalism, national communist leaders presumed the south to be an impenetrable bastion of racist conservatism and derided the notion that Southern blacks had their own radical tradition. Communist John Owens opposed bringing Southern blacks into the party because the vast majority of Southern Negroes are not revolutionary, not even radical. Given a society of peace, prosperity, and security, they are content to drift through life. On the other hand, Southerners evaluated Northern radicals through their own ideological lenses. When the communists entered the magic city to extend their form of immigrant, urban, working-class radicalism to the industrial South, they entered a world unaccustomed to reds outside the pale of mythology. Residents became familiar with communism through radio and newspapers or through hearsay and urban folklore. Stories of North Carolina textile strikers were hardly ignored by Southerners, black or white. Popular myths of evil reds wishing only to sow the seeds of discord were intended to neutralize the party's message. But the Depression had hit Alabama so hard that many working people, especially blacks, viewed hunger and joblessness as the greater evil. Thus, for some, the communists were devils incarnate, for others, they were avenging angels. But for all Birminghamians, the CP was a new and strange addition to the Southern landscape. The Central Committee of the CPUSA chose Birmingham, the center of heavy industry in the South, as headquarters for the newly established District 17, encompassing Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Florida, Tennessee, and Mississippi. Located on the fringe of the Black Belt, Birmingham also served as a jumping-off point for the organization of sharecroppers and agricultural workers. The first full-time organizers in Birmingham were Tom Johnson and Harry Jackson, two veteran white communists who had been active trade union organizers in the North. Johnson had worked in Cleveland, and Harry Jackson had spent considerable time as a longshoreman in San Francisco. The precise moment of their arrival is rather hazy, but they were visibly active late in 1929, having established contact with Italian metalworker James Giglio before arriving. Giglio had earlier written to the CP-led Tool, 
Trade Union Unity League in New York, and shortly thereafter established a Birmingham chapter of the Metal Workers Industrial League. Through Giglio, Johnson met with black TCI workers in Ensley, an industrial suburb of Birmingham, and subsequently recruited the first Communist Party unit at a street corner meeting in a black section of town. The party even opened an office downtown, 2117 and a half 2nd Avenue North, though its presence was brief. A few weeks later, on March 23, 1930, the TOOL held its first mass meeting. Some 200 participants, about three-quarters of whom were black, piled into the Joy Boys Dance Hall in downtown Birmingham to hear speeches by Giglio, Tom Johnson, and Walter Lewis, a newly recruited black steelworker from Montgomery. The meeting went without incident, but within days, Giglio's home was firebombed. The bombing was enough to convince party leaders to lie low for the next two months. Meanwhile, the Central Committee dispatched an additional veteran organizer to strengthen the Birmingham cadre. Fresh from a year in the Soviet Union, the 24-year-old New York-born Frank Burns had been an active communist since 1926. Bolstered by Burns' appointment, the party resumed its organizing efforts with a mass meeting on May 22nd, at which Tom Johnson delivered a poignant address before a sympathetic and predominantly black crowd of over 200. Citing examples of recent lynchings in Georgia and Texas to excoriate Southern racism, Johnson proposed the idea of black self-determination in the black belt advocated social and economic equality for blacks, and was reported to have lauded the Soviet government. The other two speakers, Burns and Walter Lewis, called for the abolition of segregation in the city's cafes and public transportation, and strongly condemned racism as the stumbling block to improving all workers' lives. The meeting made a lasting impression on several participants, including an 18-year-old black coal miner named Angelo Herndon, whose incarceration for organizing black and white workers in Atlanta two years later would make him one of the most celebrated black communists in the country. Born on May 6, 1913, in the steel and coal mining town of Wyoming, Ohio, Herndon and his 13 brothers and sisters grew up amid poverty. Herndon's mother, a very religious woman who had hoped young Angelo would choose the ministry as his livelihood, was left alone to care for 14 children after the death of her husband. At age 13, Herndon and one of his brothers left home in search of jobs, eventually finding work in the coal mines of Birmingham. The grueling labor and unfair practices of coal operators ignited a number of confrontations between groups of workers and foremen, encounters that would eventually play a significant role in Herndon's radicalization. Persuaded by the party's commitment to social justice and racial equality, Herndon joined the Communists and quickly became one of Birmingham's most active organizers. As the summer approached, Communists moved their gatherings from indoor halls to outdoor parks. In May, about 700 blacks and 100 whites gathered in Capitol Park to demand relief for unemployed workers and to protest the recent arrests of six communists in Atlanta. 
The organizers then led an impromptu march to the Birmingham Community Chest headquarters to demand immediate relief, but were turned away by nearly 100 police officers. The incident prompted City Commissioner Jimmy Jones to conduct a full-scale investigation into radical activities and to introduce a strict criminal anarchy ordinance to curb communism. Passed unanimously by the City Commission on June 17, 1930, the new ordinance made it unlawful for anyone to advocate criminal anarchy by print or word of mouth or to be a member of an organization which does so. Conviction could result in fines up to $100 and 180 days in jail. In defiance of the new ordinance, the Communists held an open meeting to elect delegates to the National Convention on Unemployment in Chicago. And a few days later, a group of 250 black workers attended a demonstration in Capitol Park. The party's disregard of the new law, compounded by heightened racial tensions surrounding black congressman Oscar de Priest's announced visit to Birmingham, induced greater police repression. During a demonstration in Wilson Park, held on June 28, city detectives arrested several communists, including leading black organizer Gilbert Lewis, charging them with advocating social equality between whites and Negroes. Earlier that day, Tom Johnson and Oscar de Priest were burned in effigy by a mob of whites. Throughout the summer, Birmingham police invoked the criminal anarchy ordinance to arrest known activists and raid the homes of black workers suspected of possessing radical literature. Although the arrests led to few convictions and the charges were usually dropped or reduced to vagrancy violations, the constant harassment took its toll on party work. Conceding that the repression in the South was much greater than elsewhere, the District Bureau formulated plans for creating armed and unarmed defense corps in Birmingham and Chattanooga. The unarmed groups were to be trained in street fighting tactics to protect demonstrators and delay police, while the select armed corps was supposed to protect organizers in mining camps and other isolated areas. Although the armed defense corps were apparently never activated, communist leaders kept firearms for self-defense and occasionally pawned them when funds were low. When police raids failed to turn up documents, guns were often confiscated. In the midst of heightened police repression, the party initiated a southern-based radical weekly and established a workers' school for its new recruits. At the behest of the Central Committee, 24-year-old James S. Allen, nay Saul Auerbach, left his post as editor of the Labor Defender, the journal of the ILD, International Labor Defense, and traveled south with his wife and comrade, Isabel Allen, and a paltry sum of $200 to launch The Southern Worker. Datelined Birmingham, in order to confuse police, it was originally published in Chattanooga, where anti-communist repression was not as great. The first issue of The Southern Worker appeared on August 16, 1930. Selling for two cents a copy, 3,000 copies were printed and distributed throughout Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia, and the Carolinas. Allen's first editorial statement described the new publication as a paper of and for both the white and black workers and farmers. It recognizes only one division, 
the bosses against the workers, and the workers against the bosses. The only way to achieve the demands of the working class, he reasoned, was through proletarian revolution. Surprisingly, the editorial statement did not mention the party's position on self-determination in the Black Belt, and it contained very little discussion regarding the specific struggles of African Americans. The paper's credo notwithstanding, so much space was devoted to the problems of black working people that southern-born white communists occasionally commented on the paper's perceived pro-black bias. In a letter to the editor, one white party member complained that he could not sell subscriptions for a paper that devotes 90% of its news to Negroes and 10% to whites. Allen had good reason to devote more space to black working people. From the beginning, Birmingham blacks exhibited a greater interest in the party than did whites. The communists' original cadre of three organizers in 1929 was augmented to over 90 by the end of August 1930, and over 500 working people populated the party's mass organizations, of whom between 80 and 90 percent were black. There was little doubt in the minds of district organizers that Negroes are the decisive strata among the toiling masses in the South. During the 1930 election campaign, the Communist Party did what no political party had done in Alabama since Reconstruction. It endorsed a black candidate, Walter Lewis, for governor. The election platform included complete racial equality and maintained that the exercise of self-determination in the black belt was the only way to end lynching and achieve political rights for Southern blacks. Alarmed by the Communist Party's growing support among black working people, leading white citizens and government officials temporarily breathed a sigh of relief when a congressional committee to investigate communist propaganda under Congressman Hamilton Fish decided to hold hearings in Birmingham. Predictably, as the communists in Birmingham assailed the hearings as part of a sustained effort to outlaw the CP, local authorities and the press expressed confidence that the Fish Committee would end the radical menace once and for all. The hearings intensified anti-communist hysteria, as various witnesses described the intricate workings of a secret, foreign-led movement whose predominantly black ranks numbered up to 8,000 strong in Alabama alone. In retrospect, these exaggerations are astounding since the Birmingham CP possessed just over 100 members at the time. The publicity surrounding the hearings did not hinder the party's growth that fall. Party units were established in three metal shops, in a mine, and on a cotton plantation some 40 miles north of Birmingham, and communists employed by the U.S. Pipe Company began publishing a shop newsletter entitled The Red Hammer. By late 1930, the party had spread beyond the borders of Jefferson County and gained a few adherents among white farmers and miners in the northern Alabama counties of Coleman, Winston, Walker, St. Clair, Morgan, and Marshall, a region with a Republican, populist, and to a lesser degree, socialist tradition. In January 1931, Tom Johnson helped a group of Coleman County farmers form the Alabama Farmers Relief Fund, 
an affiliate of the communist-led United Farmers League in North Dakota. And within two months, at least nine small locals were scattered throughout the state. At the 7th National Convention in June 1930, party leaders elected to postpone the ambitious industrial organizing drive in Alabama in favor of a campaign that would focus on the immediate needs of the jobless. Central Committee, as well as local party leaders, realized that, because of recent plant closures, the pressing need for work or relief eclipsed all other issues affecting Birmingham workers. The demand for jobs was so great that numerous independent efforts were launched by industrialists and middle-class organizations to relieve the situation. In addition to sponsoring public works projects, in 1930, the Chamber of Commerce worked out a plan through which meal tickets redeemable at participating restaurants could be purchased by needy citizens. The League of Women Voters instituted a clean-up, paint-up, repair-up campaign in an attempt to relieve unemployment, but these efforts did little to remedy the situation. There was, however, one organized effort generated from the working class itself that was independent of, and even hostile to, the Communist Party. In April 1930, white labor organizer John Bago formed an all-white unemployed organization with about 100 members. When one of its members suggested a march on City Hall to demand $50,000 from the Board of Revenue, Bago opposed the idea, labeling such a march communistic. Having achieved nothing tangible, the organization disbanded within a few months. As the winter approached, the CP stepped up its own relief campaign by holding a series of demonstrations to draw attention to the plight of the jobless. In preparation for a rally in Capitol Park in September, local communists issued a leaflet that spoke directly to Birmingham's growing number of homeless. White and colored workers are being evicted from their homes and thrown out on the streets to shift for themselves. Gas and water is being cut off because the unemployed workers cannot pay their bills. Although police arrested organizers Angelo Herndon and Tom Johnson on the day of the rally, a large and restive crowd of blacks gathered and remained in Capitol Park until police turned them away. A few weeks later, the Metal Workers Industrial League planned a mass meeting of unemployed steelworkers in Ansley to demand immediate relief and end to evictions, free light and heat for the city's jobless, and to reaffirm their support for a communist-sponsored social insurance bill that proposed minimum cash assistance of $25 per week to all unemployed workers. Under the slogan, Organize and Fight, Don't Starve, the League drew an estimated 2,500 steelworkers, but the meeting was postponed after its principal speaker, Harry Jackson, was detained by police. One of the more dramatic instances of mass confrontation occurred on December 16, 1930. Joe Burton, an 18-year-old black YCL, Young Communist League, activist, led a spontaneous demonstration of workers who had congregated at a bridge construction site seeking work. Burton persuaded the crowd, which had grown to nearly 5,000, according to party sources, 
to storm the lobby of the Hotel Morris and demand jobs or immediate relief, but police intervened and dispersed the gathering. The vast majority of Birmingham poor probably thought the communists were fighting a lost cause. The political and financial power of the city's corporate interests seemed unassailable to most people, and the militants with which the communists challenged authority might have appeared suicidal. The Depression certainly devastated most working families, but economic need alone did not drive large numbers of unemployed into the arms of the Communist Party. Sons and daughters of the land, many black workers had lived through winters as sharecroppers with few resources available and had learned dozens of creative methods of survival. In addition to performing odd jobs in exchange for food, obtaining grocery store throwaways, selling roasted peanuts on the streets, and hauling and selling firewood, coal was appropriated from the mines and railroads and sold or used as fuel. Empty homes were occasionally torn apart by the poor, desperately in need of fuel. Individuals who might not have benefited directly from the stolen wood took advantage of the vacancies by obtaining free rent in exchange for protecting some landlord's private property. Urban cultivation was the most common survival strategy, as both a source of additional food as well as cash income. During the Depression, one Birmingham woman recalls, everybody had chickens, hogs, and a garden. Urban gardens proliferated rapidly during the Depression. In Jefferson County, the number of farms increased 94% between 1930 and 1935, yet the average size per farm decreased from 53.4 acres to 30.6 acres. Jobless and underemployed workers invested in various forms of livestock, from milk cows to pigs, and plots of land were cultivated, ranging in size from small vegetable gardens to 30 or 40 acre farms. Cultivation generally took place on company property in the coal and ore mines, as well as in the industrial suburbs and back alleys. A 1934 study of Birmingham's working-class communities located 7,595 pigs and 1,996 cows within the city limits, the vast majority belonging to black families. These methods of survival kept some families off the relief rolls, but for most unemployed or workers whose hours had been cut back substantially, welfare was also a necessary supplement. TCI's elaborate welfare system, established just before the outbreak of World War I, was extremely limited. Workers paid all health care expenses through monthly fees levied on their paychecks, and although TCI provided unemployed relief, such assistance had to be paid back. Employees unable to pay rent on company-owned homes were not automatically evicted. The accumulated rent payments were deferred to a later date and heat, electricity, and water were cut off immediately. In an effort to curtail unemployment, the City Commission proposed a $500,000 bond issue early in 1931 to create employment opportunities through public works projects. The 1,200 jobs it created, however, paid only 25 cents an hour for three eight-hour days. The City's relief program, in the eyes of one black worker, 
was worse than slavery. In slavery times, I am told, the master would put good shirts and overalls on you, and today we can't even eat on $6 a week. The communists assailed the plan as a scheme to cut wages that would result in a bureaucratic haven for graft and corruption. In its place, the party called for a government relief program that would provide the unemployed with a weekly minimum of $10 cash relief, free coal, car fare, and a minimum of $20 per week for city relief jobs, and would protect the jobless from evictions and utilities shutoffs. Municipal and county governments' inadequate resources left the Red Cross to bear the brunt of Birmingham's relief needs. Its monthly expenditures increased from $6,000 in 1929 to $180,000 by July 1933, and the number of cases rose from 450 in 1929 to 20,914 in 1933. The Red Cross's caseload was supposed to have been transferred back to city and county governments in 1930, but the city could not afford the burden, and county officials refused the undertaking. The paltry $1,000 monthly subsidy offered by the city did little to relieve the Red Cross's burden. Birmingham's unemployed found little beneficence working for the Red Cross, whose public improvement projects involved demolishing abandoned buildings, rebuilding rural schools, draining lowland areas, and gardening. In a letter to the Daily Worker, a black Birmingham worker complained that the Red Cross boss stands with a pistol over us while we work, like we are prisoners working out a term. These conditions were compounded by the fact that the Red Cross's relief payments were among the lowest in the country. To make matters worse, by August 1932, the Birmingham Red Cross had stopped providing cash relief altogether, offering only food, fuel, and medication. Throughout the spring and summer of 1931, the party and the unemployed councils held a series of demonstrations against the Red Cross in North Birmingham, calling for a complete boycott of the Birmingham community chest. The unemployed councils also sent a communication to the governor and the state legislature criticizing the Red Cross's efforts as inadequate and demanding that the issue of unemployment relief take precedence over all questions before the legislature. The council's leaders requested, among other things, free utilities for all unemployed and underemployed workers, provisions for opening all schools and free lunch for schoolchildren, and the right to vote without restrictions and irrespective of race. Having little faith in petitions and boycotts, communists organized neighborhood relief committees to present their demands to the Birmingham Welfare Board and to deal with members' specific grievances on an individual basis. These committees also fought evictions and foreclosures, but unlike militants in New York or Chicago, they tried to avoid confrontations with authorities by adopting more evasive tactics, ranging from flooding landlords with postcards and letters to simple reasoning. Representatives of the unemployed councils often dissuaded landlords from evicting their tenants 
by describing the potential devastation that could occur once an abandoned house became a free-for-all for firewood. When a family's electricity was shut off for non-payment, activists from the unemployed council frequently used heavy-gauge copper wires as jumpers to appropriate electricity from public outlets or other homes. Council members also found ways to reactivate water mains after they had been turned off, though the process was more complicated than pilfering electricity. And in at least one instance, a group of black women used verbal threats to stop a city employee from turning off one family's water supplies. Women frequently assumed leadership in the neighborhood relief committees, usually because the economic downturn directly impinged upon their designated roles as mothers, housewives, and workers. Black female domestics experienced layoffs, speed-ups, employers used the threat of competition to extract more work over less time, and wage cuts because of overall cutbacks in the use of paid household labor and the increasing utilization of labor-saving devices. Without the benefit of sick pay, vacations, or regular hours, some women toiled in white kitchens for as low as $1.50 to $2 per week. Wages were so low during the 1930s that many women earned just enough to pay their rent and lived day-to-day on the food they toted from their employers' kitchens. According to the 1930 census, approximately 82% of or 16,000 black female wage earners were engaged in domestic services. And in 1935, at least 8,000 black female domestic workers had registered with the Alabama Employment Service. The lack of domestic work was compounded by the dearth of employment opportunities for women. Dominated by the steel, iron ore, and coal mining industries of the Birmingham Bessemer Industrial Complex, most other avenues for employment were closed to black and white working women. Because most black working-class families relied on two incomes, women usually combined wage labor and housework. As conditions worsened, the burden of providing for their families increasingly fell upon the shoulders of women especially black single mothers in the city. With few job opportunities and the burden of child-rearing, women were more dependent than men on various forms of private and public relief. Moreover, some husbands chose to leave so that their families might receive more relief because of domestic conflict or, in some cases, because they were simply tired of the responsibility. The neighborhood relief committees became the key organizations for attracting black women to the CP. Helen Longs, a cleaning woman in a furniture store and a mother, joined the party because of its opposition to the Red Cross. Estelle Milner, a young black schoolteacher in Birmingham, became a communist through her work with the urban and rural poor. In addition to organizing sharecroppers in Tallapoosa County, she led a group of Birmingham women who fought for reforms in public health care. This cadre of women radicals, which included other leaders such as Cornelia Foreman, Alice Mosley, and an elderly bookkeeper named Addie Adkins, won the admiration of their neighbors and comrades. 
communist organizer and novelist Myra Page described this group of black Birmingham women who fought to get them women out of their kitchens in a series of short stories published in the communist newspaper, Working Woman. The struggle for welfare and other forms of relief also attracted a tiny group of working-class white women to the unemployed councils and subsequently into the ranks of the CP. Alabama-born communist Mary Leonard succeeded in bringing together a group of five white women under the auspices of the unemployed councils that confronted officials at the city's welfare board and won several demands, including food, clothing, and medical attention for the families of several unemployed whites. Food and supplies were not the only issues in the women's fight against the Red Cross and city welfare. Birmingham relief applicants resented the social workers' harsh, condescending manner, and many demanded to be accorded dignity and respect. Perhaps the worst aspect of relief was dealing with investigators who visited homes unannounced to determine whether an applicant was truly in need. Red Cross and city welfare officials occasionally required applicants to sell personal belongings considered superfluous, such as radios, watches, clothes, or new furniture. Possession of too much food or a large garden could result in an immediate cancellation of assistance. One Birmingham resident remembers the demeaning practice in which investigators would look in your sugar, look in your trunk, in your wheelbarrow, all the way through the house, see if you had anything hid. Welfare agents often enlisted the help of residents willing to spy on their neighbors in exchange for a larger grocery order or a few more pounds of coal. But hiding groceries, livestock, and personal items from relief authorities was necessary for survival. Black Party leaders, most of whom were on the relief rolls themselves, understood the importance of this tactic in the black community. Communist-led vigilance committees were created to visit suspected stool pigeons and strongly advised them to cease their activities. If this tactic failed, Hosea Hudson recalls, we started to bombard them with postcards. This practice characterized most radical opposition in Birmingham. Dramatic marches popularized the struggle for relief and no doubt applied some pressure on welfare authorities to provide meaningful assistance to the poor, but more individualized forms of resistance, or oppositional practices, proved to be effective weapons of the weak in everyday life. Local communists sustained this individualized tradition in a collective setting by defending the community's right to hide food and personal items. They confronted not the welfare agent, but the collaborator. The party's fight against inadequate relief measures and expanding unemployment brought a few hundred workers into its ever-widening circle but there were other critical areas for rank-and-file involvement that had nothing to do with obtaining food. The communist-led ILD attracted national attention for its defense of nine young black men accused of raping two white women near Paint Rock, Alabama, in March 1931. The campaign to free the Scottsboro Boys boosted party popularity in Birmingham's black communities almost overnight, 
About the same time, communists began organizing a union of black sharecroppers and poor farmers in the eastern Piedmont counties of rural Alabama. The union's involvement in a gun battle with police in Tallapoosa County contributed immensely to the Alabama Party's national reputation. As these activities became front-page news, ordinary black workers, skeptical of white radical promises, began to take a second look at the Communist Party, the ILD, and the Neighborhood Relief Committees. The Scottsboro Campaign and the Unemployed Movement attracted precisely the kind of local leaders that were needed to strengthen the party's ties with the black community. Al Murphy, who proved to be an exceptionally adept organizer, joined the CP and the YCL in 1930. Born in 1908 to poor sharecropping parents in McRae, Georgia, Murphy was raised for the most part by his grandparents after his father died, although his mother continued to support him on meager earnings from domestic work and cotton picking. He grew up in a strongly religious and race-conscious household. His grandfather, an African Methodist Episcopal minister, had been a presiding elder under Bishop Henry McNeil Turner, a nationally prominent advocate of black immigration to Africa. And his grandmother also became a self-made Methodist minister. As a teenager, he moved in with his aunt and uncle in Tuscaloosa and made his living digging ditches, picking cotton, unloading coal, and working in a pipe foundry handling dangerous, corrosive chemicals. In 1923, Murphy moved to Birmingham only to find more back-breaking labor and low wages. This life did not squash his long-term aspirations, however. He enrolled in night school to continue his education, which had come to an abrupt halt in the fourth grade, so that he could pursue a career as a public speaker and carve a niche for himself in the limited area of Negro politics. When the Depression hit Birmingham, he recalled, I had to stop night school and join workers on the bread lines. Then one autumn Sunday morning in 1930, he noticed a leaflet which read, Stop lynching. Full rights for the Negro people. Down with imperialist war. Shortly thereafter, Frank Williams, his friend and recent communist recruit, escorted Murphy to a local unemployed meeting that so impressed him he joined that night. Murphy subsequently immersed himself in party work, attending Marxist education classes regularly and recruiting black steelworkers at the Stockham plant in Birmingham on behalf of the TUUL. Among those Murphy recruited from the Stockham plant was Hosea Hudson, a fellow iron worker born in Wilkes County, Georgia, in 1898, whose early life resembled Murphy's in many ways. Hudson, too, grew up in an extended family consisting of his mother, brother, and grandmother in rural Georgia. After his mother remarried in 1913 and left the family, 15-year-old Hosea took up sharecropping to support his remaining family members. He married in 1917 and continued sharecropping nearly debt-free until the boll weevil wiped out his crop in 1921. Failing to secure steady employment in Atlanta in 1923, Hudson and his family moved to Birmingham, where he found work as an iron molder at the Stockham Foundry. Like Murphy and Angelo Herndon, Hudson had no trade union experience before the 1930s, but possessed a strong personal intolerance for racial injustice. And also like Murphy, Hudson was the ideological product of elders who lived through the revolutionary times of Reconstruction. 
I always did resent injustice in the way they used to treat Negroes, he recalls. My grandmother used to talk about these things. She was very militant herself, you know. Hudson tried to organize fellow employees independently in the late 1920s, but when members could not agree on the organization's purpose and direction, he abandoned the idea. After having ignored the CP in Birmingham for over a year, Hudson's interest in communism was suddenly piqued by the Scottsboro case. Sympathetic to the defendants and the efforts of the ILD, Hudson enthusiastically accepted Murphy's cautious invitation to explore what the party had to offer, and at a meeting in September 1931, he and everyone else in attendance opted to join the Communist Party. Through the efforts of individuals such as Hudson and Murphy, the circle widened to include Andy Brown, Joe Howard, Saul Davis, John and David James, Mac Code, Henry O. Mayfield, John Bidle, and other stalwarts who later became respected party organizers and labor leaders. All of these individuals had southern rural roots, limited education, and were unskilled or semi-skilled laborers in Birmingham's coal and steel industry. They were all very active in their respective churches, and some, particularly Hudson, Bidle, and Mayfield, participated in local gospel quartets. The higher echelons of party leadership also underwent significant changes during this period. In 1931, district organizer Tom Johnson left Alabama for health reasons, and Harry Jackson stepped in to take his place. Based mainly in Chattanooga, Jackson spent much of his time traveling from place to place, overseeing local party work. But early in 1932, District 17 was reconstructed under the leadership of Nat Ross and Ted Wellman. Unlike Johnson and Jackson, Ross and Wellman were intellectuals in the formal sense of the word. The New York-born Wellman, who adopted the name Sid Benson during his tenure in Birmingham, was remembered by a sympathetic Alabamian professor for his Marxian interpretation of a Haydn symphony. Born of Russian-Jewish background and a graduate of Columbia University, Nat Ross had briefly attended Harvard Law School and initiated work toward a doctorate at Columbia, before joining the party in 1929. After working as an organizer in southern Illinois for a while, he was sent to Birmingham. A rigid theoretician, Ross restructured the party according to Leninist principles of organization. Unbending discipline and regular meetings were the order of the day. Unlike the black women who rose to crucial middle-level leadership positions, white women communists, for the most part, were relegated to mimeograph machines and occasional public speaking. Soon after joining the Communist Party in Chicago, Alice Burke followed her husband, Donald Burke, to Birmingham, where he had been appointed regional secretary of the ILD. Arriving in the spring of 1932, she was described as a local party leader in press reports, but in reality she had no role in the district committee and was practically excluded from decision-making. I was just a wife, she recalls, and I went where the husband was assigned to. I had no role at all except as a rank-and-file Jimmy Higgins worker. Nevertheless, she made tremendous sacrifices for the party that were hardly acknowledged. For instance, although Burke was arrested along with Wirt Taylor in November 1932 and served eight weeks in a Birmingham jail, 
she was not mentioned in communist press reports that detail Taylor's heroic struggle for freedom. But perhaps her biggest sacrifice occurred when she had to send her newborn daughter to California for three years to live with her sister because of the dangers Birmingham communists faced daily. White women rarely challenged their designated roles within the party during the early 1930s, but there were some who ignored conventions, both within communist circles and society as a whole, and in some ways exhibited an incipient feminist consciousness. Two leading Southern-born female iconoclasts in the party, Mary Leonard and Jane Speed, ironically were products of two different social worlds. Mary Leonard, born and raised of working-class background and the widow of a local druggist, carved out her own leadership position through her powerful speaking ability and by building a small base of support among poor white housewives. The heavyset and outspoken Leonard, whose confrontational and cavalier attitude toward police and government officials often made her comrades nervous, was also remembered for her unconventional private life. I don't think she was married, Alice Burke recalled, but she'd date other people. I would say she was too forward. Jane Speed, on the other hand, described in The Daily Worker as a handsome, auburn-haired girl with an appearance so demure you'd never guess the militant struggles in which she has taken part, was known to be far more discreet privately and less threatening to her male comrades. She was immediately accepted within leadership circles because she had the presentation of an educated person an important attribute in a Marxist organization comprised largely of illiterate and semi-literate working people. Born to a very wealthy Southern family, Jane and her mother, Mary Martin Craik Speed, known affectionately as Dolly, became active in left-wing circles while Jane was a student in Vienna, Austria in the late 1920s. After returning to Alabama in 1931, the 21-year-old nouveau radical devoted her energy to the American CP, organizing black and white unemployed in the streets of Birmingham and daily challenging her designation as a Southern Belle. In light of the anti-Semitism, xenophobia, and discrimination many European immigrants experienced upon their arrival in Birmingham, communists might have expected substantial support from the city's Italian, Jewish, Greek, and Slavic populations. During the 1920s, Italians and Jews were victims of Klan attacks, and some Bulgarian and Greek coal miners earned less than blacks during the early part of the century. Moreover, the Russian-Jewish emigres who brought to America, particularly New York, radical traditions incubated by the 1905 revolution were conspicuously silent in Birmingham. While discrimination and ghettoization sometimes contributed to ethnic radicalization in other urban areas, Birmingham was unique in that these ethnic groups had greater opportunities for upward social mobility. Italians, for instance, moved into family-owned groceries with relative ease, tapping a black, working-class consumer market anxious to escape company commissaries. By the 1930s, Italians operated some 300 grocery stores in the Birmingham area. Jews, too, climbed the economic ladder rather swiftly, although they were denied access to the mainstream bourgeoisie's social institutions 
and thus remained sort of a pariah middle class. Equally important is the fact that racist and anti-communist propaganda hindered potential Jewish support because their well-being and continued upward mobility often depended on their willingness to distance themselves from blacks, and the anti-Semitic overtones of Southern red-baiting forced the Jewish community to reject radicalism in any form as an act of self-preservation. The few Southern whites who entered the communist rank and file during this period, if for only a fleeting moment, were usually unemployed industrial workers from the Birmingham district and coal miners and poor farmers from northern Alabama who had a tradition of voting Republican, Populist, and Socialist. In fact, about one-fifth of the Communist vote in 1932 came from northern counties. Many of these supporters, especially the poor upcountry farmers, had little tolerance for African Americans and exhibited a kind of populist, class-oriented view of their problems. Their opposition to the planter class and the big mules, combined with the crises created by the Depression, momentarily outweighed their racism. In fact, several white recruits were reportedly former KKK members. These Klansmen gone red, along with other Southern whites who exhibited racial prejudice, grudgingly conceded that blacks had to be organized in order to improve their own conditions. As a white Birmingham steelworker succinctly put it at a party unit meeting in 1931, we got to get together and organize the niggas and whites into one strong general union. The party's primary focus on African Americans, for the most part, alienated native white sympathizers. A former member of the Socialist Party who joined the Communists in 1930 argued that if the party concentrated exclusively on whites, they would carry the whole South in the elections. This was not just a tactical suggestion, however. After the proletarian revolution, he explained, black people would have to be disciplined for 50 years since the Negro has just emerged from serfdom. Needless to say, the author of this letter was summarily expelled. As an organization militantly anti-racist and consciously interracial, the party initially rejected or expelled whites who exhibited racial prejudice. By 1932, Nat Ross was highly critical of this policy. The most important reason for the party's failure among whites, Ross argued, was its refusal to accept in our mass organization white workers who still had traces of race prejudice. Ross believed that joint action between blacks and whites would illustrate to white workers the merits of interracial unity and, in the process, break the prejudice of the southern white workers. But the policy was not very successful, for as Clyde Johnson recalled, when Ross and Ted Wellman assigned white southerners to direct a unit in a black neighborhood, these white organizers were usually ostracized by their friends and neighbors thus forcing them to choose between the party and continued social acceptance within their own communities. Southern whites were not only expected to change their lives and attitudes practically overnight, but Northern communists' condescending and sometimes insensitive attitude towards Southerners probably contributed to their high turnover. In 
at a district committee meeting, for example, Tom Johnson warned those in attendance not to forget that the workers from the South are backward, and we must not be too harsh in our dealings with them. And more than one local organizer cringed upon reading James Allen's A Historical Passage. Gone are the days of silence. The weary backs of the Southern masses no longer bend meekly. New on the fighting front, they have not yet advanced to the organizational stage of Northern labor. On the other hand, few white Alabamians even entertained the idea of becoming communists. Anti-communist propaganda, rooted in popular myths and indisputably couched in the language of race, proved a mighty deterrent to Southern white support for the CP. Social equality was such a potent, all-encompassing anti-communist slogan that the party's demand for black self-determination, with its separatist implication, was surprisingly ignored in the Southern press or in the various forms of Southern anti-communist propaganda. The cry of social equality, with all its multiple, specifically sexual, meanings and apparent ambiguities, was particularly effective because it symbolized the ultimate threat to white supremacy, class power, civilization, and Southern rulers' most precious property, white women. Headlines appeared in Birmingham's newspapers that read, Communists tell Negroes to force social equality throughout the South, or Negroes are urged to get social equality. Leaders of the Birmingham Trades and Labor Council responded similarly, using the local labor press to wage an all-out war against communism. The labor advocate labeled communists agitators from Moscow who openly preach social equality for the black race. Any man who seeks to disturb the relations between the races is a dangerous character and should be squelched now. The Fish Committee hearings held in 1930 provide a window into the dominant beliefs many white Birmingham residents held with respect to communism. Everyone who testified at the Birmingham hearing agreed that the quintessential crime perpetrated by the Reds was the stirring up of race antagonisms. Witnesses argued forcefully that the doctrine of communism was tantamount to social equality and that its perpetrators were all foreign-born Jews exploiting black ignorance. In their quest to prove the conspiratorial nature of the Communist Party in Birmingham, much of the testimony bordered on the absurd. Klansman John G. Murphy claimed Ohio-born communist Angelo Herndon was half Chinese and half Negro and State Investigator Ahmed Mundo testified that Frank Burns' real name was Shan Tai Ng, a direct descendant of a man by the name of Ng, who was one of a group of 21 headed by Leon Trotsky. Mundo further concurred with others that the party had planned a violent insurrection in Birmingham and, with their unlimited funds, had purchased the necessary hardware. The Chairman you say the Communist Party had shipped tear gas bombs? Mr. Mundo. Yes, sir. The Chairman. What makes you believe that? Mr. Mundo. A shipment was received here by one of the express companies about the last of August, and it was labeled tear gas bombs. 
and came from one of the dealers in obsolete government supplies in Washington. The popular perception of communists as foreigners and nigger lovers, whose sole purpose was to wage a race war in the South, created a huge barrier between these northern white idealists and Alabama's white working-class communities. No matter how many white Southerners agreed with the party's program, the Reds were still outsiders who had no roots among white Alabamians. Herein lies a strange irony. The Central Committee dispatched white communists from the North to organize working people in a highly segregated environment but because the movement attracted overwhelming numbers of black working people, it was virtually impossible to develop and sustain close contacts with their constituency. Southern whites, with whom they could more easily meet because they shared the same social space and faced fewer legal hurdles, rejected and even attacked the Communist Party. Members of Birmingham's white cadre were essentially social pariahs in the white community, yet social and legal sanctions hampered personal relations with their black comrades. Thus, two separate parties were formed, a large, broad-based organization of southern blacks and a tiny cadre of northern whites, supported by a few local people which met together occasionally in secret hideaways or in streets and parks during open demonstrations. As the harsh winter of 1931-32 gave way to spring, it became increasingly clear that the party's future was directly tied to black working people, particularly the unemployed. In May, Hosea Hudson, Joe Howard, and Andy Brown led a mass march of some 200 dissatisfied black relief workers who had been forced by local social workers to perform laborious road work in exchange for relief. Between 125 and 150 showed up for the three-mile march, but toward the end their numbers began to dwindle and only about 50 marchers arrived on the steps of City Hall. An elected committee of six headed by black YCL leader Joe Burton, was intercepted by police when they tried to meet with city commissioner Jimmy Jones. The crowd eventually dispersed after Burton was knocked down by several officers and guns were drawn on the crowd. Bloodied and staggering, Burton declared the communists would return, next time with larger numbers. Several months later, local communists made good on Burton's promise the November 7th demonstration was the largest communist-led demonstration in Alabama's history, attracting an overwhelmingly black crowd of five to 7,000. As people gathered outside the Jefferson County Courthouse, Wirt Taylor, a white Birmingham-born communist, and Alice Burke were carted away by police. The arrests failed to dampen the enthusiasm of the growing crowd, which was dominated by a vocal group of black women carrying baskets, bags, and the belief that food would be distributed to the protesters. Mary Lidard led an interracial delegation to meet with Jimmy Jones and present the unemployed council's demands for food and cash relief and unrestricted voting rights for all citizens. Jones, who was surrounded by police officers, 
ignored the delegation's demands and merely questioned Leonard as to whether or not she believed in social equality. When she replied that blacks were just as good as you and I, Jones asked the group to leave, and the police began to disperse the crowd outside. Three weeks later, crowds once again gathered in front of the courthouse steps to demonstrate against starvation and unemployment. Under the auspices of the National Committee of Unemployed Councils, several thousand Negro and white workers, according to party sources, attended a meeting to greet Column 6 of the National Hunger Marchers who had left from New Orleans en route to the national demonstration in Washington, D.C. Following a brief outbreak of violence between police and demonstrators, keynote speaker Alice Mosley, a young black communist organizer from the industrial suburb of Greenwood, was arrested along with two unidentified black men who were in the audience. These mass demonstrations also coincided with the party's election campaign. For the first time in their history, the communists were able to register with Jefferson County and state registrars and have their candidates officially placed on the ballot. In addition to campaigning on behalf of the party's presidential candidates, William Z. Foster and his running mate, James Ford, the Birmingham cadre put up their own congressional candidates. The two communist candidates were Lee Parsons, a black worker who ran for Birmingham's 9th Congressional District seat, and Andrew Forsman, a veteran white radical who made a bid for the Senate. A pioneer organizer for the Knights of Labor, Forsman had run for senator a decade earlier on the socialist ticket and for a brief moment had served as the president of the Mobile Trades Council. While Parsons's candidacy was probably looked upon with great interest by the mass of disfranchised blacks, the party's vice presidential candidate, James Ford, probably had even greater appeal, since he was also a native of Alabama and a former steelworker who had earned a degree from Fisk University. Obtaining votes, however, was clearly not the objective of the campaign. Voting, one leaflet explained, would not lead to workers' empowerment. That could only come through the direct seizure of factories, mines, and warehouses, and self-determination for African Americans in the Black Belt. Calling for working-class unity across racial lines, the party's campaign focused mainly on the plight of Southern blacks who were treated just like dogs by the bosses. While the platform demanded self-determination in the Black Belt, the central thrust was black-white unity. It is clear there is only one way out of hunger and death, and that is to break down the walls of segregation, Jim Crowism, and lynching by a united front of all poor people, white and colored, against the bosses and landlords for bread and freedom. In October, Birmingham's radicals hosted a communist campaign meeting to be addressed by none other than William Z. Foster. Some leading white citizens regarded Foster's appearance as an indication that Birmingham was becoming a target for a communist takeover. City Commissioner Jimmy Jones tried to comfort one concerned citizen who feared the consequences of Foster's presence by assuring that if the communist leader makes any remarks that are in violation of the law, he will be arrested while in Birmingham, 
The Klan sent Foster a chilling warning in the form of a brief telegram, stating, Your presence in Birmingham, Alabama, Sunday, October 9th, is not wanted. Send nigger forward. By the time the telegram arrived, however, Foster had already postponed his campaign tour because of illness. Clarence Hathaway, then the editor of the Daily Worker and secretary of the National Communist Election Campaign Committee, continued Foster's whirlwind tour of the South, speaking in Tennessee, Georgia, Louisiana, Kentucky, and Florida. Scheduled to address a Birmingham meeting on October 9th, Hathaway was detained by the police in New Orleans the night before and never appeared. Unaware of Hathaway's arrest, the meeting went on as planned, drawing some 1,200 people to the Lyric Theater, a popular local black theater in North Birmingham. There were a few sympathetic whites in the audience, but the majority were hecklers attempting to disrupt the meeting. Despite Hathaway's failure to appear, the meeting went rather smoothly after Fred Keith mounted the podium and gave an impromptu speech about the election campaign, the unemployed movement, and the Scottsboro case. The meeting ended abruptly, however, after a group of Klansmen in the audience set off a smoke bomb in the hall. When the votes were counted, the Foster Ford ticket polled a surprising 726 votes, a significant number considering that its main constituency, black workers, were disfranchised. Most of the votes, however, were from counties where the sharecroppers' union was active and from northern Alabama, where the party was slowly building a following among poor white farmers. Jefferson County only polled 33 communist votes in the presidential race, although Lee Parsons called 133 votes from Birmingham's electorate in his bid for Congress. Once the electoral campaign ended, the devastating winter of 1932-33 created a new set of problems. The relief rolls grew tremendously, and by 1933, 26,000 blacks, nearly 27% of Birmingham's total black population, were receiving welfare. Stepping up its fight for relief in and around Birmingham, the party planned a mass unemployed demonstration on May 1st in recognition of International Workingmen's Day. Focusing on the failure of municipal and private relief efforts, the party not only demanded more meaningful assistance, but vowed to stop the insults of the Red Cross when we go for our relief checks. There was a sense of irony in their final plea for full freedom of speech and assembly, since the city commission decided to revoke their parade permit at the last minute. The illegality of the gathering and police warnings did not deter the nearly 3,000 people who showed up at Ingram Park. The demonstrators were met by police officers, white legionnaires, and Klansmen who forced them out of the park and onto the sidewalk. Jane Speed, who had been standing amidst a sea of black women, stepped up on the bumper of a car and began to address the crowd before police quickly arrested her. As she was whisked away in a patrol car, Speed dramatically screamed to the cordon of black participants, Fellow workers, this is the way they do us! What began as a shoving match with police deteriorated to an all-out street fight. Police officers on the scene attacked the crowd with pistols drawn, but they were ordered not to use them. When one officer shoved his gun into the body of a black woman, she shouted, Shoot me and you shoot a thousand more. 
at a party meeting the very next day. A group of black women excitedly inquired as to the time and place of the next demonstration because they wanted to whip them a cop. The May Day battle was not the communists' last confrontation with police in the streets of Birmingham. But over the next few months, the party's priorities began to shift from helping the jobless to organizing the unorganized. With the enactment of the FERA, Federal Emergency Relief Act, in May 1933, which meant a congressional appropriation of over $9 million for emergency relief for Alabama, and the creation of the CWA, Civil Works Administration, that same winter, thousands were lifted from the relief rolls. But more importantly, because the NIRA, National Industrial Recovery Act, facilitated the reorganization of the labor movement, Birmingham communists turned increasingly to their original goal of organizing industrial workers. The unemployed campaign was the key to the party's growth and consolidation in Birmingham. By the end of 1933, the party's dues-paying membership in Birmingham rose to nearly 500, and its mass organizations encompassed possibly twice that number. The relief campaign was crucial to the formation of a local cadre, serving especially to increase the number of black female members, who often proved more militant than their male comrades. Furthermore, the various tactics developed in the relief campaign from open confrontation to hidden forms of resistance would later prove invaluable to local communists continuing their work in the mines, mills, and plantations of the Black Belt. 2. In Egypt Land, the Sharecroppers Union Fifty cents a day, Lord, for working in the field. Just four bits, Lord, for a good strong hand. From dawn to dark, Lord, from can till can't. Ain't no way, Lord, a man can come out. There's got to be a way, Lord. Show us the way. And then they sang. Go down, Moses, was the song they sang. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt land. John Beecher The rural world communist organizers entered in 1930-31 made the poverty-stricken streets of Birmingham look like a paradise. Cotton farmers were in the midst of a crisis at least a decade old. After World War I, cotton prices plummeted, forcing planters to reduce acreage despite rising debts, and the boll weevil destroyed large stretches of the crop. When the stock market collapsed and cotton prices reached an all-time low, the real victims were small landholders who were forced into tenancy and tenants whose material well-being deteriorated even further. It is no coincidence, therefore, that black farmers straddling the line between tenancy and ownership formed the nucleus of Alabama's communist-led rural movement. Within the limited world of cotton culture existed a variety of production relations. Cash tenants, more often white than black, usually leased land for several years at a time, supplied their own implements, draft animals, seed, feed, and fertilizer, and farmed without supervision. Share tenants, on the other hand, might own some draft animals and planting materials, but the landowner provided any additional equipment, shelter, and, if necessary, 
advances of cash, food, or other subsistence goods, such as clothing. Verbal contracts were made annually, and the landowner genuinely marketed the crop, giving the tenant between three-fourths and two-thirds of the price, minus any advances or previous debts. The most common form of tenancy in the South was sharecropping. Virtually propertyless workers paid with a portion of the crops raised. Sharecroppers had little choice but to cultivate cotton, the landowner's choice of staple crops. The landowner supplied the acreage, houses, draft animals, planting materials, and nearly all subsistence necessities, including food and cash advances. These furnishings were then deducted from the sharecropper's portion of the crop at an incredibly high interest rate. The system not only kept most tenants in debt, but it perpetuated living conditions that bordered on intolerable. Landowners furnished entire families with poorly constructed one- or two-room shacks, usually without running water or adequate sanitary facilities. Living day-to-day -day on a diet of fat back, beans, molasses, and cornbread, most Southern tenants suffered from nutritional deficiencies. Pellagra and rickets were particularly common diseases in the Black Belt. The gradations of tenancy must be understood in relation to both race and the geographic distribution of cotton production. The Black Belt, the throne of King Cotton in Alabama, with its rich, black, calcareous clay soil, still resembled its antebellum past in that blacks outnumbered whites four to one in some counties in 1930. As with other cotton-growing areas, the plant's life cycle and seasonal needs determined the labor and living patterns of those who worked the land. In early spring, after the land had thawed and dried from winter, cotton farmers plowed and fertilized rows in preparation for planting, which followed several weeks later. When the young plants began to sprout, the cotton had to be chopped. Grass and weeds were removed and the stalks separated so that they did not grow too close together. If this was not done regularly, the crop could be lost. Picking time, the most intense period of labor involving all family members, began around September 1st and continued through October. Once the cotton had been picked, ginned, baled, and sold, accounts were settled between the tenant and the landowner. The tenants, who usually found themselves empty-handed after settling accounts, cultivated gardens to survive the winter, begged for food and cash advances, or spent several days without anything to eat. And throughout the entire year, particularly during the lean winters, tenants hauled firewood, cut hay, repaired their homes, fences, tools, and watering holes, cared for their stock, cleared trees, and removed stalks from the previous harvest. Women's lives were especially hard in the world of cotton culture. Rising before dawn and the rest of the family, wives and daughters of tenant farmers prepared meals over a wood stove or open fire, fetched water from distant wells or springs, washed laundry by hand in pots of boiling water, toted firewood, tended livestock, made preserves, dyes, clothes, and medicinal remedies, ground cornmeal, gathered eggs, and tried to keep a house that generally lacked screens, windows, indoor plumbing, and electricity tidy. 
Women also worked in the fields, especially during picking and chopping time. And in the midst of physically exacting labor, they bore and raised children. Many had little choice but to take in laundry or perform domestic work for meager wages, thus tripling their workload. Women choppers and pickers generally earned half as much as their male co-workers. To make matters worse, because husbands and elder sons occasionally migrated to nearby cities or mines to find work, escape family responsibilities, or avoid persecution in one form or another, many women and children in a variety of female-headed households and extended families were left to organize production without the benefit of adult male labor. It was not unusual for a black woman to manage household finances and negotiate the year-end settlements with her landlord. On some plantations, the woman's role as spokesperson was a defensive measure. When a black man appeared to settle his debts, the landlord's wife sometimes negotiated in her husband's place so that if the sharecropper objected to the final agreement, the landlord could accuse him of insulting a white woman. The presence of the sharecropper's wife or eldest daughter in his place mitigated the landlord's ability to construe the dialogues as a violation of white womanhood. Black women were also more likely to be literate and have more formal education than black men. According to the 1940 census, more black women than black men obtained formal education beyond five to six years. In the Black Belt counties where the illiteracy rate among African Americans was as high as 35 and 40 percent in 1940, the ability to read and write could determine a sharecropper's success or failure. In several cases, women proved so important as managers that in some families their unexpected death or illness meant total ruin of an already precarious financial situation. As long as mother lived, recalled a member of the sharecroppers' union in Tallapoosa County. She managed some way and kept us in school, but the boss took everything away from father until he would be so worried he would not know what to do. It is tempting to characterize the Black Belt as a timeless, static, semi-feudal remnant of the post-Reconstruction era, but such an idyllic picture ignores the history of rural opposition and does not take into account significant structural changes that have occurred since the 1890s. Black and white populists waged a losing battle against the expansion of tenancy, and in the wake of defeat, many landless farmers resisted debt peonage with their feet. Drowning in a sea of debt, tenants often broke their contracts, leaving an unsuspecting landowner at a critical moment in the planting cycle. Given the demography of the plantation, open collective rebellion was virtually impossible. Shacks were placed near the edge of the plantation, and two or three miles often separated tenant families from one another. Therefore, more individualized forms of resistance, theft, arson, sabotage, foot-dragging, slander, and occasional outbreaks of personal violence, were used effectively to wrest small material gains or to retaliate against unfair landlords. Such tactics were legitimated by folk cultures that celebrated evasive and cunning activities and, ironically, by the dominant ideology of racist paternalism that constructed an image of blacks as naturally ignorant, childlike, shiftless laborers with a strong penchant for theft. 
Resistance in some ways altered the structure of production as well as the planter's ability to make a profit. With the onset of World War I, for example, large numbers of workers left the countryside altogether to take advantage of employment opportunities in the sprawling urban centers of the North and South. Areas most affected by the exodus were forced to adopt limited forms of mechanization to make up for the dwindling labor force and rising wages. The movement off the land was accompanied by improved roads and the availability of affordable automobiles, which increased rural mobility. The number of automobiles owned and operated by Alabama farmers increased from 16,592 in 1920 to 73,634 in 1930. Smallholders and tenants who acquired vehicles were no longer beholden to the plantation commissary and could now purchase supplies at much lower prices in the nearby urban centers. The revolution in transportation compelled landowners to furnish tenants in cash in lieu of credit lines at plantation commissaries and county stores in an attempt to retain rural labor in the face of competitive wages offered in the cities. But after 1929, cash was a rare commodity and landowners resurrected the commissary system, effectively undermining their tenants' newly acquired freedom and mobility. By the time Birmingham communists established links to the Cotton Belt early in 1931, tenancy seemed on the verge of collapse. Advances of food and cash were cut off, debts were piling higher, and the city offered fewer opportunities to escape rural poverty. Subterranean forms of resistance were by no means abandoned, but groups of black farmers now saw the logic in the CP's call for collective action. The slogan demanding self-determination in the Black Belt did not inspire Birmingham's nascent communist cadre to initiate a rural-based radical movement. The 1930 draft program for Negro farmers in the southern states expressed the Central Committee's doubt as to the ability of black sharecroppers and tenants to create an autonomous radical movement. And a few months later, James Allen, editor of The Southern Worker, argued that only industrial workers were capable of leading tenants and sharecroppers because the latter lacked the collective experience of industrial labor. Aside from spouting rhetorical slogans, party organizers all but ignored the Black Belt during their first year in Birmingham. Indeed, their first taste of rural organizing was in northern Alabama among a small group of white tenant farmers who had asked the TUUL for help obtaining government relief. Then, in January 1931, an uprising of some 500 sharecroppers in England, Arkansas, compelled Southern communists to take the rural poor more seriously. Birmingham party leaders immediately issued a statement exhorting Alabama farmers to follow the Arkansas example. Call mass meetings in each township and on each large plantation. Set up farmers' relief councils at these meetings. Organize hunger marches on the towns to demand food and clothing from the supply merchants and bankers who have sucked you dry year after year. Join hands with the unemployed workers of the towns and with their organizations, which are fighting the same battle for bread. The response was startling. 
the southern worker was flooded with letters from poor black Alabama farmers. A sharecropper from Waverly, Alabama, requested full information on this fight against starvation and pledged to do like the Arkansas farmers with the assistance of communist organizers. A Shelby County tenant made a similar request. We farmers in Vincent wish to know more about the Communist Party, an organization that fights for all farmers, and also to learn us how to fight for better conditions. Another farmer correspondent had already made plans to get a bunch together for a meeting, adding that poor farmers in his community were mighty close to the breaking point. In February, Angelo Herndon was sent to Wilcox County to address a group of sharecroppers who had begun meeting regularly under the leadership of a local black minister. Sensing the group's distress, he elected to stay longer than intended and began organizing a union under the auspices of the United Farmers League. But once authorities learned of his activities, he was forced to flee the county. Despite Herndon's experience, District leadership enthusiastically laid plans for a sharecroppers and farm workers' union that would conceivably unite poor white farmers of northern Alabama and black tenants and sharecroppers in the Black Belt. An attempt to bring black and white farmers together in a joint conference, however, brought few results. The party's position on social equality and equal rights alienated most poor white farmers, and within a few months, the party's white contacts in Coleman and St. Clair counties had practically dissipated. The CFWU, Croppers and Farm Workers Union, was eventually launched in Tallapoosa County, a section of the eastern Piedmont whose varied topography ranges from the hill country of Appalachia in the north to the coastal-like plains and pine forests of the south. In 1930, Almost 70% of those engaged in agriculture were either tenants or wage workers, the majority of whom were sharecroppers. Blacks comprised the bulk of the county's tenant and rural laboring population, and while they constituted roughly one-third of the total population, most blacks resided in the flat, fertile southeastern and southwestern sections of the county. As in the Black Belt counties further south, Antebellum planter families in these two areas retained political and economic ascendancy, despite competition from textile and sawmill interests. Not surprisingly, the impetus to build a union came from local tenant farmers living primarily in southeastern Tallapoosa County. Estelle Milner, a young school teacher and the daughter of a black Tallapoosa sharecropper, was instrumental in establishing links between black farmers and communist leaders in Birmingham. She laid the groundwork for the party's activities by secretly distributing the Southern Worker and placing leaflets in strategic areas. Two brothers, Tommy and Ralph Gray, contacted the party, persuaded several local sharecroppers to send letters to the Southern Worker, and in early spring invited a communist organizer to help them build a union. The Greys were known by their neighbors as a proud family with a militant heritage. Their grandfather, Alfred Gray, had been a state legislator in Perry County, Alabama, during Reconstruction, and a staunch advocate of equal rights as well as a sharp critic of the Freedmen's Bureau. He told a mixed crowd in Uniontown in 1868, 
I am not afraid to fight for the Constitution, and I will fight for it until hell freezes over. I may go to hell, my home is hell, but the white man shall go there with me. Ralph Gray, who had been nourished on stories of his grandfather, emerged as the fledgling movement's undisputed local leader. One of 15 children, Gray was born in Tallapoosa County in 1873 and spent about one year of his adult life working in Birmingham. After returning to Tallapoosa in 1895, he married and settled down as a tenant farmer until 1919, when he and his family left Alabama in search of better opportunities. Having spent some time sharecropping in Oklahoma and New Mexico, he returned to the place of his birth in 1929 and purchased a small farm. Gray owned a plot of land, but it was hardly enough to survive on. Nevertheless, he managed to remain debt-free and purchased his own automobile, thus earning the respect of his local community. Early in 1931, Gray applied for a low-interest federal loan with which to rent a farm from Tallapoosa merchant John J. Langley. Because the loan check required a double endorsement, Langley was able to cash the check and withhold Gray's portion, who then retaliated by filing a complaint with the Agricultural Extension Service. When the landlord heard what he had done, his brother Tommy recalled, he got mighty mad and jumped on Brother Ralph to give him a whipping. Instead, Brother Ralph whipped him. Soon thereafter, Ralph began reading The Southern Worker, joined the Communist Party, and set out with his brother to build a union. Gray's fight with Langley suggests a growing tension between landlord and tenant, merchant and landowner, each operating in a system more precarious than ever. As conditions deteriorated, the Southern workers' appeal for collective action became an increasingly attractive alternative to starvation and isolated instances of protest. In April, the Grays' request for an organizer was filled by Mac Code, an illiterate Birmingham steelworker originally from Charleston, South Carolina, who had joined the party in 1930. Following an unsuccessful bid for municipal judge in Chattanooga under the communist ticket, he returned to Birmingham in March 1931 for a three- or four-week hiatus and then left for Tallapoosa County as Jim Wright, secretary of the CFWU. Code arrived at the height of an important crisis in rural Tallapoosa. Soon after the cotton had been planted and chopped, Several landlords withdrew all cash and food advances in a calculated effort to generate labor for the newly built Russell Sawmill. The mill paid exactly the same wage for unskilled labor as the going rate for cotton chopping, 50 cents per day for men and 25 cents a day for women. By mid-May, the Southern Worker reported significant union gains in Tallapoosa County and announced that black sawmill workers and farmers in the vicinity have enthusiastically welcomed communist leadership. The nascent movement formulated seven basic demands, the most crucial being the continuation of food advances. The right of sharecroppers to market their own crops was also a critical issue because landlords usually gave their tenants the year's lowest price for their cotton and held on to the bales until the price increased thus denying the producer the full benefits of the crop. 
Union leaders also demanded small gardens for resident wage hands, cash rather than wages in kind, a minimum wage of $1 per day, and a three-hour midday rest for all laborers, all of which were to be applied equally, irrespective of race, age, or sex. Furthermore, they agitated for a nine-month school year for black children and free transportation to and from school. By July 1931, the CFWU, now 800 strong, had won a few isolated victories in its battle for the continuation of food advances. Most Tallapoosa landlords, however, just would not tolerate a surreptitious organization of black tenant farmers and agricultural workers. Camp Hill, Alabama, became the scene of the Union's first major confrontation with the local power structure. On July 15th, Taft Holmes organized a group of sharecroppers near Camp Hill and invited Code, along with several other Union members, to address the group in a vacant house that doubled as a church. In all, about 80 black men and women piled into the abandoned house to listen to Code discuss the CFWU and the Scottsboro case. After a black informant notified Tallapoosa County Sheriff Kyle Young of the gathering, deputized vigilantes raided the meeting place, brutally beating men and women alike. The posse then regrouped at Tommy Gray's home and assaulted his entire family, including his wife, who suffered a fractured skull, in an effort to obtain information about the CFWU. Only an agitated Ralph Gray, who had rushed into the house armed, saved them from possible fatal consequences. Union organizer Jasper Kennedy was arrested for possessing 20 copies of the Southern Worker, and Holmes was picked up by police the following day, interrogated for several hours, and upon release, fled to Chattanooga. Despite the violence, about 150 sharecroppers met with Code the following evening in a vacant house southwest of Camp Hill. This time, sentries were posted around the meeting place. When Sheriff Young arrived on the scene with Camp Hill Police Chief J.M. Wilson and Deputy A.J. Thompson, he found Ralph Gray standing guard about a quarter mile from the meeting. Although accounts differ as to the sequence of events, both Gray and the sheriff traded harsh words and, in the heat of argument, exchanged buckshot. Young, who received gunshot wounds to the stomach, was rushed to a hospital in nearby Alexander City while Gray lay on the side of the road, his legs riddled with bullets. Fellow Union members carried Gray to his home where the group, including Mac Code, barricaded themselves inside the house. The group held off a posse led by Police Chief J.M. Wilson long enough to allow most members to escape, but the wounded Ralph Gray opted to remain in his home until the end. The posse returned with reinforcements and found Gray lying in his bed and his family huddled in a corner. According to his brother, someone in the group poked a pistol into Brother Ralph's mouth and shot down his throat. The mob burned his home to the ground and dumped his body on the steps of the Dadeville courthouse. The mangled and lifeless leader became an example for other black sharecroppers as groups of armed whites took turns shooting and kicking 
the bloody corpse of Ralph Gray. Over the next few days, between 34 and 55 black men were arrested near Camp Hill, nine of whom were under 18 years of age. Most of the defendants were charged with conspiracy to murder or with carrying a concealed weapon, but five union members, Dosey Minor, T. Patterson, William Gribb, John Finch, and Tommy Finch, were charged with assault to murder. Although Police Chief Wilson could not legally act out his wish to kill every member of the Reds there and throw them into the creek, the Camp Hill Police Department stood idle as enraged white citizens waged genocidal attacks on the black community that left dozens wounded or dead and forced entire families to seek refuge in the woods. Union Secretary Mac Code, the vigilante's prime target, fled all the way to Atlanta. But few Talapusa communists were as lucky as Code. Estelle Minor suffered a fractured vertebra at the hands of police after a local black minister accused her of possessing ammunition. Behind the violence in Talapusa County loomed the Scottsboro case. William G. Porter, secretary of the Montgomery branch of the NAACP, observed that vigilantes in and around Camp Hill were trying to get even for Scottsboro. Rumors spread throughout the county that armed bands of blacks were roaming the countryside searching for landlords to murder and white women to rape. On July 18th, for example, the Birmingham Age Herald carried a story headlined, Negro Reds Reported Advancing, claiming that eight carloads of black communists were on their way from Chattanooga to assist the Tallapoosa sharecroppers. In response, about 150 white men established a roadblock on the main highway north of the county, only to meet a funeral procession from Sylacauga, Alabama, en route to a graveyard just north of Dadeville. Outraged middle-class black leaders, clergymen, and white liberals blamed white communists for the incident, asserting that armed resistance on the part of black sharecroppers and tenants was unnatural. An investigation conducted by James D. Burton, Tennessee Secretary for the CIC, Commission on Interracial Cooperation, found irresponsible white groups to be the cause of the conflict, although illiteracy and poverty explained why black sharecroppers were easily influenced by agitators and easily misled in trying to find their way out of their difficulties. Ralph Gray, the one homegrown anomaly, was deemed an exception because he presumably returned from Oklahoma and New Mexico with radical ideas. Hoping to quell black unrest in the area, Robert Russell Moton, superintendent of Tuskegee Institute, dispatched representatives to Tallapoosa in a calculated move to turn blacks away from communism. Likewise, L. N. Duncan, director of the Agricultural Extension Service based at the Alabama Polytechnic Institute, assured Governor Miller that several black county agents were making a special effort to quiet the people down urging them to put away their guns and calling their attention to the fact that they are badly misled by these communistic representatives. The NAACP also made its presence felt 
particularly after local authorities tried to implicate the association with the allegation that seized CFWU minute books belonged to the Society for the Advancement of Colored People. Walter White and local Birmingham NAACP leaders sharply denied any connection to the communist-led union and accused the party of using the NAACP's good name to mislead black sharecroppers. While publicly admonishing the communists for Camp Hill, Walter White quietly pursued the idea of providing legal defense for the jailed sharecroppers. He feared that if the ILD entered the case and won an acquittal, the communists would proclaim loudly that mass action had freed the Camp Hill defendants, thus validating the ILD's legal defense strategies. But unlike Scottsboro, the Camp Hill defendants were members of the party's organization. There was no question as to who was going to defend them. Governor Miller and the Dadeville Sheriff's Office received a flurry of telegrams and postcards protesting the arrests and demanding the death penalty for all those directly involved in the murder of Ralph Gray. The ILD further linked this case to the Scottsboro trial, focusing on the exclusion of blacks from Southern juries. Irving Schwab, an attorney for the Scottsboro defendants, secured the release of all but seven of the imprisoned sharecroppers because of insufficient evidence, and the remaining seven defendants were later released after their hearings were postponed indefinitely. Prominent Alabama citizens wary of creating another Scottsboro episode pressured authorities to quietly drop the case. National Communist leadership praised the Union's resistance at Camp Hill as vindication of the party's slogan calling for the right of self-determination. The ILD's defense of the sharecroppers was further proof, they reasoned, of the effectiveness of mass pressure outside the courtroom. But union organizers found little romance in the bloodletting or in the uprooting of hundreds of poor black farmers that had followed the Camp Hill battle. Moreover, rural conditions in Tallapoosa County had not improved at all. By September, the height of the cotton-picking season, landlords again promised to cut off all food and cash advances after the cotton was picked, and many tenants had to pick cotton on other plantations in order to earn enough to survive the winter. The going rate at the time was a meager 30 cents per 100 pounds a tiny sum considering the average laborer could only pick about 200 pounds per day. The repression and the deteriorating economic conditions stunted the union's growth initially, but the lessons of Camp Hill also provided a stimulus for a new type of movement, reborn from the ashes of the old. On August 6, 1931, the 55 remaining CFWU members regrouped as the SCU, Sharecroppers Union, and reconstituted five locals in Tallapoosa County. Throughout 1931, the SCU existed without an organizational secretary. Between August 1931 and early 1932, the SCU's only direct link to the party was a 19-year-old YCL organizer from Springfield, Massachusetts, named Harry Hirsch, 
who adopted the pseudonym Harry Sims. Sims's role was that of liaison, intermittently carrying information back and forth between district leaders and the SCU locals, which now began to operate with virtually no CP direction. As Sims observed, they were meeting every week in small groups and carrying on the work on their own initiative, even though we have not sent an organizer down there. Tommy Gray continued to organize, but because he was targeted by landlords and local authorities, escaping at least one attempted assassination, it was difficult for him to maneuver. Instead, Gray's daughter, 19-year-old YCL leader Eula Gray, held the movement together during this very critical period. When Sims left for Kentucky in 1931, Eula Gray assumed his role as liaison and served as ad hoc secretary until May 1932. By the time she left the post, the SCU in Tallapoosa County had grown to 591 members organized in 28 locals, 10 youth groups, and 12 women's auxiliaries. 67 members were organized in nine Lee County locals, four of which were based in the town of Natasoga. Chambers in Macon counties each reported 30 members. As District Bureau member Harry Wicks observed, the croppers themselves are maintaining their organization and reports are that they are holding meetings regularly without any direction from us, except what this little girl, Eula Gray, can impart to them. That Wicks could refer to a 19-year-old woman as a little girl illustrates his underestimation of female leadership, an attitude likely shared by other Bureau members. Ignoring Gray's proven ability and her Tallapoosa roots, District Organizer Nat Ross appointed 25-year-old Al Murphy to the position of SCU secretary. What would have become of the SCU if Gray continued as secretary, we will never know. However, Al Murphy proved to be a tremendous asset to the fledgling organization. Recognizing the need to expand beyond the eastern Piedmont counties into the Black Belt, Murphy eventually established headquarters in Montgomery, where he worked closely with that city's three leading black communists, Charles Tasker, the leader of the Montgomery Unemployed Councils, his wife, Capitola Tasker, who directed the SCU Women's Auxiliaries, and Montgomery Party leader John Beans. Beans was unique in that he was the only black veteran trade union organizer in the Alabama Communist Party, having served as vice president of the ASFL, Alabama State Federation of Labor, in 1902. With Murphy in charge, white CP leaders stopped calling on black sharecroppers to demonstrate in front of the landlord's house, and demand that the food advances be continued until the crop is taken in. Besides, local blacks had never taken these suicidal directives seriously. Murphy was well aware of the cropper's underground tradition of resistance, and he developed tactics that emphasized self-preservation and cunning. No meetings were to be held in empty houses. SCU members were not to walk in large crowds, and they were not to engage in armed action without notifying Murphy, unless, of course, it could not be avoided. Everything from their actions to their demeanor drew on subterranean forms of everyday resistance. Ned Cobb, 
a small landowner from Tallapoosa County who joined the SEU in 1932, was told to act humble, be straight, his teaching to not go at a thing too rapid and forcible, be quiet, whatever we do, let it work in a way of virtue. Yet Murphy's instructions to act humble did not mean abandoning armed self-defense. Members such as Lemon Johnson, former secretary of the Hope Hole local, believed armed self-defense distinguished the SEU from other organizations. His own experience informed him that the only thing going to stop them from killing you, you got to go shooting. When Harry Haywood attended an SEU meeting in Dadeville, he was taken aback by what he described as a small arsenal. There were guns, he recalled, of all kinds, shotguns, rifles, and pistols. Sharecroppers were coming to the meeting armed and left their guns with their coats when they came in. Murphy decentralized the organization by establishing captains for each local. And like Harry Sims and Eula Gray before him, he kept the locals informed of the situation in other counties. Dues were collected when possible, but most of the funds, never amounting to more than a few cents, were in the hands of the captains. They tended to the day-to-day -day organizing of the union, the women's auxiliaries, and the youth sections, and those who could write were responsible for sending articles to the party's press, detailing conditions in their respective areas. Murphy warned the captains against becoming tyrannical or egocentric with their power. No captain is to act as a boss of his local, he frequently advised. Weekly meetings were supposed to be held, always in absolute secrecy, to avoid police raids or vigilante attacks. Minutes were rarely kept because of the potential danger of keeping written records, not to mention the problem of literacy in the Black Belt. Union locals often cloaked their intentions by holding Bible meetings, and some secretaries recorded the minutes by underlining pertinent words or phrases in the Bible. Black women's contribution to the SCU rarely appeared in the pages of the party press, in part because their strong presence countered an essentially male-centered version of radicalism generated by communist writers and national leaders most of whom had never worked in the South. Indeed, the party's advocacy of black self-determination conjured up masculine historical figures, such as Toussaint Louverture, Frederick Douglass, and Nat Turner, and writers like Eugene Gordon and V.J. Jerome portrayed the movement as a struggle for manhood. Armed resistance in particular was deemed a masculine activity. When the central black character, a young Southern-born communist, in Grace Lumpkin's novel, A Sign for Cain, observed shotguns stacked in the corner of the cabin, he assured his comrades, we ain't dealing with cowards, but men. For nearly all writers in communist circles, black and white, male and female, the martyred Ralph Gray assumed the symbol of black manhood in the South. Radical poet Ruby Weems published a moving account of the murder of Ralph Gray, the final stanza closing the episode with a great climactic vision. His muscles swelling into a mighty challenge, mount into a vision of a million clenched fists. 
He wears his death like a joyous banner of solidarity, a scepter of militant Negro manhood. He lies still and silent, but under his unmoving form rise hosts of dark, strong men, the vast army of rebellion. When leading communist theoretician V.J. Jerome introduced his famous poem to a black man, he referred to the slaughtered blood of Ralph Gray, black-skinned sharecropper of Camp Hill. These ideological constructions distorted black women's role in the SCU, women whose indispensable organizing skills and basic concerns were the foundation of union activity. The tradition of autonomous black women's religious and social organizations served as conduits for the broader movement and were prototypes for the women's auxiliaries. Frequently called sewing clubs, the women's auxiliaries exercised considerable power within the Union. Although they met separately to divert the suspicions of local authorities and, according to observers, so one parent can stay with children when the other is away, the sewing clubs provided forums to discuss conditions and formulate strategy. These women read The Daily Worker, The Southern Worker, and Working Woman when they could get it, and generated a stream of correspondence that linked their local struggles with the national and international movement. Union wives or girls with a modicum of formal education wrote brief, descriptive letters to the party's daily and regional tabloids. Usually the result of collective discussion within the union locals, the letters were often scribbled on a piece of sack or crumpled wrapping paper. These letters seemed to support the connection that women's assigned role in the sexual division of labor, in this case motherhood, lay at the root of women's collective action and radicalization, a manifestation of female consciousness. A common theme that runs through most of these letters, as well as speeches by black female communists, is the overall inability of women to feed and care for their families under intolerable conditions. A Tallapoosa County YCL organizer expressed the sentiments of her comrades, We are tired of seeing our children go naked and hungry, crying for bread. We must raise our voices louder against this. Not only I myself am suffering, but millions of mothers and children are suffering. Speaking before the Women's Congress Against War and Fascism in Paris, Capitola Tasker acknowledged that she joined the movement for the benefit of the children now living and the children who are to come. Women's radicalization through female consciousness does not tell us the whole story, however. Party rhetoric at the national level tended to overemphasize the family economy and the oppression of women as mothers because communists constructed a vision of working-class militancy that generally excluded women and thus tended to overshadow the struggles of women without children or whose children were grown. But women joined the SEU as workers and farmers seeking equal wages and better conditions. As a political movement that encouraged women's involvement, at least in rhetoric, the SCU also served as a lever of power, since outright repression of women's participation could lead to charges of male chauvinism. 
an imported phrase that entered some black women's vocabulary via working woman and other CP tabloids. Finally, union and auxiliary meetings provided a needed respite from daily chores and freed women from childcare since men were expected to take up the slack during sewing club meetings. Murphy, an unflinching supporter of the party's demand for self-determination in the Black Belt, had very definite ideas about the radical character of the SCU. He saw within each and every member standard bearers of Nat Turner, Denmark Vesey, Gabriel Prosser, Frederick Douglass, and regarded the all-black movement as the very embodiment of black self-determination. Nonetheless, the SCU received some tacit support from poor white farmers. Once in a while, sympathetic poor white tenant farmers, especially women, attended SCU meetings. In Lemon Johnson's words, most white tenant farmers wanted this color line broke down better than us do. Some of them be with us in the meetings, the white women, and some of these white men from out here be with us in the meeting, help bringing this thing down be telling us some things that have the people crying on to God. Some poor whites were obviously attracted to the SCU's program, but racial divisions in the Black Belt were drawn so sharply that black organizers felt it was too dangerous to even discuss the union with whites. I'd like to see whites come along with us, admitted one SCU member, but I ain't going to go out and ask them. That's too dangerous. Some whites paid a dear price for their sympathy. In 1934, white Tallapoosa tenant farmer J.W. Davis was kidnapped and lynched by vigilantes because of his support for the SCU. Open membership was impossible, but poor whites showed their support in a variety of ways, from providing food and supplies to known union members to hiding activists during crises. Perhaps the most common form of support that allowed individuals to retain their anonymity was voting. In Elmore County, an SCU stronghold, 275 votes were cast for William Z. Foster and James Ford in the 1932 presidential election. Herbert Hoover only received 160 votes from Elmore County. This is an astounding figure when one considers that the all-white electorate was comprised of only 3,641 voters. Overall, 49% of the state's communist vote in 1932 came from Elmore, Crenshaw, 54 votes, and Perry, 33 votes, counties in which the SCU was active. The communists' surprising showing in Elmore, however, might also reflect white farmers' disillusionment with the two-party system. As one frustrated mainstream Democrat declared in 1932, Elmore voters are uncertain about what to do or what they want to do. Their minds are not normal. Support was also forthcoming from a small group of white liberals in Montgomery who had formed a Marxist study group during the 1930s. Composed of some of the most prominent and richest people in Montgomery, the largely female group included teachers, social workers, and wives of upper-middle-class Jews interested in world peace and domestic social reforms. Most prominent were Rabbi Benjamin Goldstein, 
who was regarded by his congregation at Temple Beth Orr as somewhat of an iconoclast, and Olive Stone, a professor of sociology and dean at Montevallo College, who had traveled to the USSR in the 1920s. Apparently, no one in the group joined the Communist Party, but they provided crucial financial and moral support for communist activities in Birmingham, Montgomery, and the Cotton Belt. Olive Stone, for example, secretly made occasional donations of $50 to $100 to the SCU. After a year of rebuilding following Camp Hill, the Union emerged stronger than ever. A threatened pickers strike in 1932 won Union members on at least one Talapusa plantation the right to sell their own cotton directly, as well as a continuation of winter food advances. Days after the victory was announced, organizer Luther Hughley was arrested for vacancy, but soon after he was placed in police custody, he was accused of kidnapping a white woman from Camp Hill. Before a mass campaign could be initiated, however, Hughley was released and threatened with rope and faggot if he did not leave the county. Aside from Hughley's arrest and the aborted Pickers strike, Camp Hill remained rather quiet and uneventful after the cotton had been picked. While most farmers prepared for the coming winter, five SCU organizers joined Al Murphy as delegates to the National Farmers Relief Conference in Washington, D.C. in December. The peace did not last very long. Exactly two weeks after the delegation left Alabama for the conference, the SCU in Tallapoosa County once again found itself embroiled in an explosive battle with local authorities. It all started near Realtown, an area about 15 miles southwest of Camp Hill. The SCU's armed stand centered around a landlord's attempt to seize the property of Clifford James, a debt-ridden farmer who had been struggling desperately to purchase the land he worked. The story actually dates back to 1926, when James borrowed $950 to purchase the 77-acre plot he was working from Natasolga merchant W.S. Parker. The full cost of the land was $1,500. In addition to the borrowed money, James paid $250 in cash and sold $450 worth of timber from his property. Parker then absorbed James's debt by taking out a mortgage on the land. After advancing James money, food, and implements in 1927, Parker sold him three mules on credit, which then augmented James's debt to $1,500. James's friend and fellow SEU member Ned Cobb was also indebted to Parker. Parker had it in for me, Cobb recalled. He knew I had good stock and I was a good worker and all like that. He just aimed to use his power to break me down. He'd been doing to people that way before then. When the SCU reorganized in Tallapoosa County, its approach to debt peonage attracted James and hundreds of other black farmers. As a result of debates within the Communist Party's National Negro Commission, the SEU added to its core program the abolition of all debts owed by poor farmers and tenants, as well as interest charged on necessary items such as food, clothes, and seed. The SEU's solution to indebtedness had appealed to so many black tenants and small landowners 
that even W.S. Parker felt the union's policies damaged relations between him and his tenants. The reaction among James and several other Negroes, Parker admitted, who before had shown a spirit of cooperation to the mentioning of foreclosures, seemed to point conclusively that there was some sort of sinister influence at work among them. James threw himself into the movement, becoming a communist and a leader of an SCU local that included farmers from Realtown and Lee County. Parker blamed this sinister influence for his inability to reach an agreement with James concerning his debts. Unable to come to terms, Parker asked Deputy Sheriff Cliff Elder to serve a writ of attachment on James's livestock. When Elder arrived on December 19, 1932, about 15 armed SCU members were already standing outside James's home prepared to resist or revert the seizure. Although the group challenged established property rights by protecting James's right to retain his livestock in contravention of the law, they tried to avoid a gun battle. Their collective stand differed from the individualized practice of hiding vulnerable items, but the first stages of confrontation remained clearly within the traditional boundaries of rural paternalism. Ned Cobb humbly pleaded with Elder, Please, sir, don't take it. Go to the ones that authorized you to take his stuff, if you please, sir, and tell them to give him a chance. He'll work to pay what he owes him. When Elder and his black assistant officer attempted to seize the animals, humility ceased. James and Cobb warned them against taking the animals, and Elder interpreted their warnings as death threats. Fearing for his life, he left James's farm, promising to return to kill you niggers in a pile. Elder returned a few hours later with three reinforcements. Chief Deputy Dowdle Ware, former Sheriff J.M. Gaunt, and a local landlord named J.H. Alfred. Several SEU members barricaded themselves in James's home, and others stood poised at the barn. Shots were exchanged almost as soon as the four men stepped onto the property. But when Elder's small posse seed that crowd of niggers at the barn, throw up their guns, they jumped in the car and fled from the vicinity. Unable to persuade Governor Miller to dispatch state troops, Sheriff Young proceeded to form his own posse, gathering men from Lee, Macon, Elmore, and Montgomery counties to scour the area for suspected SCU members. When the shootout was over, SCU member John McMullen lay dead, and several others were wounded, including Clifford James, Milo Bentley, Thomas Moss, and Ned Cobb. Within the next few days, at least 20 Union members were rounded up and thrown in jail. Several of those arrested were not involved in the shootout, but their names were discovered when the police returned to James's home and uncovered the SEU locals' membership list, along with considerable communistic literature. The violence that followed eclipsed the Camp Hill affair of 1931. Entire families were forced to take refuge in the woods. White vigilante groups broke into black homes and seized guns, ammunition, and other property. And blacks were warned that if they appeared in the Liberty Hill section of Realtown, they would be shot on sight. A blind black woman reported to be nearly 100 years old was severely beaten and pistol-whipped 
by a group of vigilantes, and one Tallapoosa doctor claimed to have treated at least a dozen black patients with gunshot wounds. Despite severe injuries to his back, James managed to walk 17 miles to Tuskegee Institute's hospital. After dressing James's gunshot wounds, Dr. Eugene Dibble of Tuskegee contacted the Macon County Sheriff, who then removed James to a cold, damp cell at the Montgomery County Jail. Milo Bentley, who reportedly had been shot in the head, back, and arms, was also taken to Montgomery County Jail. Observers claimed that Bentley and James received no medical treatment from their jailers, and both were found lying on filthy and flimsy blankets on the floor. Cliff James was lying naked on the floor in a separate cage, delirious from the loss of blood and with blood-soaked dirty dressings over those wounds which had been dressed. On December 27th, James died from infected wounds and pneumonia, both caused by the lack of medical treatment. Ten and one-half hours later, Bentley's lifeless body was found in the same condition. About four or five days after the shootout, the ILD and the SCU in Tallapoosa County held a mass meeting in Camp Hill and elected a committee of 15 to investigate the arrests. The ILD sent attorneys Irving Schwab and George Chamley to Montgomery on behalf of the imprisoned black farmers, but because jail authorities denied ILD representatives access to the prisoners, they had very little information with which to prepare a case. The IOD faced other unforeseen obstacles. Its Birmingham office was ransacked by police, or vigilantes masquerading as law officers, and within hours, police arrested several communist organizers. Despite these setbacks, the ILD held a very successful public meeting at the Old Pythian Temple on January 2, 1933, to protest the arrests and to censure Robert Moton and staff members at Tuskegee Institute for their complicity in the deaths of James and Bentley. A few days later, a mass funeral was held for the two martyred union organizers. Pallbearers carrying two caskets draped with banners emblazoned with deep red hammers and sickles, led a procession of 3,000 people, most of whom were black. The mourners marched six miles through Birmingham to Grace Hills Cemetery on the southern side of the city, cordoned by an additional 1,000 people who crowded the sidewalks along the route of the procession. As more detailed accounts of the shootout reached the press, Tuskegee Institute increasingly became a target of criticism. An elderly Alabama black woman, Abby Elmore Bug, castigated Moton personally. Now, if you love your neighbor as yourself, she asked, why did you not protect those two poor wounded Negro farmers? Why did you let them die? A good enemy of all races, I should say you be, in a time of real need. William MacArthur from Detroit charged Moton and his staff with the murder of Milo Bentley and Cliff James. You so-called Negro leaders, he continued, are nothing but a bunch of traitors, dirty reformist bootlicking helping the landlord robbers take the Negro farmers' cotton and land and other products from them. Although Moton believed all the attacks directed at him and the Institute were communist-inspired, 
he refrained from blaming the communists for real town. The recent outbreaks of violence, he explained to one inquirer, between whites and Negroes in that county are primarily the results of the prevailing tenant system in the South that has long since outlived its usefulness. Yet, while the Institute was sensitive to black farmers' needs, it rejected unionization as a strategy for change. Tuskegee's statistician and expert on rural affairs, Monroe Work, admitted that the Institute's general policy is to discourage the organization of Negro farmers. Like the Camp Hill shootout in 1931, white liberals in the Southern press blamed communists for the real town incident. Although a Birmingham Post editorial dissented from other newspapers by discussing the indigenous economic roots of the conflict, the writers still placed considerable blame on party propaganda and black inferiority. It is the ignorance of the Negro which makes him prey to the incendiary literature with which the mailboxes of both white and Negro farmers of Tallapoosa County have been stuffed. It is this literature which transforms him from a law-abiding citizen into one who defies the law. The average Negro in his normal state of mind does not consider firing on officers seeking to carry out the law. Many black middle-class leaders agreed that the menace of communism lurked behind the events at Realtown. The Atlanta Daily World advised blacks to ignore the communists and instead to battle for our rights legally in the courts and economically through mass-owned businesses. But the black elite was not in complete accord. The Reverend M. Nunn, a black Tallapoosa minister, admitted that he had little support from established black leaders for his campaign against the SEU. As he put it, I am the only Negro that I know of working every day with the officers in locating these communist units in this section of Alabama. Some respected middle-class blacks even offered support for the union. At the height of the crisis, one relatively wealthy black landlord let Al Murphy hide on his farm and use his barn as an office to produce SCU leaflets. The trial of the SCU members illustrates the extent of the Union's popularity in the eastern Piedmont. So many black sharecroppers crowded into the courtroom that solicitor Sam W. Oliver decided to postpone the trial until the excitement subsided. When proceedings resumed in late April, county officials set up roadblocks outside Dadeville to discourage blacks from attending. Nevertheless, black farmers evaded the roadblocks by traveling through gullies and back roads and filled the courtroom once again. The all-white jury convicted five of the 19 SEU members indicted for assault with a deadly weapon. Ned Cobb was given 12 to 15 years. Clinton Moss and Alf White received 10 years each. Judson Simpson was sentenced to a maximum of 12 years, and Sam Moss was given five to six years. The confrontation at Realtown apparently did not discourage the Union's recruitment efforts. By June 1933, Al Murphy reported a membership of nearly 2,000 organized in 73 locals, 80 women's auxiliaries, 
and 20 youth groups. New locals were formed in Dale and Randolph counties and in the border town of West Point, Georgia. The communists also established five additional rural party units, each composed of 30 to 35 members. In other parts of the rural South, those who stood their ground at Realtown were celebrated in rural folklore, as exemplified in the following verses composed just a few months after the incident and sung by sharecroppers in Rock Hill, South Carolina. What you gwine do, nigger, with the power that's in yo arm? Get wiping yo eye tear till the strength is dead and gone? Bowed down on your knees till turkey buzzard get through with you? What you gwine do, nigger? Ain't nothing like what I said. Do like Alabama boys and win or be found dead. National communist leaders regarded the SCU as the finest contemporary example of black revolutionary traditions. The apparent militancy of the burgeoning movement was the proof communist theoreticians needed to justify the slogan demanding self-determination in the black belt. But the Union's rank and file, who had little time to theorize about the changes taking place in the rural South, found little to celebrate. Black farmers were organizing primarily for their own survival and for a greater share in the decaying system of cotton tenancy. They might have won the battle to exist, but by late 1933, the SCU faced an additional set of problems when the federal government decided to intervene in the production process. Congress and President Roosevelt attempted to reinvigorate the country's dying cotton economy with the AAA, Agricultural Adjustment Administration. Conceived in 1933 as an emergency measure, the AAA was supposed to increase the purchasing power of landowning farmers by subsidizing acreage reduction. A year later, the Cotton Control Act and the Gin Tax Act both sponsored by Alabama Senator John Bankhead, made cotton reduction programs compulsory and added a mandatory tax on the ginning of all cotton above the specified quota. Southern sharecroppers were supposed to receive one-ninth of the 1934-35 to 35 benefit checks, but in most cases they received nothing, since local planters controlled distribution of parity payments. Moreover, Landlords used the Gen Tax Act as a lever to obtain their tenants' cotton. In order to gen cotton without paying the tax, tenants had to obtain gen certificates from their landlords or from local planter-dominated AAA boards. If a tenant refused to give the cotton to his or her landlord to be ginned, the landlord would withhold the gen certificate until cotton prices dropped. At first, such abuses were commonplace, and a liberal section of the Agricultural Adjustment Administration tried to restructure the distribution process. However, most planters did not have to engage in fraud in order to benefit from New Deal policies. They merely reallocated land, evicted redundant tenants, and applied the cash subsidies to wages rather than sharing it with their tenants. New Deal policies, therefore, indirectly stimulated a structural change in the cotton economy. 
the mechanization of agriculture. Cotton production remained unmechanized for so long, partly because most landlords lacked capital, and because the units of production, plots farmed by tenants and sharecroppers, were too small to warrant adoption of expensive technology. Tenancy provided the cheap labor needed to make the transition to mechanization, but it limited production to small, segmented units. By farming larger units of production, landlords could apply the parity payments and savings derived from not furnishing tenants to tractors, fertilizers, and other implements needed for large-scale cotton farming. Local relief administrators helped the landlords by clearing the relief rolls during cotton picking and cotton shopping seasons, thus ensuring an abundant supply of cheap labor. As large portions of the 1933 crop were being plowed under and the first wave of tenants was being evicted, the SCU called strikes on several cotton plantations in Chambers and Lee counties and demanded 50 cents per 100 pounds. The union's first attempted strike since its founding three years earlier crumbled, however, when seven SCU leaders were arrested and posses forced pickers back into the fields. Although the strike failed, thousands of evicted tenants in Alabama began turning to the SCU for assistance. By March 1934, the union claimed 6,000 members and established locals in the Black Belt counties of Lowndes, Macon, Montgomery, and Dallas. The SCU's sudden growth in the Black Belt prompted Murphy to move the underground headquarters from Birmingham to Montgomery. The proliferation of Black Belt locals was directly linked to mass evictions and landlord abuses stemming from the AAA. As Murphy pointed out, nearly half of the SEU's membership was recruited between July 1933 and April 1934. According to one SEU leader in Camp Hill, because of the AAA, the union is taking on new life. The SCU, in places where it has been slack, is beginning to wake up, and people don't wait for the comrades to come as they used to. The SCU adopted a variety of methods to deal with landlords' abuses of the parity program. First, because hundreds of evicted tenants and sharecroppers were simultaneously removed from relief rolls and CWA projects so that cheap wage labor would be available for cotton shopping, Union organizers fought for immediate relief and tried to persuade federal authorities to investigate local CWA administrators. In February 1934, a group of black women organized a Committee of Action, marched down to the CWA office in Camp Hill, and eventually won partial demands for relief. Tenants and sharecroppers who had not yet been evicted were instructed not to sign the joint parity checks unless the landlords paid their portion in cash, rather than using the funds to settle debts. SEU members often refused to give up their rental share of cotton unless they received their portion of the AAA check. The union also convinced some day laborers and cotton pickers to boycott plantations that were considered vicious in their treatment of tenants and sharecroppers. On one plantation in Chambers County, a boycott of this kind led to the arrests of 11 union members. 
Late that summer, the SEU prepared for another cotton picker strike in Lee and Tallapoosa counties. With a demand of $1 per 100 pounds, the strike started in mid-September on B.W. Meadows' plantation in Tallapoosa County and soon spread to several large plantations in both counties, involving between 700 and 1,000 pickers. The landlord's first response was to evict the strikers, but because it was the height of the cotton-picking season, planters needed all available labor. With the support of local police, the planters turned to force to break the strike. In Lee County, police arrested seven union members for distributing strike leaflets, and in Tallapoosa, vigilantes shot at least three strikers, including a woman party organizer. Pinned to the doors of several suspected strikers' homes was the following message. Warning! Take notice! If you want to do well and have a healthy life, you better leave the Sharecroppers Union. Hooded night riders in Lee County kidnapped and beat SCU organizer Comet Talbert, and later in the evening two more Lee County sharecroppers were kidnapped, draped in chains, and taken to a nearby swamp where vigilantes threatened to drown them if they remained in the Union. The local sheriff intervened but arrested the shackled black sharecroppers and held them on charges of attempted murder. The Alabama Relief Administration also played a crucial role in undermining the strike. As soon as the SCU announced plans for a cotton picker strike, Thad Holt, director of the State Relief Administration, dropped from the relief rolls all able-bodied workers who did not volunteer to pick cotton for wages. Even the State Reemployment Agency in Birmingham relocated several people with farm experience to the cotton fields. In spite of repression, mass evictions, and the expanded pool of cheap labor, the SCU claimed some substantial victories. On most of the plantations affected, the union won at least 75 cents per 100 pounds, and in areas not affected by the strike, landlords reportedly increased wages from 35 cents per hundred pounds to 50 cents or more in order to avert the spread of the strike. On Howard Graves' plantation, located on the border of Lee and Tallapoosa counties, union members not only won the sought-after $1 per hundred pounds, but they forced Graves to raise monthly credit allowances from 10 to $15. Finally, the SEU claimed a small victory on General C.L. Pearson's plantation when about 1,000 sharecroppers and tenants refused to gin their cotton at Pearson's Gin. By taking their cotton to an independent gin in Dadeville, they saved money and prevented Pearson from seizing their cotton to cover past debts. The 1934 cotton picker strike marked the SEU's first major victory since its birth three years earlier. As tales of the Union stand in Tallapoosa County spread from cabin to cabin, so did the Union's popularity. By October, Murphy reported a total membership of 8,000. The celebration ended abruptly, however, as thousands of families found themselves landless during the harsh winter of 1934-35. 
the 8,000-strong union stood helpless in the face of New Deal-induced evictions, and no anti-fascist slogans or demands for self-determination could solve their quandary. 3. Organize or starve communists, labor, and anti-radical violence. Go down in Alabama. Organize every living man. Spread the news all over the land. We got the Union back again. This what the Union done, circa 1930s. We ought to handle you rads like Mussolini does them in Italy. Take you out and shoot you against the wall. And I sure would like to have the pleasure of doing it. Birmingham Detective J.T. Moser 1934. After three years of sustained activity, communist-led trade unions remained virtually non-existent in Birmingham's mines and mills. Unlike the urban jobless and rural poor who comprised the party's rank and file, employed industrial workers had much more at stake. Knowing full well that their jobs could easily be filled by desperate soldiers in the reserve army of labor, few could afford to openly associate with communists. But as Birmingham moved deeper into the throes of depression, conditions deteriorated to such a degree that even workers able to hold on to their jobs found it increasingly difficult to survive. In 1931, TCI-owned mines and mills cut wages by 25%, followed by a 15% reduction in May 1932. More devastating for workers, however, were cutbacks in operations that effectively forced large numbers of employees to accept work on a part-time basis. TCI, Sloss Sheffield, and Woodward Iron Company implemented a three-day schedule in 1931, and some steel workers and miners worked as little as one or two days per month. Birmingham's industrialists chose to reduce hours rather than lay off the bulk of their labor force in order to retain cheap labor in case market fluctuations created a sudden demand. While some workers found jobs elsewhere, the peculiar structure of the company-owned settlements held most in residence, reducing them to virtual peons of their employers. Whether these settlements were located in an isolated mining community or owned by a steel company in an industrial suburb, they shared numerous similarities. Residents of the company-owned homes were at the whims of their employers. Any challenge to the rules or breach of agreement, written or spoken, could lead to eviction. Because rent was so inexpensive, about 5 or $6 per month in 1930, few workers chose to strike out beyond the company's settlement. More importantly, Companies generally did not evict workers unable to pay the rent, choosing instead to retrieve back payments through payroll deduction at a later date. The apparent gesture of goodwill had its price. Resident workers living under this arrangement had to work upon request, irrespective of minor ailments or other related problems, and those who failed to show were either threatened or beaten by the company's shack rouster or were promptly evicted. Structured along the lines of an armed camp, and resembling in some ways South Africa's mining compounds, 
The company-owned settlements were also intended to insulate workers from outside influences, namely labor organizers. Employers maintained a private police force, paid spies to collect information and monitor workers' activities, and employed every available means to create an impenetrable shield around the community. In addition to wages and living space, employers used commodities, mainly food, to retain and control industrial workers. The less expensive private grocers were naturally workers' first choice, but most employers paid wages in scrip worth about 60 cents on the dollar to be used exclusively at the company commissary. Even when workers received direct wages, the availability of credit created a cycle of dependency not easily broken, and miners who resided in isolated settlements had few alternative establishments with which to trade. Reductions in wages and hours during the early 1930s increased workers' debts to the point where other means of survival were not only necessary but encouraged by employers. Like most Birmingham unemployed, miners and steel workers turned to gardening and keeping livestock, especially chickens and pigs. TCI and other large companies encouraged cultivation by renting land to employees at an incredibly cheap rate and making company-owned mules available for plowing. These worker-owned gardens were cultivated primarily by women, whose presence the company clearly took advantage of as a reservoir of free labor. In communities with few employment opportunities for women, the companies indirectly benefited from the labor of workers' wives and daughters because unpaid household and agricultural work was necessary to reproduce the labor power of male industrial workers. In addition to cultivating gardens, these women canned goods, made clothes, washed dust-stained muckers, work clothes, repaired homes, and to survive the freezing winters without heat, made quilts. The houses was as cold as I don't know what, recalls Louise Burns, the wife of a black Alabama coal miner who remembers spending much of her time making quilts, gathering coal, and patching up holes in the walls. We did all this stuff to help keep things warm and going the best we could. Yeah, we had plenty to do. In some cases, the exploitation of female labor was more direct. Foremen and high-ranking officials often had their laundry washed by workers' wives and daughters for as little as 50 cents per load. Women's unpaid labor and the proliferation of gardens certainly ensured family survival, but these practices also helped the company by mitigating reductions in wages and hours without seriously damaging the social reproduction of labor. In other words, the burden of survival fell increasingly upon the shoulders of women, not as paid workers contributing household income directly, but as unpaid producers whose labor ensured the maintenance of the industrial worker. For the most part, this tenuous mode of survival, visible mainly in the form of company paternalism, worked against labor activism, especially during the pre-New Deal period. The availability of work, credit, free rent, and land for cultivation instilled a sense of complacency within the labor force, and any rumblings of opposition were quickly crushed by threats, intimidation, or violence. 
early in 1930, for example, when no more than a dozen communists roamed the streets of Birmingham, the AFL, American Federation of Labor, launched a massive campaign to organize white Alabama textile workers, of whom some 85% lived in company towns. Yet, even with the support of several state political figures, including Governor Bibb Graves, the drive completely failed. Although the campaign was conceived in response to North Carolina's communist-led textile strikes in 1929, opponents hearkened back to those very events to depict the conservative AFL organizers as a band of invading agitators who were coming from the outside to disrupt the peace and harmony between labor and capital. The utter failure of the AFL's organizing drive was a foreboding of the communists' first three years as labor activists. Aside from intermittent attempts to organize bakery workers and black women employed in Birmingham's burgeoning mechanical laundries, communists concentrated exclusively on building the NMU, National Miners Union, and the Steel and Metal Workers Industrial Union, both affiliates of the TUUL. From its beginnings in 1930 to 33, the NMU failed dismally in Alabama, partly because its dual union tactics were ineffective in a region with no competing labor organizations. In other areas, the NMU sought to attract renegade UMWA members into its own ranks or to build a groundswell of opposition to UMWA leaders. Birmingham NMU organizers, however, had to build an interracial union from scratch. Not surprisingly, their early efforts bore little fruit. Communists barely penetrated the armed mining camps, and following a spate of arrests and beatings by TCI police, the fledgling NMU eventually abandoned its campaign. The Steel and Metal Workers Industrial Union did not fare much better during the pre-NRA National Recovery Administration, period. In 1931, communist shop units at the Stockham Pipe and Fittings Company and the U.S. Pipe Shop called for a walkout in response to a general 10% wage cut, but workers ignored the strike call. Yet, the dual union policies proved slightly more effective in steel because of the presence of the Amalgamated Association of Iron, Steel, and Tin Workers, a considerably weak craft union that had been in existence since the early part of the century. The communists assailed Amalgamated for practicing racial discrimination and ignoring the unskilled, prompting dozens of black steel workers to protest the union's exclusionary policies. By the time Amalgamated launched its organizing drive under the NIRA, National Industrial Recovery Act, complaints from black workers compelled the union to open its ranks, although its president, W.H. Crawford, was quick to explain publicly that the union, of course, is not seeking to elevate the Negro. Alabama's languishing labor movement was given an unprecedented boost in 1933 when Congress passed the NIRA. The provisions established under Section 7A stipulated that in the industries covered under the NIRA code, employees could not be prevented from joining a labor union. 
Employers also had to pay minimum wage rates and to observe regulations setting the maximum hours of work as well as other employment rules set forth in the NIRA for their respective industries. Labor responded with renewed enthusiasm. Only two months after the NIRA was signed into law, an estimated 65,000 workers joined unions affiliated with either the Birmingham or Bessemer Trades and Labor Councils. The resurgence of industrial labor organization was most apparent in the Alabama coal fields. Under the leadership of Indiana labor organizer and former socialist William Mitch, the UMWA, United Mine Workers of America, initiated a successful campaign during the summer of 1933 and reorganized Alabama's District 20 within a few months. Despite retaliatory layoffs and evictions, by August, 87 locals had been organized throughout the state, and within months, thousands of miners walked off their jobs demanding union recognition. The communists were unimpressed by the NIRA, arguing that it was intended to force workers into company unions. Alabama party leaders criticized the act for not covering agricultural and domestic workers and for imposing regional wage differentials, accurately predicting that industrialists would respond by replacing black labor with whites rather than pay blacks the sanctioned minimum wage. Nonetheless, Birmingham communists responded eagerly to the sudden surge of labor activity, and by mid-1933, organizing the unorganized replaced joblessness as their primary issue. At the CPUSA's Extraordinary National Conference held in New York in July, delegates issued an open letter to all members of the Communist Party calling for an intensification of trade union work. Birmingham communists signaled the new emphasis on organized labor by holding an unemployed and trade union conference two weeks before the 1933 elections. Although most of its organizers were arrested before the meeting began, the conference was supposed to be a forum to discuss the labor movement's future and to develop strategies for establishing rank-and-file committees within the unions. The party further highlighted the new line by nominating two TCI employees to run for Birmingham City Commissioner in the 1933 elections. Mark Ellis, a young, white, trade union organizer and communist candidate for commission president, shared the ticket with black TCI steelworker David James, who ran for associate commissioner. Their campaign platform focused mainly on building the labor movement, and securing the right to organize. They continued to advocate more relief and an end to evictions of unemployed workers and vowed to cut the police budget, arguing that it would not only free money for municipal relief projects, but reduce anti-labor repression and police brutality throughout the city. The party's industrial organizing campaign took hold rather quickly. The number of communist shop units in Birmingham increased from 5 to 14 within a few months, and by January 1934, Alabama had 496 dues-paying communists. In accordance with Central Committee directives, the Alabama cadre also made a greater effort to recruit more whites. 
While they hoped to draw progressive white industrial workers, what they got was an eclectic mix of hobos, ex-Klansmen, and intellectuals who had been reduced to semi-poverty by the Depression. An example of the latter was Israel Berlin, a 32-year-old Lithuanian-born Jew who held a B.S. degree from the Alabama Polytechnic Institute. After losing his job as a chemist and failing to secure a commensurate position, Berlin spent much of his idle time studying the economic crisis. Dissatisfied with Republican and Democratic panaceas, Berlin joined the Communist Party in 1933 and became its full-time literature agent in Birmingham. The local cadre was also infused with talented individuals from outside the South. The New York-born Jewish radical Boris Israel had already gained notoriety in Memphis for leading several unemployed demonstrations and for defending a black man accused of raping a white woman. By December 1933, police and vigilante pressure had forced him to take refuge in Chicago, but he returned south a few months later. Adopting the pseudonym Blaine Owen, he settled in Birmingham in 1934 and resumed his work on behalf of the Communist Party. The addition of Clyde Johnson, a lean, tall, soft-spoken young communist organizer, benefited the industrial campaign immensely. Born in 1908 in Proctor, Minnesota, Johnson was only 15 when the Duluth, Mississippi, and Northern Railroad hired him to work during the summers. After two years at Duluth Junior College, in 1929, he moved to New York and secured work as a draftsman for Western Electric Company while attending courses at City College of New York. Drawn immediately to the campus left, Johnson emerged as a leading militant at CCNY, was elected national organizer for the NSL, National Student League, and joined the Communist Party. Accompanied by Don West, a radical Southern preacher and poet who had also joined the CP, Johnson was dispatched to Rome, Georgia in 1933 at the behest of the NSL to assist in a student strike at Martha Berry School. Johnson remained in Rome, helped lead a strike of foundry workers, and briefly organized farmers for the Farm Holiday Association. Harassed, arrested, beaten, and eventually forced to flee the county, he left Rome and headed for Atlanta to replace the incarcerated Angelo Herndon. There he met IOD activist and future wife Leah Ann Agron. Reassigned to Alabama in 1934, he soon became the party's leading labor organizer in the Birmingham district. By the time Johnson and other communists began organizing coal miners in Walker and Jefferson counties, many of the obstacles that had hindered the TUUL during the pre-New Deal era no longer prevailed. Communists could now work as an alternative force within existing industrial unions that enjoyed limited support from the federal government. More importantly, the horrible living and working conditions in both the coal and ore mines had effectively nourished labor militancy. Accidental deaths caused by falling rocks, cave-ins, uncontrolled loading cars, or natural gas explosions occurred often, and workers disabled or suffering from lung-related diseases received no benefits. Coal operators avoided responsibility by contracting out work to skilled white miners 
who would hire their own loaders, blasters, and common laborers. When workers complained about pay rate, hours, or health or safety conditions, company representatives would simply point the finger at the contractor, freeing the large corporate entities from any responsibility while reducing capital outlays to a bare minimum. Another obvious point of contention was the operator's practice of appointing check weighmen. The check weighmen, whose job was to weigh the loaded cars of coal, frequently cheated the contractor and his workers by adjusting the weight to company-imposed maximums and ignoring actual output. Blacks, who in 1930 constituted 62% of the coal miners in Jefferson County, suffered most under the prevailing system. Not only were blacks paid less than whites for the same work, but operators tended to use wider screens for coal mined by blacks, effectively reducing the tonnage for which they were credited. Nor were black miners paid for dead work, such as post- and pre-production cleanup, for which their white co-workers were paid. Occupational discrimination also reduced wages and placed a ceiling on job mobility. While white workers held exclusive rights to positions such as contractor or machine operator, blacks rarely rose above coal loading, pick mining, and other unskilled, often seasonal, occupations. Despite William Mitch's commitment to interracial solidarity, UMWA leaders generally ignored the coal industry's peculiar forms of racial discrimination and exploitation. Communist miners, therefore, gained a small following within the union by protesting racial discrimination within the industry as well as in the union. The party abandoned the dual union policies characteristic of the NMU and created rank-and-file committees within the UMWA. These committees raised issues that UMWA leaders refused to address, including barriers to black occupational mobility and the lack of black participation in the union's bureaucracy. And while the UMWA received praise from most black and white liberal observers, not to mention a few rank-and-file communists, for its unequivocal racial egalitarianism, most local and national communist leaders believed the union did not go far enough. Even the UMWA's long-standing policy of preserving the offices of Vice President and Recording Secretary for Blacks and President and Executive Secretary for Whites was attacked by a few party theoreticians as another form of segregation because it limited Blacks to designated positions and kept them from holding the union's top offices. One communist writer, social scientist and novelist Myra Page, discovered during her tour of Alabama's coal mines in 1934 that blacks comprised only one-third of state convention delegates, yet they made up the majority of union membership. As one white UMWA official told her, We give niggers one out of three on committees, keep them satisfied, and white man control. Nevertheless, most black communists who toiled in the mines for a living were not as quick to criticize the union especially since blacks served as treasurers in several locals and in a few cases became checkwaymen once workers won the right to elect their own. The rank-and-file committees continued to push UMWA leadership to adopt more egalitarian racial policies, 
But early in 1934, another issue caused even greater internal dissension within the Union. William Mitch accepted the NRA's minimum wage code, which paid Southern workers less than Northern workers. Southern coal operators rationalized lower wages by arguing that unusually high freight rates and the lower grade of Alabama coal pushed production costs relatively high. The regional wage differential sparked a militant, communist-led opposition movement within the UMWA only months after its resuscitation, culminating in an unauthorized strike in February. Defying the decisions of the NRA Regional Labor Board and the UMWA, an estimated 15 to 20,000 miners walked off their jobs demanding higher wages, union recognition, and the abolition of the wage differential. When Mitch ordered the miners back to work, the communist unit at the Lewisburg mine responded by calling for greater rank-and-file control and adding demands that drew attention to the most exploitative aspects of the miners' life and work. Party leaflets littered the mining camps, advocating, among other things, a basic day rate of $1 above the prevailing NRA code, a minimum tonnage rate, equal work and unfettered occupational mobility for black miners, an eight-hour day, free transportation to and from work, and a drastic reduction in commissary prices. Mitch temporarily settled the strike on March 16th, but the strikers had to agree to limit union recognition to a voluntary checkoff system, freeze all strikes until April 1, 1935, and accept prevailing wages. Nevertheless, the negotiations resulted in two significant concessions, the abolition of the contracting system and the right of workers to elect check weighmen. The uneasy peace between coal operators and the UMWA did not last very long. In a surprising move, the NRA raised the minimum wage for southern bituminous coal miners by $1.20, nearly equalizing the northern-based minimum. But following a federal injunction obtained by Alabama coal operators, the code was reduced to a 40-cent raise. Consequently, the operators rejected the modified code as well, thus provoking some 14,000 coal miners to walk off their jobs in April against William Mitch's wishes. Communists convinced workers at Docena and Hamilton Slope mines to leave their jobs, organized pickets at the TCI-owned Wylam and Edgewater mines, and led a group of steel workers to Republic Steel's captive coal mines and persuaded miners there to join the strike. In addition to protesting the wage differential, the party called for an end to the operator's practice of deducting relief payments and back rent from the miners' paychecks, thus drawing attention to the links between housing and welfare policies and workers' dependence on the company. The April walkout marked the height of party influence in the Alabama coal fields a fact that did not escape the attention of William Mitch. He not only blamed radical elements for instigating the unauthorized strike, but encouraged UMWA officials to work with company police to keep communists out of the mines. The strike was eventually broken, and most of the strikers either returned to work or were promptly fired. 
the party exercised even greater influence within the International Union of Mine, Mill, and Smelter Workers, a union comprised mainly of iron ore miners and a handful of steel workers. Originally an outgrowth of the Western Federation of Miners, a militant union that helped launch the IWW, International Workers of the World, in 1905, Mine Mill developed a national reputation as a radical left-wing union during the 1930s. The prominent role communists played in Mine Mill can be partially attributed to the fact that, in 1933, 80% of the district's ore miners, and an even greater percentage of the union, were black. Indeed, black workers, many of whom had gained experience in the communist-led unemployed movement, held the majority of middle- and low-level leadership positions within the union. George Limley, whose father was an organizer for Mine Mill, recalled, When the union went in, some blacks thought they would rule the company. Everything will go our way. When Jim Lipscomb, a Bessemer lawyer and former miner blacklisted for union activities, initiated Mine Mill's organizing drive in 1933, the prevalence of black workers and the union's egalitarian goals gave the movement an air of civil rights activism. Union meetings were held in the woods, in sympathetic black churches, or anywhere else activists could meet without molestation. Company police used violence and intimidation in an effort to crush Mine Mill before it could establish a following, but when these tactics failed, officials exploited racial animosities. TCI created a company union, the ERP, which used racist and anti-communist slogans to appeal to white workers. Mine Mill quickly earned the nom de guerre Nigger Union, and white workers who repudiated the ERP were labeled communists and nigger lovers. Officials also cut social welfare programs and enforced segregation codes much more stringently than before. In addition to building rank-and-file committees, some communists were elected to leadership positions within their local. As one mine mill organizer explained in 1934, the party had even greater influence and stronger organization among the ore miners than any other industry. Communists were frequently identified openly at union meetings and, in many cases, earned the endearment of black union members because of the party's commitment to racial equality and civil rights. High-ranking white mine mill officials, on the other hand, shared mainstream labor leaders' disdain for communists. Leaders of the Brighton local, for example, endorsed a resolution that read, We are opposed to and do not tolerate communism and will not accept the application of any man for membership who was tainted with its poison. A few months later, the president of Bessemer's Local 1 expelled white communist John Davis and two black communists, Nathan Strong and Ed Sears, solely because of their political affiliations. Prodded by the rank-and-file committees, local mine mill leaders issued a strike call in May 1934 to ore miners at TCI, Republic Steel Corporation, the Sloss Sheffield Iron and Steel Company, and the Woodward Iron Company, demanding higher wages, shorter hours, 
and union recognition. The companies refused to arbitrate and responded by firing and evicting dozens of union members. Violence between strikers and company police left two strike breakers dead and at least nine workers wounded. Despite the intervention of state troops, bombs exploded and gunfire was exchanged intermittently throughout most of the summer. During the strike, communists devoted most of their energy to publicizing anti-union violence in the ore mines, fighting evictions, and securing relief for the strikers. Communists created miniature unemployed committees within mine mill that were instrumental in preventing several evictions, fighting for the strikers' right to receive public relief, and maintaining picket lines. In Bessemer, Clyde Johnson obtained much-needed assistance for striking miners from the city's relief authorities and secured crucial support from the otherwise conservative Bessemer Central Trades and Labor Council. With the intervention of Secretary of Labor Francis Perkins, an agreement between Mine Mill and TCI was finally reached on June 27th, though it was hardly a victory for the union. Mine Mill remained unrecognized and wages increased only slightly. The communists not only found the bargain unacceptable, but pointed to blatant examples of anti-union discrimination and numerous instances of company non-compliance with the agreement. At the Raymond Mine, for example, only 60% of the strikers were rehired, while the other 40% were summarily fired and evicted. Party units at Muscoda Mine adopted the slogan, No Union Miners Move, All Scabs Off Red Mountain. And communists active at Sloss Sheffield Mine threatened to lead an unauthorized strike over the same issue. Mine Mill also led a small strike of steel workers at Republic Steel Corporation. Urged on by the Communist Party unit in Republic's East Thomas Blast Furnace, an estimated 400 workers walked off their jobs in April and demanded a flat 20% wage increase and union recognition. A handful of communists in Mine Mill attempted to extend the strike by marching on Sayerton Coal Mine in order to persuade the captive miners to join them, but they were intercepted by a squadron of company police. Vance Hoodlich, a young white steelworker, was gunned down, and communist Mark Ellis was badly beaten. The Republic strikers eventually won an employee representation election conducted by the Atlanta Regional NRA Labor Board one month later, but the company would not recognize the union, and the NRA did not have the power to enforce the ruling. Consequently, the Thomas Blast Furnace workers remained on strike for over a year, receiving far more criticism than support from organized labor. Besides some feeble attempts on the part of the Amalgamated Association of Iron, Steel, and Tin Workers, the dying craft union that had been temporarily reinvigorated by the NRA, the steel industry in the Birmingham district remained unorganized until the CIO came into being a few years later. Through the use of lockouts, company unions, intimidation, and the exploitation of racial divisions within the labor force, Birmingham's steel industry effectively hindered labor organization in the mills. 
the communists placed much of the blame squarely on the shoulders of Amalgamated's local leadership, particularly its president, W.H. Crawford. Crawford opposed rank-and-file sentiment to join the 1934 strike wave, denounced the Republic Steel Strike, and all but ignored black workers. Communist labor organizers agreed that the union's success depended on black workers who, in 1930, made up 47% of the labor force in Birmingham's steel and iron industries. Rather than wait for a policy change in Amalgamated, communists sought to organize metal workers autonomously by establishing federal locals chartered through the AFL's national headquarters. Clyde Johnson was instrumental in forming federal locals in four shops, three of which signed collective agreements with their employers. At the Virginia Bridge and Iron Company, Johnson struck a bargain with employees only after leading a dramatic one-day walkout and plant shutdown. At the Central Foundry in Tuscaloosa, communists chartered a federal local with over 500 workers, after the segregated International Motors Union denied membership to black and unskilled white labor. The communists certainly made their presence felt among miners and steelworkers during the 1934 strike wave. Yet their actual contribution remained essentially behind the scenes, partly because most Union communists were black, unskilled, rank-and-file workers. Although individuals such as Henry O. Mayfield, Joe Howard, and Ab Cox would rise within the ranks of the CIO during the late 1930s, the majority of blacks, communist or not, had few opportunities for advancement within the labor movement. Another often overlooked reason for the party's behind-the-scenes role in the 1934 strikes stems from the fact that many rank-and-file organizers were the wives and daughters of black industrial workers, and or they were women who had joined the CP through the neighborhood relief committees. With the open encouragement of the rank-and-file committees, women's auxiliaries were formed in virtually all working-class communities. Frequently led by communists or IOD activists, the women's auxiliaries sometimes rivaled union locals in membership as well as in their strident advocacy of labor organization. The growth and radicalization of the women's auxiliaries were certainly linked to the increasing workload of black women in the company-controlled communities, induced, of course, by cutbacks in wages and hours. Henry O. Mayfield recalled that whenever union members failed to recruit a recalcitrant worker, the women would send a committee to talk with the worker's wife or the worker, and they would always win their point. One white coal miner suggested that the presence of black women ensured the union's success. Not a scab gets by him, he observed. Just let one of their race try it. Why, their women folks handle him. Workers' wives used a number of methods to handle their menfolk such as withholding labor and sex, which might be described as a kind of domestic strike. In a telling commentary, one ex or minor explains, Women's can just about rule men's, you know, things like that, to keep them from going back to the company or something another like that, because all of them was union. A man got a wife, 
and if he's going back to the company and she didn't want him to go, then she'll say, if you go back, then me and you ain't going to be husband and wife no more. The women's auxiliaries also provided crucial material support during strikes. Ironically, the gardens women cultivated with the encouragement of the company, ultimately intended to offset wage reductions, became a source of strikers' relief. Coal miner Cletus Burns remembers several strikes during which union members would give sweet potatoes, corn, and anything out the garden that they had. When the gardens proved inadequate, according to Mayfield, the women would organize into groups and take baskets and go into stores asking for food for needy families. The disturbances in the coal, iron, and steel industries represented merely the apex of a year-long labor revolt. In February, nearly 1,500 Birmingham laundry workers struck for wage increases, 250 packing house workers walked off their jobs in May, and wildcat strikes, some of which had been coordinated by communist organizers, exploded on several New Deal relief projects. Alabama also felt the impact of the West Coast waterfront strikes, which drew a few hundred mobile longshoremen into the fray, and some 23,000 Alabama textile workers joined the National Textile Strike. In all, the state experienced at least 45 strikes involving 84,228 workers during the tumultuous year of 1934. In spite of the party's emphasis on industrial unionism, Alabama communists did not entirely withdraw from organizing relief workers and the unemployed. In Tarrant City, an industrial suburb of Birmingham, the party founded the RWL, Revolutionary Workers League, in 1934, led by white communist C. Dave Smith, a veteran labor organizer and dynamic speaker who, according to Clyde Johnson, had guts and was quick with his fists, the RWL was quite popular among Tarrant City workers and even enjoyed support from Mayor Roy Ingram. Mainly through the work of Smith, Clyde Johnson, and local communists Penny Parker and Jesse Owens, Tarrant City became the party's strongest base of white working-class support. Communists tried to organize black relief workers in the CCC, Civilian Conservation Corps, a New Deal agency created to relieve poverty and train youth in forest conservation work. From the outset, protests over the working and living conditions were commonplace in these segregated camps, and several CCC workers were placed under observation for allegedly spreading damaging propaganda. In February 1934, a few YCL activists organized a strike of about 200 black CCC workers in a camp near Tuscaloosa. What began as a peaceful protest erupted into violence when state troops intervened and strikers retaliated with a barrage of bricks. Once the fighting subsided, CCC authorities promptly fired about 160 workers and had YCL activist Boykin Queenie, the strike's leader, arrested. The Communist Party, along with the discharged strikers, issued a statement demanding Queenie's immediate release. Communists played no significant part in the Alabama textile strike. 
because the party had not organized in Huntsville, the heart of the state's textile industry, the district committee sent flying squadrons of organizers that drove through mill towns at night and littered the area with leaflets. Aside from sloganeering, the party made no sustained effort to organize the Alabama textile mills. Besides, its predominantly black cadre would have had a difficult time trying to convince white, often racist textile workers to cast their lot with the communists. Not surprisingly, the communists could only claim considerable influence among the Negro textile workers in Birmingham. On the Gulf Coast, the party's diminutive role can be attributed to its size and to workers' reluctance to join the waterfront strike. Communists only began organizing in Mobile in August 1934, two months before the strike. In response to the West Coast waterfront strike, the communist-led MWIU, Maritime Workers Industrial Union, created a joint strike preparations committee with support from the ISU, International Seamen's Union, and a few active members of the nearly defunct IWW. On the eve of the walkout, the committee convinced the ILA, International Longshoremen's Association, in Mobile to join the strike, raising the total number of strikers to a minuscule 400 workers. But after three days, the ISU and ILA called their members back to work. William McGee, president of the WMIU in Mobile, criticized the union's turnabout on the strike decision and organized a mass rally of about 100 black and white seamen, but police dispersed the crowd before the rally began. Although the party's role in the 1934 strike wave was uneven and often insignificant, opponents attributed practically every action associated with worker rebellion to the CP. Birmingham newspapers carried headlines such as Strike Moves Near Climax, Rads Linked with Violence, and Outbreak Believed Work of Agitators. Ironically, Daily worker reports confirmed the fears of many Birmingham residents by exaggerating the party's role and, in an odd way, by attracting radical artists and intellectuals from outside Alabama. The Outsiders' brief forays to Birmingham, which usually included a day with the SCU, resembled artists' sojourns to the front during the Spanish Civil War. They wanted to witness firsthand the heroism of Dixie's interracial vanguard, and those who experienced police repression or harassment wore their stripes proudly. Among them were luminaries such as playwright and novelist John Howard Lawson, authors Jack Conroy, Myra Page, and Grace Lumpkin, and visual artist Paul Weller, most of whom used the experiences or knowledge they obtained in Alabama in their work. The party's strong showing at the 1934 May Day demonstration, which coincided with the most intense period of strike activity, fueled the notion that communists provoked the unrest. The party's first major rally since the May Day debacle of the previous year attracted over 5,000 people to Capitol Park, despite the city commission's last-minute revocation of a parade permit. Police prepared for the event by mounting machine guns atop the Jefferson County Jail 
and enlisting the support of approximately 1,500 white legionnaires. Before the speakers could address the crowd, police officers and legionnaires began beating and arresting protesters. Under orders from Birmingham Police Chief E.L. Hollams, officers launched a wave of retaliatory raids several days after the demonstration, jailing nearly a dozen communists on charges ranging from vagrancy to criminal anarchy. The first wave of arrestees, comprised primarily of local leaders and known visitors, included Louise Thompson, a black International Workers' Order representative visiting from New York. The incarceration of renowned radical playwright John Howard Lawson, who was charged with libel for his Daily Worker article describing the arrests and trials of six Birmingham communist leaders, attracted national attention to civil liberties violations in Birmingham. The wave of repression even piqued the ACLU's interest, particularly after Birmingham's Western Union office manager refused to transmit two dispatches from a daily worker correspondent because he found them to be highly inflammatory. While these sensationalist claims of the press were more invention than reality, they had the effect of promoting the Communist Party from mere nuisance to Birmingham's number one public enemy in the minds of many. For their growing popularity, the communists had to bear the brunt of anti-labor violence. The Red Squad, a special unit of the Birmingham Police Department, headed by Detective J.T. Moser, became a beehive of activity. Although police had both the 1930 Criminal Anarchy Ordinance and vagrancy laws at their disposal, the Red Squad more commonly invoked Section 4902 of the Birmingham Criminal Code because it allowed police, without a warrant, to arrest and detain anyone for up to 72 hours without charge. Section 4902 was used to obtain information and or to intimidate activists without having to go to court. Clyde Johnson, who had been arrested by the Birmingham Police Force at least three times in 1934, was severely beaten while being held incommunicado. At first, I didn't think they were interested in me answering questions because they'd ask a question, and if I didn't respond quickly enough, they started beating the living hell out of me, on my head. And then they'd make me put my hands on the table, and they started pounding at my hands. They broke a couple of fingers. They kept at this, and I didn't answer. I decided they were going to kill me, I went unconscious, and they threw water at me, and I went through it some more. When they picked me up, I was barely able to walk. Black communist Helen Longs was arrested for distributing leaflets explaining the party's election platform. Although the charge was eventually reduced to disorderly conduct, the police detained her under Section 4902 and proceeded with their peculiar form of interrogation. Three of them had rubber hoses, one had a strap, and one had a blackjack. The biggest one of the men tried to make me lie down, but I wouldn't. Then they hit me with the hose and with the strap with such force as almost to knock me down. But when I didn't fall, the biggest man finally grabbed me and threw me down. While they had me on the floor, one of them would beat me until he got tired, and then another would start in. Then two or three would beat me at the same time, until I nearly lost consciousness. 
the Red Squad stepped up its activities during the summer, jailing dozens of communists charged with violating the criminal anarchy ordinance. In July, police arrested Israel Berlin for possessing party literature, and a few days later he was jailed again, along with communists John Beidel and Fred Keith, when police seized the entire August edition of The Southern Worker. Editor Elizabeth Lawson retaliated by putting out a special six-page edition of The Southern Worker and sending a complimentary copy to Police Chief Hollums. In August, police raided the home of 66-year-old Addie Adkins and discovered 25,000 leaflets appealing to workers to support the textile strike. Adkins was arrested and charged with distributing literature, advocating overthrow of the government by force. In nearly all of these cases, however, the charges were dismissed by judges who ruled that party literature did not violate the criminal anarchy ordinance. Frustrated by the criminal anarchy ordinance's ineffectiveness, Police Chief Hollums and City Commissioner W.O. Downs promoted much stronger anti-communist legislation. In May, the commissioner drafted the infamous Downs Literature Ordinance which made it unlawful to possess one or more copies of radical literature, defined to include any anti-war or anti-fascist material, labor publications, and liberal journals such as The New Republic and The Nation. The maximum sentence for violating the ordinance was six months in jail plus a fine of $100. The Birmingham City Commission adopted the ordinance in October, and the City Council of Bessemer passed a similar anti-sedition law one month later. Although AFL leaders were well aware that anti-sedition laws could be used against organized labor, they did not protest the legislation. On the contrary, the Birmingham and Bessemer Trades Councils not only championed the new ordinances, but called for even stronger measures. Robert Moore, president of the ASFL, felt the Downs Ordinance still was not restrictive enough to deal with the threat of communism. We have no adequate laws in Alabama, he announced, to meet the constantly increasing threat from this source, but we can oust every known communist from within the ranks of organized labor, and we propose to do just that. W.O. Hare, secretary of the ASFL, followed Moore's advice and attempted to expel communists and questionable characters from the Federation. With the passage of the Downs Ordinance, the number of arrests rose dramatically. But as with the criminal anarchy ordinance preceding it, convictions were few and far between. Of 60 arrests in less than a year, only three resulted in convictions under the new law. Where due process failed, extra-legal terrorist organizations succeeded. The White Legion directed virtually all of its energies toward fighting communism, from distributing propaganda to burning crosses on the lawns of white Tarrant City communists. In Birmingham, the Klan, which had declined substantially in the late 1920s, rode the crest of anti-labor and anti-communist sentiment in 1934. In that same year, 44 new claverns were organized in northern Alabama alone, and a local fascist movement affiliated with the Klan began publishing the Alabama Black Shirt. 
The clan's rebirth was signaled by the appearance of thousands of leaflets warning Birmingham's blacks to stay clear of the communists. The parades, literature, and other symbolic gestures were intended to intimidate activists, as well as to build support among whites, but these public displays of white supremacy failed to silence Alabama radicals. Indeed, black ILD organizers occasionally responded with their own leaflets, such as the one warning, KKK, the workers are watching you. The vigilantes' real influence lay in extra-legal acts of violence, usually perpetrated with the assistance of local law enforcement agencies. The number of vigilante assaults on communists and suspected communists rose rapidly during the strike wave and continued well into 1935. In the aftermath of the ore miners' strike, Clyde Johnson survived at least three assassination attempts. Black communist Steve Simmons suffered a near-fatal beating at the hands of Klansmen in North Birmingham, and a few months later his black comrade in Bessemer, Saul Davis, was kidnapped by a gang of white TCI employees, stripped bare, and flogged for several hours. These examples represent only a fraction of the anti-radical terror that pervaded the Birmingham district in 1934. As 1934 came to a close, District Organizer Nat Ross and Secretary Ted Wellman felt the time had come to take stock of the past in order to chart a new direction for the future. Wellman observed in a Daily Worker article that the Communists' role in the strikes, compounded by the fact that they had suffered an inordinate amount of retaliatory violence, earned them the admiration and support of many industrial workers. He even admitted that Birmingham's working class, in many cases, pushed the party members into activity by asking for leaflets and for information about meetings and activities. Yet, in the party's theoretical journals and internal organs, Wellman and Ross were far less effusive with their praise. Both submitted reports criticizing the Birmingham cadre for failing to build mine and shop units in the most important centers of industry and for expending all their energy on organizing the strikes instead of recruiting and educating industrial workers. In Nat Ross's words, they did not sufficiently explain the connection between the struggle against the differential wage and the struggle of the sharecroppers, and between the struggle for the freedom of the Scottsboro Boys and the whole fight for the right to self-determination in the Black Belt. All writers agreed, however, that the level of repression hindered the party's work. Ironically, the proliferation of anti-radical violence in 1934 seemed to act as a catalyst for the party's growth. Like many others who joined in 1934, Jesse G. Owens, a one-time socialist from Tarrant City, interpreted the violence as proof that the communists must have something that was for the good of the working class. According to party sources, 300 new members joined during the intense six-week period of labor activity beginning in April 1934, and by May the Communists claimed 1,000 in the Birmingham district alone, while the ILD's ranks swelled to 3,000. More significant than the numbers, however, 
is the fact that violence compelled local communists to make anti-radical repression and the denial of civil liberties a central issue on their agenda. The emphasis on police repression and violence was not only evident in the assessments offered by Nat Ross and Ted Wellman, but subtle changes in the party's entire program became apparent during the 1934 election campaign. As in 1933, the party ran candidates associated with organized labor, but the issue of civil liberties took precedence over everything else on the party's platform. Insisting that the KKK, the White Legion, and other armed fascist bands be outlawed, the communists held a demonstration in front of the Birmingham courthouse to determine the right to vote without any restrictions whatsoever. When the city commission turned down their application for a permit to hold an election rally in Capitol Park, the communists organized several smaller rallies in the neighborhoods and sections of the city in order to avoid police and fascist violence. The right of free speech and assembly became a campaign priority articulated as a basic right, denied all working people. The Communist Party will grow stronger every day and will soon take its constitutional right to speak to the people openly on the streets in the public places of the city. While it is impossible to accurately measure the party's influence in the labor movement, it is clear that the communists' impact was far greater than their numbers indicate. They operated as the proverbial gadflies, criticizing AFL policies, popularizing strikes through publications, leaflets, and pickets, and convincing small groups of workers, including a handful of whites, of the virtues of socialism. Indeed, the communist-led rank-and-file committees were the only organized voices within the Alabama labor movement to consistently fight against racial discrimination and to build alliances between strikers in different industries. But the more they asserted themselves in the 1934 strike wave, the greater the intensity of anti-radical violence and the more difficult it became for them to work openly. Unlike the neighborhood relief committees or the unemployed councils, which were organized and run by communists, the labor movement's relationship to the party was ambivalent, to say the least. Surrounded by hostile trade union leaders, communists had to perform the unenviable task of building a base of support while operating as outsiders. Their difficulties were compounded by the fact that they were not merely anonymous outsiders, but outsiders with a volatile reputation. Their activities in the courtrooms and on the streets on behalf of poor black men accused of rape and other assorted crimes followed the communists into the workplace and the relief offices. In a word, Alabama communists operated under the shadow of Scottsboro a shadow that generated as much vicious hatred as unqualified respect. It is to this shadow that we shall now turn. 4. In the Heart of the Trouble Race, Sex, and the ILD I reckon you take up for those Russians. Talk about lynching. That whole country ought to be lynched, making women public property. 
The Wuxian Reds had better not come over here trying to nationalize my daughter. Grace Lumpkin, a sign for Kane. We wish to call your attention to the inroads being made among people of this city and state, white and colored, by insidious propaganda of communism, which we are being looked to curb and do propose to combat and destroy in keeping with the spirit of our organization, but find ourselves handicapped on every hand because the red propagandist uses the very things herein pointed out to attract followers and to create disrespect for law and order, and to incite mobs and mob violence, which we know to be futile and destructive to the best interest of our people. Birmingham NAACP Petition to City Commission, 1933. On March 25, 1931, nine black men, ages 13 to 19, were pulled from a locomotive boxcar and arrested near Paint Rock, Alabama, for allegedly assaulting some young white men who were also riding the rails. When authorities discovered two white women, Victoria Price and Ruby Bates, riding on the same train, the charge against the alleged assailants was promptly changed to rape, even though none of the black men shared the same boxcar as the women. Indicted without benefit of legal counsel, the nine defendants were taken to nearby Scottsboro and held in the Jackson County Jail. Although no evidence of rape was introduced by the prosecution, the Scottsboro boys were tried, convicted, and sentenced to death within three days. In light of the South's record of injustice to blacks, the speed with which the all-white jury handed down its decision should not be surprising. However, Scottsboro stands out from any number of similar cases because the defendants received unsolicited outside assistance from the communist-led ILD. As soon as word of the arrests reached local newspapers, IOD officials located the defendants' families in Chattanooga, offered legal services, and made preparations to publicize the case. The IOD's strategy was to focus international attention on what would have been a quiet, soon-forgotten trial. On April 12th, 13,000 people assembled in Cleveland to protest the Scottsboro frame-up. And on the following day, nearly 20,000 demonstrators in New York demanded the immediate release of the nine defendants. Within the next few weeks, Scottsboro defense committees were formed, demonstrations were organized, and telegrams and letters of protest from across the country flooded Governor Benjamin Miller's office. The ILD entered a far more taxing and complex battle than its leaders had ever imagined. Its offer of free legal counsel and active public support for alleged Negro rapists was not only seen as a direct assault on white womanhood. From the outset, the IOD was tainted by a peculiar myth that linked communism to sexual promiscuity and miscegenation. In the South, the word communism itself, pronounced communism, according to W.J. Cash, had a curiously explicit sexual connotation derived from stereotyped visions of 19th century utopian communal societies, which suggested that notions of free love were integrally tied to communal living. Moreover, 
the presence of white women in an organization with an even larger proportion of black men spurred Southern white imaginations. The Birmingham labor advocate warned its readers to beware of outside agitators who, under the cover of darkness, disseminated red literature preaching free love and intermarriage. The presumed promiscuity of female communists, black or white, became an axiom in Alabama, especially after Scottsboro. While confined to a Birmingham jail cell in 1932, Alice Burke had to endure sordid remarks from police officers who insisted that she desired to sleep with all nine Scottsboro defendants. Everybody knew, she recalled amusingly, that I was a lover of blacks. Two years later, black communist Louise Thompson was handled in a similar manner in a Birmingham courtroom. During cross-examination, both the prosecuting attorney and the judge were inclined at first to make a joke of the affairs, taunting me about my comrades, slightly alluding to some intimate relationship with the men arrested with me. The belief that communists intended to make women public property, available to all irrespective of race, served as a powerful buffer against communism. Black men, it was suggested over and over again, were drawn to communism because it meant having access to the dominant society's greatest treasure, white women. Wrote one observer, In the eyes of colored men, complete equality with the whites, as proclaimed by Moscow, means free possession of white women. Some of the party's detractors even suggested that the communists planned to wage a sexual revolution alongside the class struggle. During the 1934 strike wave, the Birmingham White Legion issued leaflets asking white citizens, How would you like to awaken one morning to find your wife or daughter attacked by a Negro or a communist? Two white Alabamians underscored this point in a popular 1936 polemic aptly titled Scottsboro, the firebrand of communism. Echoing popular racist notions, equating savagery with sexual lasciviousness, they argued that communists aimed their propaganda at the black man with the hope that it will ignite the spark of savagery that once controlled the instincts of his ancestors. The ILD's presence aroused an equally passionate, though much different, response from black Alabamians. The party had already built a strong base of support within black working-class communities because of its relief campaign, but once the ILD entered the Scottsboro case, the CP quickly earned a reputation as a race organization. Although the move grew out of a pre-existing policy to defend all class war prisoners, the ILD suddenly found itself immersed in the world of race politics. Through their participation in the Scottsboro defense, as well as a panoply of local cases involving poor black defendants, ILD activists directly challenged the leadership of Birmingham's black elite. Once Scottsboro hit the daily newspapers, Birmingham's traditional black leaders at first dissociated themselves from the case and berated the communists for meddling in Southern affairs. The Birmingham World, in an editorial entitled Cast Down Your Buckets Where You Are, supported Alabama's legal system 100%. Birmingham, the writer explained, 
has proved that a man can get a just and fair trial in the Southland, regardless of color. While questioning the evidence presented in court, Oscar Adams, editor of the Black Birmingham Reporter, nevertheless felt the defendant's testimony carried little weight because they were poorly trained and primitive when we think of intelligence. NAACP National Secretary Walter White also expressed some skepticism at first. Adopting a wait-and-see attitude, he did not send a lawyer to Alabama until the nine defendants had been convicted. White questioned the ILD's intentions, suggesting that the organization was interested less in the defendants' welfare than in revolution as ordered from Moscow. Furthermore, he believed the ILD duped the parents into accepting its support since the defendants' families were, in White's words, of humble background and with meager educational and other advantages. White nevertheless recognized that black public opinion was beginning to shift toward the ILD. He had hoped to wrest control of the case from the ILD, but the paralyzed state of the NAACP in Alabama and the overall timorousness of Birmingham's black elite precluded any local intervention. One month after the first trial, National Director of Branches Robert Bangnall partly blamed the Birmingham branch for the NAACP's failure to enter the case, suggesting that if local organization had been stronger, the Scottsboro case might have received instant attention. In January 1931, the Birmingham branch claimed a total paid membership of six, a figure that included all of Jefferson County. Independent efforts failed as well. Two years earlier, Oscar Adams and members of the black business community had established the Birmingham Benevolent and Legal Aid Association to enable progressive and forward-looking Negroes of substantial worth to assist the less fortunate and underprivileged Negro to get a hearing in court. After a few sparsely attended meetings, however, the organization had disbanded, leaving a dying NAACP and several well-attended social and literary clubs in its wake. The black elite's ambivalence, timidity, and organizational weakness contrasted sharply with the party's growing strength and quixotic approach to politics. Almost a year before Scottsboro, the party launched a regional anti-lynching campaign that had been motivated by a multiple lynching in Amel, Alabama. On July 4, 1930, Tom Robertson, a black sharecropper and reputed racial militant, was attacked by vigilantes following an argument he had had with a local white storekeeper over the price of a battery. While most of the small-town folks of Amel were celebrating American Independence Day, a mob gathered at Robertson's home. Tom Robertson tried his best to stave off the attack with buckshot, but once he ran out of ammunition, the mob broke down his door and lynched four members of his family. He and the rest of his relatives then became game in a rapacious manhunt, inspired by a $300 reward offered by Alabama Governor Bibb Graves, that ended only when Robertson was captured two months later. The ILD publicized the case, but it did not have the resources to provide Robertson legal counsel. He died in the electric chair on January 2, 1931. The events in Amel, Alabama became a catalyst for the revival of the ANLC, 
American Negro Labor Congress, a communist auxiliary whose support had been declining steadily since its founding in 1925. A preliminary meeting held in Chattanooga in October attracted an enthusiastic crowd, and a few weeks later over 120 delegates, including Southern Garveyites, gathered in St. Louis to attend an ANLC-sponsored National Anti-Lynching Convention. From this particular meeting, a new organization developed, the LSNR, League of Struggle for Negro Rights, to replace the dying ANLC and to reinvigorate the fight against lynching. The party's response to the Scottsboro arrests, therefore, grew directly from these events. By December 1930, IOD leaders not only placed anti-lynching activity high on their list of priorities, but now began to define virtually all African Americans falsely accused of capital offenses as class war prisoners. As the local NAACP tried in vain to win over the Scottsboro defendants, Birmingham ILD activists took up other local cases. In April 1931, the party, the ILD, and the newly created LSNR chapter protested the police shooting of an unarmed black man, Babe Dawes. A suspect in a recent shooting in Birmingham, Dawes reportedly complied with police orders but was gunned down nonetheless. Two months later, the ILD protested the lynching of Thomas Jasper in Huntsville, Alabama, but demands for a full investigation and the death penalty for his murderers did not result in a single prosecution. These local cases were rarely publicized outside the communist press, and even the CP tabloids paid more attention to the Scottsboro case. But by late summer 1931, a case involving a black man accused of raping and murdering two prominent Birmingham white women nearly rivaled Scottsboro as a cause celeb in Alabama and further intensified local conflict between the ILD and the NAACP. On August 4, 1931, sisters Nell and Augusta Williams and a friend, Jenny Wood, were driving through Shades Valley, just beyond the Birmingham city limits, when a black man reportedly leapt upon the automobile's running board and forced the driver at gunpoint to take a back road to a wooded area, where all three were allegedly robbed and then raped. When Nell Williams attempted to disarm their assailant, he shot and killed Wood and injured the two sisters. Augusta Williams did not survive her injuries. She died in the hospital hours later, leaving Nell the sole survivor. Press reports tried to link the Communist Party to the assault after Nell Williams claimed that the three women were forced to listen to a lengthy harangue about the race problem and communism after intercourse. Enraged white citizens and police launched a reign of terror against blacks in general and Birmingham communists in particular. Several communists, including district organizer Harry Jackson, were jailed within days of the shooting, and dozens of young black men were killed or wounded by police. According to Angelo Herndon, who was also arrested during the fracas, lynch mobs rushed through the streets in the Negro sections of the town like maniacs. Black businesses in the suburb of Woodlawn were firebombed, and for several weeks, lights were shut off in black communities by 10 p.m., 
as part of the city-imposed curfew on African Americans. Fearing a potential race riot, Birmingham's traditional black leaders tried desperately to calm the white community. A black welfare organization released a statement impugning the awful crime committed against womanhood by one of our race, and a group of black businessmen offered a $3,300 reward for the capture of the Williams's assailant. The communists felt the reward was inappropriate and accused the black elite of helping the white ruling class place the noose about the neck of some innocent Negro worker. The Shades Valley murders, following on the heels of the SCU's shootout at Camp Hill, see Chapter 2, compelled the CIC to investigate communist activity in Alabama. In less than two weeks, a subcommittee composed of black and white clergy, educators, and liberal businessmen produced a slim report titled Radical Activities in Alabama. Conceding that black working people were at the center of party activity, the report maintained that blacks were merely dupes of white radicals endowed with brilliant leadership, sleepless energy, and apparently unlimited money. Blacks' ancient wrongs, the report explained, their new hopes, their ignorance, and their trustful natures are counted on to make them readily responsive to the revolutionary appeal. About a month later, after the hysteria had died down and Nell Williams had recovered from the shooting, she and her brother Dent Williams spotted a black man, 35-year-old Willie Peterson, walking along the sidewalk. When she identified him as the assailant, Dent Williams accosted Peterson with his pistol drawn and performed a citizen's arrest. Emphatically proclaiming his innocence, the thin, sickly, dark-skinned, southern-born Willie Peterson did not in any way fit the original description given by Williams, who had described her attacker as a stout, light-skinned, educated northerner. Moreover, several witnesses claimed they had seen Peterson on the other side of town when the crime was committed. It was so obvious Williams had chosen the wrong man that both the Jefferson County Sheriff and the state solicitor privately admitted that a mistake had been made. To quell any doubt about Peterson's guilt, Dent Williams arranged a meeting with the sheriff at which his sister was supposed to make a positive identification. As soon as Peterson emerged from his cell, Dent drew a concealed pistol and shot him several times. Though he was already suffering from aggravated tuberculosis, Peterson miraculously survived the shooting. With very little solid evidence, the prosecution approached the case from a different angle altogether. Amid press reports claiming the assailant lectured on communism and the race question after raping the three women, the prosecution tried to link Willie Peterson to the communists by invoking the sexual connotations associated with the popular image of communism. Peterson's grueling interrogation while an inmate at Kilby Prison is quite revealing on this score. Question. You had been to meetings where they said the Negroes were as good as white people and not to be treated like white people? Answer. I don't remember. Question. You know what a communist is, don't you? Answer. A communist? Question. 
the people going around preaching to Negroes that they ought to take the stand that they are as good as white folks and that they ought to marry white folks. Dazed by the arrest and shooting of her husband, Henrietta Peterson immediately turned to the ILD. As ILD lawyers and activists began making plans for Peterson's defense, Birmingham NAACP leaders, prodded by Walter White, fought for control of the case. Once Henrietta Peterson's decision became public, NAACP Secretary Charles McPherson persuaded her to disavow the ILD retainer she had signed and allow the NAACP to take the case. McPherson told her that the ILD was an illegal organization and that any mass campaign for Peterson's freedom will make the white people in Birmingham mad. The people with whom you are dealing, he warned, believe in overthrowing the government. They do not care anything about your husband. They are using him as a pawn to get a foothold in America. You will be railroading your husband to the electric chair if you follow them. Fearing for her husband's safety, she followed McPherson's advice and switched to a respectable Birmingham law firm, Roach and Johnson, and the NAACP promised to bear litigation costs. Although the first trial in December ended in a hung jury, Peterson was convicted of first-degree murder in a second trial in January 1932 on the strength of testimony from one Henry Wilson. Reputedly a black Tuscaloosa barber, Wilson testified that Peterson had bragged about the crime to everyone in his shop. When an investigator revealed that Wilson was actually Tom Shepard, a construction worker who had been paid $10 to lie on the stand, it made no difference. After less than 20 minutes of deliberation, Peterson was sentenced to die by electrocution. The Birmingham NAACP branch urged Roach and Johnson to appeal the case, a decision that augmented the association's popularity and revitalized the dwindling organization. Under Charles McPherson's leadership, the Birmingham branch convinced some prominent black clergy and professionals to establish a defense fund for Peterson. Now that the NAACP could boast of its own Scottsboro, McPherson acknowledged in February, Birmingham is just about ripe for rehabilitation. Three months later, the same branch that only a year earlier could not achieve a quorum now counted 97 paid-up members. The ILD's persistent mass campaign on Peterson's behalf proved to be a painful thorn in the side of the newly reconstituted NAACP. When the Birmingham Post published an article linking the two organizations as defenders of Negro cases, the local NAACP branch responded with a patriotic letter distancing itself from the ILD and claiming no connection whatsoever with the Scottsboro case. In fact, distinguishing itself from the ILD seemed to be the whole point of the Peterson campaign with respect to politics. The communists, Walter White complained to Roy Wilkins, keep ballyhooing about the Peterson case, and we want to keep in the minds of the public that it is the NAACP and not the communists who are fighting for him. But the proliferation of communist-led Peterson defense committees convinced large numbers of black Birmingham working people that the ILD was, in fact, leading the campaign. 
While the Peterson and Scottsboro cases found ample space in communist and mainstream newspapers, another rape case occurred which escaped nearly everyone's attention. In May 1932, a 12-year-old black Birmingham girl, Murtis Dixon, was hired by a white man who lived in the vicinity to perform domestic chores. When she arrived at his home, he forced her into a wooded section of the city and raped her at knife point. Witnesses came forward, but police refused to arrest the man, and the case never went to trial. The Dixon case is illuminating for the conspicuous silence it evoked from leading white communists, black middle-class spokespersons, and white liberals. Neither the NAACP, the CIC, nor the ILD investigated the matter, and Murder Dixon's story never made it to the columns of mainstream Birmingham newspapers or the Southern Worker. Only the Garveyite Negro World found a small space in its pages to report the incident. Only a small group of local black communists took an interest in the case, calling themselves the Liberation Committee. Al Murphy, Hosea Hudson, and Joe Burton sought support from black clergy in order to pressure police into charging Dixon's assailant. However, traditional black spokesmen remained silent, and the Liberation Committee was unable to mobilize the kind of mass support Willie Peterson and the Scottsboro Nine enjoyed. Perhaps the indifference to Dixon's case can be partly attributed to the age-old double standard that cast white women as pure and virtuous and black women as naturally promiscuous. These notions apparently penetrated political practice to the point where the rape of a 12-year-old black girl was ignored by the NAACP and the ILD in Birmingham. As the summer approached, and Murtis Dixon's rape tragically faded from memory. Former Birmingham activist Angelo Herndon was added to the ILD's growing list of political prisoners. Herndon, who had recently been assigned to work among the Atlanta unemployed, was convicted of violating an old slave insurrection law for organizing an interracial relief demonstration. With the Scottsboro and Herndon cases achieving national prominence just before the 1932 election campaign, Southern ILD district organizer Donald Burke announced plans for an all-Southern Scottsboro and Civil Rights Conference to be held in Birmingham on October 2nd. In anticipation of the largest ILD gathering to date, several small preliminary mass meetings were held throughout the city including an outdoor demonstration of 200, at which Viola Montgomery, mother of Scottsboro defendant Olin Montgomery, gave the keynote speech. As local organizations prepared for the October 2nd conference, Klansmen, vigilantes, and law enforcement agencies intensified anti-radical repression. When black communist organizer Otto Hall arrived from New York, he was arrested, beaten, and deposited outside the city limits. A few days later, Klansmen organized a 20-car motorcade to the black community and distributed leaflets that read, Communism will not be tolerated. The All-Southern Scottsboro and Civil Rights Conference went on as scheduled in spite of police and Klan intimidation. Altogether, some 300 blacks and 50 whites packed the Negro Masonic Temple 
and between 500 and 1,000 black residents were turned away for lack of space or because of the military atmosphere surrounding the hall. While the crowd listened to addresses by communists Donald and Alice Burke, Mary Leonard, and Uncle Ben Fowler, a black IOD organizer and Jack Lag preacher, about 80 police officers equipped with three machine guns and a box of tear gas bombs established posts across the street from the hall. As Hosea Hudson recalls, the people who attended the conference all was in overalls and half raggedy, but many appeared not to have been intimidated. Negroes just walked all under them rifles, just went on in the door and on to the meeting, had them standing on the corner, too. People just walked on by. The response to the conference even surprised its organizers. Afterward, the Birmingham IOD office was suddenly flooded with volunteers, and soon its core of two or three dozen organizers burgeoned to 200 active members. A local officer for the U.S. Military Intelligence Division woefully conceded late in 1932 that the IOD had created a favorable impression among Negroes, and some reports intimated that Negroes were becoming bolder in aligning themselves openly with the communists. Birmingham party leaders looked to take advantage of the ILD's growing popularity. Even before the Central Committee promoted broad-based, united-front politics, local communist leaders began to make overtures toward white liberals and traditional black leaders to unite around legal defense cases. A month after the Birmingham conference, district organizer Nat Ross suggested that a revitalized IOD composed of non-revolutionary workers and middle-class elements of all political and religious faiths would be even more effective as long as the party gives close guidance. Liberal and black middle-class spokespersons ignored Ross's invitation at first. But a string of unexpected circumstances created a new set of opportunities for joint action. Over a year before the new Scottsboro trials opened on March 27, 1933, one of the alleged victims, Ruby Bates, repudiated the rape charge, admitting that she had been forced by police to lie. Yet despite new evidence and a brilliant defense, the all-white Alabama jury found Haywood Patterson the first defendant, guilty, and the judge sentenced him to die in the electric chair. Patterson's conviction aroused considerable indignation among African Americans. When the NAACP Board of Directors attributed the verdict to ILD tactics, Walter White and the association were attacked from all corners of the nation's black populace, local NAACP branches, newspaper editors, churches, and several radical organizations harshly criticized the association's national leadership. Practically overnight, the NAACP reversed its original statement and agreed to aid the ILD and raise money for the Scottsboro defense. Birmingham branch leaders did not oppose re-entering the Scottsboro case, but many cringed at the idea of working directly with the ILD. Critical of the decision, McPherson wrote to White, I am afraid that the association has been too hasty to re-enter the Scottsboro cases, 
without first working out a definite agreement with that rabied crowd. You see, coming as it does like a thunderbolt out of a clear sky, it puts us in a bad plight right here in the heart of the trouble. I urge you that an agreeable working arrangement be definitely formed, separating the two organizations so as not to embarrass us. Birmingham branch leaders immediately issued a press release explaining the NAACP's sudden change of heart with respect to the IOD, decrying the party's revolutionary goals and declaring their own patriotism in unambiguous terms, we are American citizens, red, white, and blue, Birmingham NAACP leaders argued that intervention was necessary for the purpose of controlling and restricting the ILD's activities and propaganda to sane and dignified methods in the future. A few weeks before the NAACP announced its decision to establish ties with the ILD, a group of white liberals and clergymen founded the Birmingham Citizens Scottsboro Aid Committee. In defiance of city segregation ordinances, the committee held its first mass rally on March 31st. Over 1,000 people packed the first congregational church for the event. And when standing room was no longer available, according to one observer, hundreds remained milling outside. The principal speakers included Rabbi Benjamin Goldstein of the Temple Beth Or in Montgomery, Dr. Kenneth E. Barnhart, a professor of sociology recently expelled from Birmingham Southern College because of his political views, and Mrs. H. C. Bryant, president of the Black YWCA in Birmingham. NAACP branch president E. W. Taggart made an unexpected and unauthorized appearance. To the chagrin of several co-activists, Taggart not only attended the meeting in defiance of branch orders, but had advocated joint action with the IOD months before national leaders opted to do so. On Easter Sunday, the Citizens Scottsboro Aid Committees held another successful mass meeting in Birmingham, but this time the party's presence was far more evident. Speeches by Jane Speed, Mary Leonard, and Scottsboro mother Ada Wright emphasized the ILD's contribution to both the Scottsboro and Peterson cases and challenged the Citizens Scottsboro Aid Committee to adopt mass pressure as a central component of its program. Disappointment over the Patterson verdict led several mainstream black political figures to express some qualified support for the ILD's tactics, though these sympathies were short-lived. The already tenuous alliance was broken abruptly when, two weeks after the Easter meeting, violence erupted during the Communists' May Day demonstration. Liberals and sympathetic black elites turned against the ILD, and those who remained sympathetic to the left faced a groundswell of opposition from conservatives. Rabbi Benjamin Goldstein, the radical religious leader who had participated in Montgomery's Marxist study circles, was forced to leave the state because of his support for the ILD. Hostility toward Goldstein was complicated by anti-Semitism, partly sparked by the ILD's choice of Samuel Leibowitz as principal counsel in the Scottsboro case. 
faced with boycotts and Klan threats, Jewish merchants and other leading members of Montgomery's Temple Bethor congregation not only asked Goldstein to resign, but issued a statement to the press repudiating any outside interference in Southern affairs and pledging their unequivocal support for segregation. A series of events in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, a few months later, further weakened chances for reconciliation between liberals and communists. On June 14, 1933, three black men, Dan Pippin Jr., Elmore Honey Clark, and A.T. Hardin, were picked up by police after the body of a 21-year-old white woman was discovered near Big Sandy. Although there was no concrete evidence linking them to the death, Pippin and Clark were charged with murder and rape, and Hardin was said to have been an accessory to the crime. Tuscaloosa ILD organizer Lewis Harper persuaded the three defendants to hire ILD attorneys, but under pressure from the court and police, Hardin and Clark repudiated their retainers. With the support of his mother, Pippin insisted on his right to ILD counsel, but when his lawyers arrived in Tuscaloosa, Judge Henry B. Foster barred them from the court. Once word spread that communist Jew lawyers were in Tuscaloosa, attorneys Frank B. Irvin, Irving Schwab, and Alan Taub escaped a sure lynching by leaving town in disguise under the reluctant protection of the National Guard. The three defendants were not so lucky. Two weeks later, so as to avoid another Scottsboro case, Tuscaloosa deputies turned the three men over to a lynch mob. Beaten, burned, and riddled with bullets, Elmore Clark somehow survived and made his way to the home of a black woman in the area. As soon as a local black physician dressed his wounds, Clark was turned over to authorities in Montgomery. The lynching of Pippin and Hardin prompted a flood of angry correspondence from around the country much of it holding Judge Henry B. Foster responsible. In nearby Birmingham, communists held a statewide anti-lynching conference and filed formal charges against Foster, Tuscaloosa Sheriff R.W. Shamblin and his staff, and a private detective named W.I. Huff for committing and or abetting the murders. The criticisms infuriated Judge Foster and mortified Tuscaloosa's leading white citizens who now began to blame the ILD for the entire incident. The Tuscaloosa Citizens Protective League retaliated by raiding black homes throughout the county, ostensibly in search of communists. Emotions reached a fevered pitch when an 84-year-old invalid, Dennis Cross, was accused of raping a mentally retarded white woman just weeks after the Pippin and Hardin lynching. Although Tuscaloosa police dismissed the young woman's claim, the case never came to trial. The elderly black man was lifted from his bed and lynched. Though known communists were nowhere in the vicinity when Dennis Cross was murdered, and ILD activist Lewis Harper had been run out of town weeks earlier, anti-communist sentiment fueled a continuing wave of racial violence. The Negro Civic League suffered the brunt of the counterattack and was ultimately driven out of existence, in part because it had established ties with Harper prior to the lynchings. The situation remained tense for quite some time. A year later, J.R. Steelman, 
a noted liberal Alabama professor who had investigated Tuscaloosa's racial violence for the Southern Commission on the Study of Lynching, was approached one night by a mob of Klansmen who accused him of being an ILD agitator. Although Stillman vigorously denied the charge, hostility toward him and his family forced him to leave the county. The ILD's reputation ruined relations with Alabama liberals, but its inability to build a united front did not impede its work in the courtroom. In June 1933, Circuit Judge James E. Horton overturned the jury's verdict on the Haywood-Patterson trial and ordered a new trial for the defendant. Almost simultaneously, the Alabama Supreme Court dismissed Willie Peterson's appeal, marking a major setback for the NAACP's campaign. Charles Houston, dean of Howard University Law School and chief legal counsel for the NAACP, felt the two decisions forewarned of a social crisis which may determine future leadership of Negroes in the South. Houston grudgingly conceded that the ILD has black people's complete confidence for sincerity and courage, even where they do not endorse its policies. The Peterson case, he felt, was the last hope for the NAACP in the South. If the NAACP loses out in the Peterson case, the leadership of Negroes in the South passes irretrievably to the ILD. The association's inability to free Peterson led to a sharp schism within the Birmingham branch. When a faction led by President E.W. Taggart tried unsuccessfully to persuade the branch to join forces with the ILD, they were immediately branded communist sympathizers. NAACP Secretary Charles McPherson, Taggart's most vocal opponent, convinced the branch executive board to retain John W. Altman, one of Birmingham's most prominent attorneys, to appeal the Peterson case before the U.S. Supreme Court. But this last-ditch effort was to no avail. In January 1934, the court refused to hear the case, leaving the NAACP no choice but to turn to its last alternative, a gubernatorial gift of clemency for Willie Peterson. Appealing to Governor Benjamin Miller and Alabama's leading citizens, Walter White and local NAACP officials argued that Peterson's execution must be halted primarily for political reasons, for it would give communists the most powerful argument they have ever had for propaganda among Negroes. Under the advisement of several Alabama law officers who were skeptical of Peterson's guilt, the governor agreed to hold a clemency hearing on March 6, 1934. The appeal for clemency in lieu of freedom was unacceptable to ILD activists and equally disappointing to Henrietta Peterson, who now announced her unequivocal support for the ILD. The NAACP drew even more criticism when it agreed to have blacks barred from the clemency hearings. Offended by the announcement, a disgruntled group of ILD members, including Henrietta Peterson, traveled to Montgomery and unsuccessfully tried to force their way into the hearings. Rebuffed by police, they instead staged a demonstration across the street. Amid the faint echo of ILD slogans rising from the streets below, Charles McPherson submitted an illuminating petition to the governor that summed up the political meaning of the case. 
communism, not Peterson's innocence or guilt, was the issue at hand. The NAACP congratulated itself for keeping the case within the orderly, respected, and dignified channels, and away from organizations radical in their nature and foreign in their purposes. The petition merely asked that the NAACP be rewarded for its protracted fight against the ILD, and because it spurned overtures to resort to mass pressure, to stimulate public opinion, to magnify in the eyes of the world the actual persecution of the accused, and for our profound faith that justice would prevail and mercy sustains. The reward was granted. Peterson's death sentence was commuted to life imprisonment. He died of tuberculosis six years later. Established black leaders heralded the governor's decision, but the hundreds who had joined the ILD-led Peterson defense committees, as well as several rank-and-file NAACP members, scoffed at the association's self-congratulatory tone. The public is divided, wrote McPherson, into two groups, naturally, with reference to what we accomplished by our intelligent handling of the Peterson case. Those who are communistically inclined are disappointed in that we did not free him. In retrospect, had the ILD been involved in litigation, it might not have fared any better. But Peterson's supporters saw only the refusal of American courts to free a man who was undoubtedly innocent. Choosing to forego another appeal, the NAACP soon removed the Willie Peterson case from its agenda altogether, and as a consequence, lost a large chunk of its membership. Meanwhile, the ILD in Birmingham, which had grown to 3,000 by 1934, began to eclipse all other established black organizations. During that same year, the ILD defended Selma City employee Ed Johnson after he was charged with raping a white woman. Johnson's charges were dismissed when the alleged victim admitted in court that police forced her to invent the story, announcing to the jury that she would not be like Victoria Price, but like Ruby Bates, she would tell the truth. Upon his release, Johnson was almost handed over to a lynch mob, but the ILD foiled their plan by organizing a defense squad of ex-servicemen who surrounded him and took him to a safe place. A few months later, the IOD intervened on behalf of Walter Brown, a black steel worker from Bessemer who was charged with rape and attempted murder. Like Willie Peterson, Brown did not fit the victim's description, and numerous witnesses testified to his whereabouts at the time of the crime. But he was convicted nonetheless and sentenced to 20 years in prison. Of all the communist-led mass organizations in Alabama, the ILD undoubtedly evoked the strongest emotions from both blacks and whites. While most whites viewed the ILD as outside agitators who defended black rapists in an effort to bring about a race war and a sexual revolution in the South, many black working people saw the organization as a sort of public defender for the race. The ILD's popularity in the black community, however, 
made them automatic rivals of the black elite in general and the NAACP in particular. In a way, black and white activists in the ILD asserted themselves as defenders of the African-American community's basic constitutional and civil rights, and thus entered the realm of political practice usually considered the preserve of black bourgeois or liberal interracial movements. The ILD was not just one additional voice speaking out on behalf of poor blacks. It was a movement composed of poor blacks. It not only provided free legal defense and sought to expose the class basis of racism in the South, it gave black working people what traditional middle-class organizations would not, a political voice. 5. Negroes ain't black, but red. Black communists and the culture of opposition. No more Ku Klux Klan with their burning crosses. No more chain gangs. We's no dogs, no hoses. The NAACP, God, no Moses, can stop us blackies fighting the bosses. Negroes ain't black, but red. Teacher Lennon done said, brothers all oppressed in Poe. Ain't it so? Show. No mo, no mo. Communist Party song, circa 1930s. In 1930, a columnist for the Daily Worker predicted that the Communist Party in the South would be composed of young whites who were not so weighed down by the prejudices of their parents. But historical reality as we have seen thus far, had little in common with this writer's vision of rebellious white youth leading the hitherto sleeping black masses in the march to self-determination. Indeed, the prevalence of blacks in the Communist Party earned it the epithet Nigger Party throughout the South. These uninitiated men and women were not intellectuals sympathetic to left-wing movements, nor were they frustrated labor organizers, weary of the pace of change. With the possible exception of Montgomery Party leader John Beans, Alabama's black cadre of unskilled and semi-skilled industrial workers, sharecroppers, domestics, and housewives had rural roots and no previous experience with radical movements. Accustomed to recruiting working people knowledgeable and sympathetic to left-wing causes, District organizer Tom Johnson noted with surprise that Alabama's black cadre were not old sympathizers of the party who have been on the fringe of the movement for some time and have absorbed some of our theory and philosophy. Ironically, what had presumably frustrated Johnson and other leading communists ensured the party's growth and survival in Alabama. Because the movement was built from scratch by people without a Euro-American left-wing tradition, Alabama's black cadre interpreted communism through the lenses of their own cultural world and the international movement of which they were now a part. Far from being a slumbering mass waiting for communist direction, black working people entered the movement with a rich culture of opposition that sometimes contradicted sometimes reinforced the left's vision of class struggle. The party offered more than a vehicle for social contestation. It offered a framework for understanding the roots of poverty and racism, linked local struggles to world politics, 
challenged not only the hegemonic ideology of white supremacy, but the petite bourgeois racial politics of the black middle class, and created an atmosphere in which ordinary people could analyze, discuss, and criticize the society in which they lived. The meshing of an African-American culture of opposition and a Stalinist version of Marxism-Leninism during the radical third period will be the subject of this chapter. We will first explore how a Marxist pedagogy in Birmingham and rural Alabama altered black working people's self-definition and pre-existing worldview. Then, turning to the traditions of resistance blacks brought to the party, we will explore how these various modes of opposition affected collective and individual action and dialectically fused with left culture. Finally, we will discuss the complexities and ambiguities of black radical opposition by examining conflict within the black community between communists, clergy, and black middle-class spokespersons. By exploring intra-racial conflicts, we can gain an even deeper understanding of the social, cultural, and ideological nature of this perplexing movement. During a brief tour of Birmingham at the Communist Party's invitation, radical playwright John Howard Lawson heard an older comrade explain to a young recruit the importance of patience, humility, and study. There ain't one of us here was born a communist. We learned it and it ain't easy to learn. The unidentified activist who caught Lawson's attention summed up a critical and often overlooked component of communist political culture. From the outset, communist organizers created educational structures to turn ordinary workers into Marxists. In May 1930, district organizer Tom Johnson held classes for new party members in Birmingham and Chattanooga, and by October, the district committee boasted of its first two-week party training school in the South. These training schools were never permanent, however, partly because of the party's underground character and scant resources. More importantly, these imported educational structures were ill-suited to teaching theory to a largely illiterate and semi-literate membership. Frustrated to the point of abandoning the project, Tom Johnson described the new recruits as raw green workers with a much lower educational standard than northern workers. Nevertheless, illiterate activists found creative ways to overcome their inability to read and write, which included having party material read to them. The party formed study groups that read works in pamphlet form, ranging from James Allen's Negro Liberation and Lenin's What is to be Done, to Marx and Engels's Communist Manifesto. By mid-1934, the Bessemer section of the party designated one half-hour of each meeting for study, 15 minutes of reading aloud, and 15 minutes devoted to discussion. Local leaders made literate members responsible for tutoring their illiterate comrades by establishing partners who met on a regular basis and read communist tabloids together. Publications such as the Southern Worker, the Daily Worker, Working Woman, the Labor Defender, the Young Worker, and the Liberator were also important sources of information for black communists. 
rank-and-file activists not only tended to have little formal education, but few blacks even owned radios. In 1930, only 3% of Birmingham's black community, or 795 families, owned a radio, compared with 40% of the white community. Circulation of party publications in real numbers was never great, but their readership was much more extensive than subscriptions and individual sales could ever indicate. Because few people could spare money to purchase communist newspapers regularly, a single copy would often serve an entire block to be passed from hand to hand or read aloud to a group. Moreover, in light of vigilante repression and seditious literature ordinances, possession of radical material could have easily led to arrest or physical intimidation. It was common for party organizers in the Black Belt to hide a stack of papers in a hollow tree to be picked up later. As one member of the SEU Executive Committee explained in 1933, it is not easy for us to get the daily worker, but we sneak it in our cabins. One copy goes from one man to his neighbor. We hide it anywhere we think it is safe. Unlike the local labor press, or even the mainstream black press, communist publications carried articles describing the struggles in Africa and the Caribbean. The Liberator had special significance for black Alabamians because, much like the Garveyite Negro world, it was devoted to racial issues. Hosea Hudson was especially fond of the Liberator because it always was caring something about the liberation of black people, something about Africa, something about the South. We would read this paper and this would give us great courage. The party's version of Marxist education taught poor blacks to connect their own lives to struggles throughout the world. And the party's economic theories provided explanations for a number of phenomena, including the roots of poverty, wealth, and racism. But blacks also found within these study groups a source of pride, for after all, many were now receiving what white society had too often denied them, an education. John Garner, a semi-literate coal miner who gave up sharecropping in Bullock County for the Birmingham mines, recalled that one of the main reasons for joining the party and remaining a communist for so long was the education it gave him. His membership lasted over half a century. Black communists, fortunate enough to study at the Workers' School in New York, or in some cases at the Linden School in Moscow, found the experience tantamount to obtaining a diploma of sorts, and returned to Alabama proudly exhibiting their newly acquired knowledge. In 1934, Hosea Hudson, who was illiterate at the time, along with two other communists, rode the rails to New York in the dead of winter to attend a 10-week course at the workers' school. Hudson returned a changed man. I felt like I'm somebody. I'm talking about political economy, about the society itself, how it automatically would breed war and fascism. I'm discussing about the danger of imperialist war. Seeing himself as a learned individual deserving of the respect better-class Negroes received, Hudson often shared his knowledge with non-party people, using as his form the customary social habitat of black males. I'd be discussing socialism in the barbershop. 
we'd start the conversation off, then we'd talk about socialism and how the workers' conditions would be improved under socialism. They'd sit down there and wouldn't no one ask no questions, wouldn't interrupt what I'm saying. They wanted to see what I had to tell. When party work required traveling to another state or country, the trip itself was an educational experience. Cornelia Foreman, Archie Mosley, Mac Code, Henry O. Mayfield, and Al Murphy were among the black Alabamians who traveled to Moscow in the 1930s. Murphy, who was a delegate to the Seventh World Congress in Moscow in 1935, experienced a sense of freedom that was unheard of in the South. During his visit, he fell in love with and married a white Soviet woman, but knowing American racism as he did, Murphy could not return to the United States with her. Leaving the woman he loved behind, Murphy opted not to return South, choosing instead to continue party work in Brooklyn, New York, until he was assigned to Missouri in 1937. Capitola Tasker and her husband Charles, poor sharecroppers from Montgomery County, both traveled a great deal on behalf of the SCU and the Communist Party. Charles Tasker was a delegate to the Chicago Farm Conference held in November 1933, and in the following year, Capitola Tasker was sent to Paris, France, to address the Women's International Congress Against War and Fascism on the SCU's behalf. This international gathering of women made a tremendous impact on Capitola Tasker. It was heaven on earth, she told the delegates, to see all those women who speak different languages all voting in harmony for the same thing. The alternative education not only gave the young, rebellious constituency of the YCL a sense of pride, it also further underscored the contradictions between what they were being told in the classroom and what they experienced daily. As one YCL organizer in Birmingham explained to the young worker, in school they teach us a lot of bunk about what a wonderful country this is and that everyone gets an equal chance. In the rural areas, YCL study groups were very popular because they served as surrogate schools for those unable to attend public schools. The role that these youth-led, makeshift classes played cannot be overestimated in a region where black children attended school on an average of three months of the year and annual educational expenditures for black schools averaged $3.99 per child compared with $38.11 per white child. Under the leadership of Eula Gray, by 1934, seven units of the YCL were formed in Alabama's Black Belt and Tallapoosa County, and about 100 Camp Hill students had planned to affiliate with the communist-led NSL. Gray estimated that young men and women constituted at least one-third of the SCU's total membership. Nevertheless, party literature was hard to come by and nearly impossible to purchase, in a region where most rural families could not even afford basic necessities. YCL members occasionally made requests for material through letters to the communist press or simply begged for any redundant pamphlets comrades passing through might have in their possession. Pedagogy directed toward black youth did not stop at study groups. Sometimes it was sustained by rural families. Although several scholars have argued that Southern black mothers raised their children to be submissive in order to ensure their survival in a violent, racist world, 
Many young activists who were mothers themselves rejected this tradition and, in fact, raised their children to be young communists. Throughout the Black Belt in Tallapoosa County, the children of communists and some SEU activists belonged to the Young Pioneers, a national communist children's auxiliary whose slogan was, Smash the Boy Scouts. When they could obtain copies, these children read the Young Pioneer, the organization's regular organ, and were undoubtedly drawn to Michael Quirt's black history cartoons depicting the lives of Nat Turner, Denmark Vesey, and Toussaint Louverture. Matt Owen, Quirk's popular cartoon strip that had appeared regularly in The Young Worker, must have made a tremendous impression on pioneers as well as YCL activists. Part of the serialized epic depicted a black youth educating two naive white boys about the class struggle while they were all incarcerated in a local jail. Although it is impossible to measure the party's impact on these children, during the mid-1930s, local authorities and counties with a substantial SEU following feared the growing impudence of black youth, and local agricultural extension officers went so far as to adopt measures to de-radicalize children whose parents were suspected union members. At the height of the 1935 cotton pickers' strike, Lee County Extension agents built up their 4-H clubs among blacks and distributed a songbook entitled Games and Songs for Old and Young that included an illuminating parody of Row, Row, Row Your Boat. Ho, ho, ho your row, steadily every day. Merrily, merrily, cheerily, cheerily, half our work is play. Sing, sing, sing your songs happily each day. Clearly, clearly, sweetly, sweetly, sing your songs today. Communist education, whether through reading or oral transmission, introduced poor rural and urban blacks to international politics and in turn placed their own local, seemingly insignificant struggles within a world context. The history of the October Revolution, for example, was among John Garner's first lessons in the history of his movement. Stalin and Lenin and Molotov and all those party leaders, they taught folks how to pitch the capitalists off their back, and they armed them to go to World War I. Then they turned the guns on the bosses. That brought about the revolution. When German communist leader Ernst Thälmann was incarcerated under Hitler, Communists and SEU members in Tallapoosa County made it their own struggle, distributing hundreds of leaflets throughout the rural eastern Piedmont, attacking Nazism and pledging support for the German Communist Party. Eula Gray also organized a mass rally outside of Dadeville to protest Telman's imprisonment. By 1934, when anti-war slogans became ever more prominent in the party's national program, Rank-and-file communists throughout the state held mass anti-war meetings and produced anti-war literature describing events in Europe. The August 1st anti-war picnic held in Dadeville, attended by over 250 people, provides a remarkable example of rural black communists' ability to combine local and international traditions. Following a friendly baseball game and a mouth-harp contest, the group joined together in altered versions of We Shall Not Be Moved and Solidarity, 
whose lyrics described the militancy and determination of the SCU. As they devoured plates of fried chicken, collard greens, and other culinary contributions, these women, children, and men listened to, among other things, a young Lee County woman speak on Why I Like the YCL, a report on the Young Pioneers, and a speech on the Woman Question by a leading female SEU leader. They then closed the gathering with renditions of Arise You Workers and the Internationale. The emergence of a counter-hegemonic ideology within party circles owes much to Marxist pedagogy, but black communists were not blank sheets when they entered the movement. Instead, they were born and reared in communities with a rich culture of opposition, a culture that enveloped and transformed the party into a movement more reflective of African-American radical traditions than anything else. Thus, Black communists retained significant cultural influences that resonated through the Leninist wrappings, determining the everyday character of grassroots activity and, indeed, providing historical legitimacy for the party's very existence in Alabama. Even before many black working people jumped headlong into party work, their evaluation of the movement from afar was often rooted in what George Lipsitz calls a collective memory. We have seen so far how common folk and literary traditions of the Civil War and Reconstruction effectively deterred poor white participation in the Communist Party. Wedded to dominant racial and sexual mores, white Alabamians responded emotionally, often violently, to Communist activity and even read into basic struggles for social justice a threat to the edifice of Southern civilization. Southern blacks maintained their own informal, oral networks through which the community transmitted its vision of the past and present, a vision hidden or masked from the white world and oppositional to the core. The anti-communist propaganda that proved particularly effective among white Alabamians actually augmented the communists' appeal in the black communities. Hidden away in Southern black communities was a folk belief that the Yankees would return to wage another civil war in the South and complete the Reconstruction. When the communists arrived on the scene, veteran party activist Hosea Hudson recalls, the Negro began to look, something's going to happen now. And them folks in the North, them folks in New York, in Russia, we thought we was looking to have a war in the South. And when the organizers of the party came in there representing what these organizations what the Negro been reading about in the paper, this is what brought the Negroes into the organization. They thought the North was coming back and they was going to have another war. Angelo Herndon's attraction to communists also contained echoes of the past. Conditions were so bad, he later wrote, that many people believed that the only way they could ever get better was to start a new war. I, very naively, was under the impression that the unemployed council was calling all Negro and white workers to a new war. The idea that the party's appearance marked the first skirmishes in a new civil war was reiterated in a novel by Myra Page, a party member who spent considerable time with Alabama militants. As one of her characters put it, in the Black Belt, a long, bitter scrap Bruin, us communists, white and colored, got to organize and lead it. 
the first civil war didn't free them, but this one will. What distinguished this new war from the Civil War and Reconstruction was its international dimension. For many black radicals, the Russians were the New Yankees, Stalin was the New Lincoln, and the Soviet Union was a New Ethiopia, stretching forth her arms in defense of black folk. Southern propaganda depicting communists as Soviet agents worked to the party's advantage in black working-class communities. The idea of Soviet and or Northern radical support provided a degree of psychological confidence for African Americans hoping to wage the long-awaited revolution in the South. With the collapse of biracial unionism and the failure of black middle-class organizations to create a viable alternative, most poor blacks had little confidence in their ability to initiate and sustain a movement without outside assistance. Outnumbered and outgunned, thousands chose migration over militant organization, which many saw as potentially suicidal. A black woman from Orville, Alabama, provides a telling example. In a letter to the Daily Worker, she wrote, We need some help in pushing this movement here. We will keep all your orders secret. Tell us what we must do. Let me hear from you folks up there. Faced with the centrality of Russia in popular notions of communism, black radicals unconsciously constructed a folklore that mythologized the Soviet Union. John Garner was convinced that Soviet agents organized the party in Alabama. The Soviet Union had agents, he remembered. That was educating people about the Communist Party. Them agents was all through here. Likewise, Lemon Johnson, local leader of the Sharecroppers Union in Hope Hole, Alabama, felt that Russian support was essential to the Union's success, partly because he believed that all the leaflets, handbills, and newspapers he distributed were printed in Russia. Johnson was not alone in his assessment. When a black sharecropper heard about the daily worker and the activities of the communists, he searched in vain for a copy of the newspaper. Unsuccessful, he hit upon the idea of writing to the Soviet Union for the address of the Daily. The assurance of outside support, even if imagined, and the physical presence of collective organization, engendered a sense of power that lent itself to isolated acts of counter-aggression or self-defense. The Communists' presence in Alabama served precisely this function, emboldening individual members who might otherwise have retreated from confrontation. Late in 1934, for example, eight robed Klansmen broke into the home of North Birmingham Communist Steve Simmons and administered a near-fatal beating. When his assailants later discovered, ironically by reading the Daily Worker, that he had survived the beating, they paid him another visit, but this time he had barred the doors and windows, and he used his shotgun to disperse the crowd, injuring one member of the mob. A third raid, led by two off-duty Birmingham police officers, also met Simmons's buckshot. An embarrassed police department complied with the IOD's demand to remove the two officers and finally provided limited protection for the Simmons household. Similarly, when black communist Saul Davis was kidnapped from his Bessemer home, stripped bare, and whipped for several hours, 
he defiantly returned to Bessemer to work on behalf of the ILD, even before his wounds had completely healed. Such actions should not be interpreted simply as individual acts of heroism or recklessness. Instead, they represented a broader change in attitude, a growing comfort in the strength of collective action and outside support. Although vigilantes slowed communist efforts, successful resistance to their attacks neutralized their efficacy because, like lynching, vigilante violence depends ultimately on the overall impression it makes on the community. For the most part, however, black radicals resorted to violent confrontation only when there were no other avenues available. Indeed, Communists went to great lengths to avoid violence and open conflict. Like their enslaved ancestors of the antebellum South, black Alabama communists understood the terrain of struggle and relied primarily on evasive, cunning forms of resistance. These evasive tactics stood in stark contrast to communist theoreticians' image of class struggle and the left literati's construction of working-class heroism. Poems and short stories in left periodicals painted a portrait of radical Puritans whose unfolding consciousness leapt dramatically from complete docility to revolutionary martyrdom. But proletarian realism hardly depicted African-American realities in the Deep South. Organizers had to rely on their cunning and wit simply to survive, and that often meant wearing a mask of deception. When black communist Harry Haywood arrived in Birmingham, he was told to cut out that fast walking with your head up in the air, or these crackers will spot you. Get that slouch in your walk. Look scared, as if you were about to run. Although these instructions were offered partly in jest, Haywood recognized a grain of truth in these remarks. Sometimes communists used deception to avoid arrest and its potentially violent sequel. Following the Birmingham May Day Battle of 1933, for example, one of the arrestees, IOD organizer and communist Otis de Bartolieben, practiced the art of dissimulation to prevent an almost guaranteed jail sentence. Switching his demeanor from militant to Sambo, de Bartolieben convinced the judge that he had been misled into attending the meeting because when he read the leaflet inviting all workers, he assumed it was something like this forestry thing, and therefore he went there thinking he could get a job. While communists Jane Speed and Ned Goodwin spent time in jail, de Bartolieben was only required to pay a $25 fine and was free to continue his work for the ILD. Much like the trickster characters in African-American folklore, Many black Alabama communists expressed great pride in their ability to outsmart the bosses. As revealed by the ingenious ways activists distributed leaflets in direct violation of seditious literature ordinances and constant police surveillance. In Birmingham, black women posing as laundresses picked up bundles of leaflets, stencils, and paper from the homes of white communists and smuggled the materials out in baskets of laundry. The leaflets were then distributed throughout the city, but were concentrated mainly in Birmingham's various black communities. John Garner recalls with pride and amusement 
his ability to distribute party materials without police molestation. I'd pass by, stick him in your door, <laughs> or you'd throw it at your gate. You'd go into the store to trade. While trading, I'd have a bundle. I'd leave a bundle on the counter there. They didn't never catch me putting out nothing. I had a way to sneak him out. IOD activist Dobby Sanders had his own method of spreading the printed word. I would stick him in my lunch bucket, untie the strings, and let the wind blow the leaflets all over the yard. I'd just keep stepping like nothing ever happened. When leaflets would not suffice, Birmingham radicals left their mark in other ways. While visiting Birmingham in 1934, Myra Page came across the letters ILD carved into what was once the wet, fresh concrete of a new sidewalk. In the rural areas, handbills announcing strikes or simply popularizing the SEU were not only distributed to other sharecroppers but targeted at the landlords as well. All these big white folks, Lemon Johnson recalled, we'd throw them at the door, put them in the mailbox, be making our demands. These mimeographed sheets were in lieu of demonstrations, allowing the union to confront the landlords from an apparent position of strength while protecting the anonymity of its members. Landlords and police referred to SCU leaflets as nightmare because they appeared so frequently and yet could not be traced to anyone. A letter to the young worker described how a group of sharecroppers fooled an infuriated gathering of landlords and overseers who had paraded the countryside to find the ones who were distributing the leaflets. To avoid capture, the sharecroppers hid in the bushes until the parade had passed and then got back on the job of putting out their leaflets. In fact, many rural organizers in the trickster tradition saw themselves as more intelligent than the powerful landlords, whom they felt could easily be manipulated as long as the SCU's activities remained sub rosa. Describing conditions in Lowndes County, Communist Saul Davis warned his comrades of the increasing constraints on organizers due to the fact that the bosses is not so dumb now since they've been woke up by the stool pigeons. Any observer witnessing the interaction between a landlord and a sharecropper or an employer-slash-foreman and a worker, particularly if the subordinate individual is black, might easily dismiss the latter as docile. Yet, routine compliance on the part of subordinate groups is a logical mask donned for the purposes of survival and does not necessarily represent the actual thinking of the oppressed. As political scientist James C. Scott has ably suggested, such dialogue represents only a partial transcript. It is within the realm of thought, Scott argues, and not in open behavior that oppressed classes would more likely express their opposition simply because the former is less dangerous. Understandably, while Alabama communists were exhorted by their northern comrades to engage in outrageous acts of rebellion, few found comfort or consolation in martyrdom. The left literati often failed to understand that black Alabamians' very identification with the party was itself an act of resistance. Hoping to avoid direct confrontation, the Alabama cadre adeptly used resolutions, petitions, 
publications, and meetings to express the individual and collective transcripts that lay hidden from public view. Anonymous leaflets, resolutions, postcards, and letters to landlords and government officials, like the handbill distributed by the Birmingham IOD advising police and clansmen to keep their filthy paws off our brothers, or the unsigned Communist Party resolution submitted to Governor Bibb Graves warning to start a revolution up on your bosses, expressed thoughts that only a fearless few articulated in the presence of their opponents. Communist tabloids that published workers' correspondence offer another, more personalized view of radical consciousness. The party's broad range of publications provided black Alabamians with a national forum to voice their collective and individual grievances, to lash out against their oppressors, and to articulate their own vision of an alternative world. Complaints from SCU members, which usually began with, I am writing a protest against my landlord, described in detail sharecroppers' daily treatment and closed by naming the landlord in question for the purpose of mobilizing readers from across the country to send postcards and letters of protest. The anonymity of the letters freed rural blacks, more commonly young men, to use an angrier, more profane voice than they would have used openly in their own communities, especially in confrontations with landlords or other white authority figures. In an apocalyptic description of revolutionary change, one Dadeville communist not only adopted strong language, but also expressed a desire to use the same voice to the boss's face. The damn bosses and CWA heads don't give a cuss about sharecropper. I hope to see the day when we all get together and fight so we workers will be strong enough to take the land, have plenty of bread and clothing and all. Let the damn bosses know what we really mean. A Lee County YCL worker simply concluded a letter to the young worker with, To hell with the bosses. <laughs>